Niptikitheoria, The Watchful Mind, Teachings on the Prayer of the Heart, by a monk of Manathos, translated with introduction and annotations by Father George Dokos, published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press, Yonkers, New York, 2014. Forward. The holy way of life of sacred Athos, with its more than 1,000-year history and sacred tradition, has been a beacon of spirituality and an arc of our God-given inheritance for orthodoxy and the world. Manathos has produced shepherds and teachers of the church, martyrs and holy monks, new martyrs of our unblemished faith, confessors and guardians of our sacred traditions, genuine ascetics and fasters who cultivated the desert of their souls by the streams of their tears, along with innumerable other souls, and nourished their laboring and heavy-laden brethren with the sweet fruit of their repentance. Moreover, they put down in writing their holy and instructional experiences in books of life. The sacred contents of the present book are a vital source of spiritual asceticism and prayer, a faithful witness to the patristic saying, give blood in order to receive the spirit, which the blessed anonymous Hagiorite and Hieromonk lived. He experienced all of the beauty of God-inspired watchfulness and purifying humble heartfelt prayer, which raised him to mystical visions and divine gifts. In the sacred and compunctionate chapters contained within the book you hold, the sacred author depicts for us the divine gift of prayer with rich and holy descriptions, with dogmatic references, and with personal experiences. Prayer is the lofty gift of God to man, by which earthen man has the ability to unceasingly communicate with the supremely good and almighty God. By prayer, man asks God for divine mercy and his assistance in the struggle against the passions and the conniving devil. By prayer, man's intellect and heart receive priceless, heavenly, and divine sweetness and grace, and he is able to participate in communion with God. This profound book, The Watchful Mind, which was written in 1851 and was preserved under the manuscript number 202 in the library of our sacred monastery of St. Xenophon, represents the fruit of holy and spiritual revelations, painful struggles, and divine experiences, and a sense of the humble and unknown Hagiorite holy ascetic. According to the will of God, the Holy Hagiorite gave it to us in order for us to be instructed in the blessed way of the Holy Fathers, the way of watchfulness and prayer, and for us to enjoy in this earthly life the divine joy and gladness bestowed by the heavenly things. Because of the divine longing, exceptional zeal, and persistent requests of many of the faithful who were enthused by the sacred experiential writings and mystical revelations of the anonymous Hagiorite ascetic, which were the fruit of lofty watchfulness and prayer in Christ. This book has been repeatedly reprinted in the original language. And now, for the first time, because of the same zeal and persistence of the faithful, it has been translated into English. This publication has been made possible by the diligence of the fathers of the sacred monastery, and our erudite co-worker, Father George Dokos, whom we warmly thank. We offer this volume to those faithful readers who love learning, books, and beauty, with the hope that the spiritual voice of an earthly angel and heavenly man who experienced the fruit of watchfulness and prayer 
and the divine wafts which the breeze of the Holy Spirit grants to those who in faith occupy themselves with this sacred work will be added to the flurry of the many ideas of our age. This book will bring salvation and progress to all those who seek to live in Christ and imitate him. We are certain that the reading of the watchful mind will produce the first fruits or the continuation of the enjoyment of the gifts of God that ascesis and prayer bestow and that are characteristic of orthodox spirituality. We hope that all who participate in the banquet of faith that accompanies these watchful and divinely inspired chapters of the present book may be deemed worthy to taste the heavenly good things, which the giver of every good thing richly bestows to those who with faith approach him. Signed with paternal blessings, the abbot of the sacred monastery of Xenophantos, Archimandrite Alexios, together with my brethren in Christ. General Introduction If you want to be known to God, do all you can to remain unknown to men. So writes St. Theognostus at the beginning of his treatise, entitled, On the Practice of the Virtues, Contemplation, and the Priesthood. And so, it seems, did the author of the work in hand take this aphorism to heart. Up until this very moment, the anonymous Athenite writer of Niptiki Theoria has remained known only to God and has eluded all discovery, as he intended. Speaking to the author's anonymity and sanctity, Father Theoclitos of Dionysio Monastery and Manathos began his prologue to the first printed edition of this book in the following way, quote, In a service composed in memory of all the holy monastic fathers of Manathos, St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite not only praises those known saints who led holy lives in the sacred monasteries, in the skeets, in the huts of the wilderness, and in the holes of the earth, whom he calls by name, but together with them he also includes and praises the multitudes of those unnamed holy ascetics, whose sanctity only God has recognized. For out of their humility they besought him to remain unknown to the world and be forgotten by men. It is proper and right to begin this introduction with the above words for two reasons. First, the author clearly did not want to be discovered and has covered his tracks well, seeking to be known by God alone. And second, we can certainly number him among the host of nameless, hallowed monks who have lived on the holy mountain of Athos, for the words and experiences recorded in his book testify to his personal holiness. From the internal evidence, we can also determine a few more things about our mysterious writer. As has already been stated, he was a monk living on Manathos, most likely during the early and mid-19th century, but he was also an ordained priest, thus a hero monk. He testifies to this fact many times throughout the text, both through his vivid and knowledgeable descriptions of the divine liturgy and by his direct statements about his own priesthood. We know that he was in some way attached to a monastic community and was under obedience to a holy elder who was also a hero monk. Where exactly this community was located on the holy mountain, and whether it was large or small, we may never know. It is impossible to know his relationship to the community briefly mentioned in the final chapter of the book, but it is reasonable to assume that he spent periods of time living an isolated eremitic life, occasionally joining that community for the celebration of divine services and to visit his elder. 
He speaks about his Yeronda, or elder, with endearing words, but he also speaks of the community as being his elder's brotherhood, rather than it being his own. Finally, we can categorize the author as a true hezekist, who sought union with Christ through the practice of hezekiah, or stillness and silence, and through the prayer of the heart. Revisiting the question of the possible identity of the author of The Watchful Mind, the only speculation that has been offered to date was made by Father Theoclitos Dionysiates in his prologue. Father Theoclitos ventures to propose, as a mere possibility based on certain indicators, which he does not elucidate for us, the famous hezekist Papa Charitan of Manathos, who lived on the southeastern side of the peninsula in the cave of St. Athanasios the Athenite, with his brotherhood in the late 19th to early 20th centuries. However, new research has shown this to be an impossibility. Professor Sotirios Balasukos of the highest ecclesiastical academy of Thessaloniki makes four pertinent points which prove that Papa Cheriton could not have been the author of The Watchful Mind. One, Papa Cheriton, who lived from 1836 to 1906, was 15 years old in 1851, the year the work was written. Two, he did not arrive on the Holy Mountain until 1870, at the age of 34, and he reposed in the Lord there in 1906, at the age of 70. Three, the syntax and language in the watchful mind, when compared to the known writings of Papa Cheriton, is of a more learned nature. And for a direct comparison of the handwriting of Papa Cheriton's works to that of the author of The Watchful Mind shows that it does not correspond to the same person. Unfortunately, Professor Balasukas' article and research only disproves Father Theoclitos' theory and does not propose any other person as a possible author of the work. He merely concludes, quote, Thus, the authorship of the compunctionate manual on watchfulness must belong to some other pious practitioner of the Jesus prayer, the noetic prayer of the heart, to whom only the Lord knows, end quote. The manuscript written by the anonymous here monk is dated 1851, by his own hand, and was most likely composed toward the end of his life. It is a well and legibly written book of 398 pages, with each page sized 27.5 by 18 centimeters and neatly scored to contain 22 lines of text. The majority of the book is written using black ink, but red ink is also used in certain areas throughout, such as the chapter headings, and when the words spoken by Christ are recorded in the vision at the end of the book. In some unknown way, the manuscript came into the possession of a monk named Euthymios on October 20, 1870, 19 years after the book's completion. Euthymius himself gives us this date by noting it on the flyleaf and also calls himself Euthymios Gregoriatis, indicating that he was a monk of the sacred monastery of Grigoriu. At some point, Euthymius left Grigoriu and settled at the Skeet of the Xenophantos Monastery, which is located further north of Grigoriu on the same coast. Could Euthymios have brought the manuscript with him from Grigoriu, or did it come into his possession after he arrived at the Skeet? 
or was the text already at the skeet when he arrived? If he brought the manuscript with him from Grigoriu, could Grigoriu be the monastery to which our anonymous author was attached? Any of these scenarios is possible, and it is interesting to note that many of the monks living at the skeet of Xenophantos during the time period in question were occupied with the art of bookbinding. Since the manuscript as it currently exists was at some time officially bound into a book, and the author himself did not do this since he had hid the manuscript after writing it, Euthymios or some other monk at the skeet could have bound the manuscript. Whatever the case may be, when Euthymios died in the year 1877, as we are told by the librarian Daniel Carpensiotis, the manuscript made its way to the library of Xenophantos on March 24th of the same year, where it bears the manuscript number 202 in the library codex. As far as we know, the text remained undisturbed for the most part and tucked away in obscurity for about 100 years before it was discovered in the year 1978. Prior to 1976, Xenophantos had been a Cenobitic monastery for some time, but a very loosely run Cenobium, which behaved more like an idiorhythmic monastery. And it very well could be that no one took care of the library or even knew of its treasures. When the current abbot, Archimandrite Alexios, was asked in 1976 to leave the renowned monastery of the great Metoeora in central Greece, and go to Xenophantos in order to revive it. The librarian of the New Brotherhood under Father Alexios's direction, Father Theonas, discovered the work after a couple of years and brought it to the abbot's attention. Father Alexios had the manuscript photographed and gave it to a here monk of Constantinople Monastery, Father Athanasios, to look it over and make the relevant orthographic corrections. The manuscript was then given to the theologian and publisher, Mr. Stylianos K., who had it examined by Archimandrite Nicodemus S., before printing it for the first time in 1979 at his publishing house of Orthodox Kipsili. After the first printing in 1979, Orthodox Kipsili published it once more in 1991, and the two subsequent printings after that have been by the Monastery of Xenophantos in 1996 and 2001. In 2010, the Brotherhood of Xenophantos published the text in a modern Greek translation. To date, Niptyki Theoria has also been translated into Romanian and Russian, and now for the first time in English. We must here make mention of the fact that a partial manuscript of the book was discovered, coincidentally, in the year 1977 at the monastery of Constamanitu. Just prior to the discovery of Niptyki Theoria at Xenophantos, the same Father Athanasios mentioned above was shown a manuscript at Constamanitu by a certain elderly monk named Modestos who kept the text in his cell. The manuscript shown to Father Athanasios was comprised of two chapters from the Watchful Mind, Discourses 16 and 18, most likely copied from the original towards the end of the 19th century. Father Athanasios had the manuscript published by Orthodox Kipsili under the title On the Priesthood and Prayer in 1978, and it was only after its publication that in a chance meeting with Father Theonas, 
the source of those chapters was revealed. It is unfortunate that the whereabouts of those two copied chapters is not known today, for they are not to be found in the library of Constamanitu, nor in the monastery's codex of manuscripts, and Lambros does not list this work in his catalog. Based on the printed publication of 1978, however, it appears that the copy was not identical in all aspects to the original, varying in not a few essential points, while still stating that the work was written by a certain anonymous and blessed person. The central theme that runs throughout the book, which is divided into a proem, 20 discourses, and a concluding vision, is Kardiaki Prosachi, the prayer of the heart, which the author calls by various names, noetic prayer, contemplative prayer, watchful prayer, attentive prayer, and others. Footnote, it is interesting to note that he nowhere calls it the Jesus prayer, or more properly, the prayer to Jesus, as it has become so popularly known today. To continue. That this is the main subject of the work is stated by the Holy Hagiorite himself on the title page, which serves as a sort of descriptor for the book. Quote, 20 Discourses by an anonymous, hopeless monk of the Holy Mountain, in which he exactly describes through the things he personally experienced, learned, and suffered, the way to begin the ceaseless noetic work that has been received and handed down from above by the divine ascetic fathers, that is called noetic prayer, to make progress in it and to perfect it. To be sure, the book covers many other subjects pertaining to the Christian spiritual life. It is, after all, a manual containing every ascetical lesson, according to the author. But what binds it all together is the sacred work of interior prayer and nipsis, purified awareness and inner watchfulness. Nipsis, the cardinal hesychistic virtue, has been variously translated as watchfulness, wakefulness, attentiveness, awareness, alertness, vigilance, sobriety, and does indeed contain all these meanings. It is a state of inner attentiveness where the intellect, that is the noose, is awake and alert to what is happening in one's inner world, carefully watching and analyzing all thoughts and visions that come to a person. The importance the author gives to this spiritual state of inner watchfulness and attentive discernment is obvious from the title he assigned the book, Niptiki Theoria, which combines the notions of nipsis, already mentioned with those of theoria, meaning contemplation, divine vision, spiritual insight, inner perception, spiritual knowledge, and understanding. Noera prosehi, or noetic prayer, sometimes called mental prayer or mindfulness of God, is the ceaseless repetition of the words, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Within the heart. This is said with great attentiveness by the mind or the intellect using one's inner voice. The endiathios logos, deep in the recesses of the inner person. In order to say the prayer properly and for it to bear fruit, the author insists on preparing the heart and purifying it of sinful passions through various ascetic disciplines. Fasting is much stressed throughout the book, as are mourning and tears, 
but he also mentions the necessity of other virtues, such as bodily hardships, self-control, humility, and obedience to a spiritual father, to name but a few. Once the heart has been prepared, the holy hesychist gives simple instructions on how to proceed saying the prayer. The method he recommends, in summary, is the following. 1. Remove yourself from outward distractions. 2. Clear your mind of exterior matters. 3. Either sit on a stool or stand up while bending over a little. 4. Incline your head towards your chest. 5. Concentrate all your attention in the heart at the center of your chest. 6. Say the words of the prayer with the intellect, not with the tongue, slowly but forcefully with each breath, while restraining your breathing a bit. 7. When the heart and the location of the chest where you are saying the prayer begins to heat up, begin to repeat the prayer with even greater intensity and fervor. By proposing this method, the author is in line with his hesychistic predecessors, such as St. Simeon the New Theologian, Nikiforos the Hesychist, Gregory of Sinai, and Gregory Palamas, whose writings pertaining to watchfulness in the Jesus prayer are found in the spiritual classic, the Philokalia, the book that has a profound influence on our anonymous writer. The Philokalia of the Sacred watchful niptic fathers was published in 1782 just 69 years prior to the composition of the present work and therefore the watchful mind is an early witness to the influence the philokalia and the hesychistic renaissance of the late 18th century would have on subsequent generations of hesychists and indeed on the entirety of the orthodox world the writer mentions the philokalia by name and he also directly quotes from various authors found within its pages, such as Peter of Damascus, Gregory of Sinai, and Gregory Palamas. In a remarkable story reported by the watchful hesychist, we see the almost divine and exalted status attributed to the work. The story related concerns two angels carrying the philokalia and showing it to a certain monk in order to teach him the prayer of a heart. Quote, Another brother who was praying noetically had a similar vision. He saw before him two angels who were carrying an open book called the Philokalia. Pointing with their fingers, the angels indicated to the brother the place in the Philokalia concerning noetic prayer, where it says, It is profitable for the monk to say one prayer slowly and clearly with each breath. As soon as he read this sentence, he immediately came to himself. But the Philokalia is not the only influence on our Athenite writer. Aside from the spiritual instruction and formation he would have directly received from his elder, from his fellow monks, and from the whole of the Athenite tradition in which he was immersed, he also read and greatly esteemed the writings of the great mystic St. Isaac the Syrian, whom he cites and refers to three times. There are clear indicators that he knew and was familiar with the ladder of divine ascent by St. John Climacus. The worshiping life and liturgical texts of the church are of profound importance to the author, as he borrows from various prayers and hymns throughout the book. But far, the most quoted work is Holy Scripture, and most especially the Book of Psalms. And it is also apparent that the author was familiar with the Eurondikon, a book containing stories and sayings of the monastic fathers. 
Although the author was influenced by the above-mentioned works and informed by them so as to write in a knowledgeable and theologically learned style reminiscent of other authors of orthodox spiritual texts, the Watchful Mind canon should be considered a very unique book. It is a deeply personal work based on living experience and things the compunctioned author himself suffered. It is not theoretical and systematic, and it is no mere assemblage of ancient wisdom and sayings. But as Father Vasilios, the former abbot of Iveron Monastery, wrote, the author speaks spontaneously in an absolutely genuine manner. The author's Greek is both idiosyncratic and inventive, the latter being most clear in a polysyllabic neologisms kept in the present translation as footnotes. While the book was written at a time when the purest Greek was much in fashion, particularly in ecclesiastical circles, the watchful mind had no such stilted artificiality. The language is intense and lively, moving gradually and assuredly from the turbulent agony of the first chapters to joyful brightness of the closing pages. The anonymous author does not give us a neatly composed reflection on the spiritual life, but rather an account of his own passionate search. The anonymous, humble hesychist refers to himself as illiterate and no gracious composer, but because he was steeped in the life and literature of the church and was the beneficiary of a multitude of spiritual visions and mystical revelations, his offering is truly one of a kind, and yet consistent with the venerable hesychistic tradition of which he is a part. By the streams of your tears you watered the desert's barrenness, and by your sighs from the depths of your heart you bore fruit a hundredfold in your ascetic labors and you became a great light, illumining the world by your miracles. O holy ascetic Father, whose name is known to the Lord, entreat Christ our God, that our souls may be saved. A book called The Watchful Mind, containing twenty discourses by an anonymous, hopeless monk of the holy mountain, in which he exactly describes, through the things he personally experienced, learned, and suffered, the way to begin, make progress in, and perfect the ceaseless noetic work which, having been received and handed down from above by the divine ascetic fathers, is called noetic prayer. So that possessing this handbook, those who desire to enter into this sacred work may quickly enter, through struggles, the heavenly kingdom of Christ God. In the year of salvation, 1851, the holy mountain of Athos. Verses of the Anonymous Author he who has healthy eyes sees the sun, and he who has a pure heart understands the things of watchfulness. I importune you, O my Jesus, that I may become your dwelling place, and so I fervently supplicate you, give me what I desire. O my Savior, come and dwell within my heart, and from it blot out every evil. Place your divine love within my heart, as well as your holy grace. O Christ, Enlighten the vision of my intellect, and illumine the eyes of my mind, O Savior. And so I will prove to be a temple of the Holy Spirit and become a sharer in the heavenly choir. To beloved and fellow readers, proem to the book. 
heavenly-minded friend and lover of the labor of reading the present book, first, it is fitting to speak those words of the lamenting Jeremiah. I am pained to the depth of my belly and in the senses of my heart. My soul is in great commotion, and my heart is torn asunder. Jeremiah 4.19 Tears pour from our eyes as from two faucets of a well, considering the state of our brother monks. For not only do they not desire to occupy themselves as they should with the contemplative work of the unique ascetic life, as all the ancient and recent inspired fathers teach, but they also turn away and even avoid talking about it whenever they might hear someone speaking about watchfulness and prayer of the heart. Such an attitude resembles that of the empty-minded Barlam, that beast of the Latins, and of Akindos and Gregoros and Prochoros, those maniacal enemies of this sacred work, against whom the brave Gregory Palamas, Philotheus the Patriarch, and others, as is apparent from the Tome of Love, so heroically struggled. The reason why today's monks resent hearing about watchfulness and prayer of the heart is that our great enemy, Satan, in this final age more than the previous ones, fights not only to completely extinguish the memory of this persevering and salvific science, but also to destroy the prayers and hymns that have been continuously said by all in common in the churches. But since even until the consummation of the ages, God's chosen, not only they but also the prophets of the new grace, will not fail to exhort everyone to remember and practice virtue, both of the active and contemplative type. The present work was written to be a soul-edifying book and beneficial for the virtuous and godly way of life. The study of this book is able to drive from every soul the sloth that is engendered by the irrational and unruly passions and every fear and cowardice. Moreover, it is able to bring about divine eros, progress, an advancement in the perfection of the maturity which is in Christ, and the attainment of the heavenly kingdom that is found within us, according to the sure word of the Savior. Let no one, then, criticize or pay attention to the composition and language of the present book, for its expression is artless, but the benefit does not come from the art of composition but from the meanings of truth. Many of the Divine Fathers wrote numerous works on watchfulness and discourses and chapters, each writing for the people of his own time. And since virtue reigned everywhere at that time, and the workers of virtue filled the cities and the deserts, and being people taught by God who were instructed directly, one by another, those teachers wrote to people who had knowledge and experience, reminding the virtuous about and preparing them for asceticism and the renewal of virtue. Today, however, when godlessness prevails and virtue has been forgotten, when unerring guides and teachers are nowhere to be found, while everyone everywhere goes about his business lacking self-control, ignorant and slothful, the extreme battles and divine struggles of those Olympic holy athletes of old seem to us slothful people to be but dreams. Within the present work, the prayer called watchful, attentive, contemplative, and of the heart, which is verified by the superabundance of the streams of tears that it produces, is described in a direct manner, with genuine effort, simply but vividly. Within this type of prayer, no satanic deception can hide, 
as is verified by the great ascetic and hierarch of Nineveh, Isaac the Syrian. Quote, Though you should suspend yourself from your eyelids before God, do not think you have attained to anything by the manner of life in which you lead until you have attained to tears. For until then, your hidden self is in the service of the world. That is, you are leading the life of those who dwell in the world and do the work of God with the outward man. But the inward man is still without fruit, for his fruit begins with tears. The eyes of such a man become like fountains of water for two years' time, or even more, without pause, but with a continuous stream of tears day and night. But afterwards he enters into peace of thought. End of quote. Homily 14, Isaac the Syrian. To continue, the author is here shown to be a practitioner and implementer of his own writings, becoming a teacher through his experiences. Moreover, he gained experience as much as he understood and wrote from divine grace. Acknowledging that great struggle is necessary in order to acquire ceaseless prayer, another ancient holy ascetic said, Struggle and toil for the acquisition of every virtue lasts only for some time, but for the acquisition of prayer, it is necessary to struggle until one's final breath. That the evil one dwells in the heart again, and from there continually sows every sin, both Gregory of Sinai and Gregory Palamas attest. The deception and energy of Satan always surround the heart. Satan wishes for this fact never to be known by man, so that man may not seek out ceaseless prayer and thereby drive the evil one out. The grace we received at baptism is hidden within the intellect, and it is revealed to the struggler through the work of watchfulness and prayer. See chapter 3 of St. Gregory Palamas's work on prayer and purity of the heart. And the divine Ephraim says this concerning pain of heart. Persistently suffer hardships in order to avoid the hardship of vain sufferings. For if one's insides and chest do not languish on account of exhaustion from fasting and labors, and if birth-giving pain is not produced within, as when a woman is in childbirth, a person will not be able to give birth to the spirit of salvation in the earth of the heart. See chapter 15 of Gregory of Sinai. And Peter of Damascus says, Spill your blood and receive the spirit. For the saints gave blood and received the spirit of grace. As many then as have taken upon your soldiers the good yoke of Christ with divine longing and prefer to practice stillness, living the angelic life while in the body. Read and embrace this sacred book, for it is a manual containing every ascetical lesson. It clearly teaches and explains how to understand the temptations of the enemy and how to exactly discern the various passions. It teaches about noetic prayer, spiritual ascent, and every contemplative and active virtue. By putting the things written here into practice and receiving the pledge of the future life here and now in a palpable way, through the indwelling grace of the paraclete in the heart, may you assuredly receive that heavenly and inexpressible kingdom of the King of all, Christ our God, becoming heirs and members by his grace, praising him without ceasing, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, 
so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Mark 11, verses 24 to 25. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. By an anonymous and hopeless Hagiarite. Discourse 1. Concerning noetic prayer of the heart and how it completely destroys and scourges the demons. Bless, Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ says in his divine and sacred gospel, He who believes in me, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Whoever then wants this living water of the Holy Spirit to well up from his heart, as from an ever-flowing spring, let him work to acquire within his heart the noetic prayer of the heart. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, which should be said one time with every breath. But he who wishes to establish this prayer permanently in his heart must first listen to the preparation he must do, and then let him hear the way he should practice it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly King, who is pure and beyond all purity, does not simply and by chance enter into a heart that is imprudent, unprepared, and filthy. For it is said, God does not enter an imprudent heart, but if he does enter, he departs quickly. He does, however, enter a prudent, prepared, and pure heart. The prophet David speaks about this preparation. My heart is ready, O God, my heart is ready. I will sing and chant in my glory. He first says, my heart is ready, and then says, I will sing and chant in my glory. This shows that someone must first prepare his heart and make it pure to receive Christ. And then having received Christ in his heart, he can say the prayer and ceaselessly meditate within his heart, rejoicing and being glad, just as the apostle says, singing and chanting in our heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19 The preparation of the heart consists of the following, constant fasting, countless hardships of the body, and extreme humility. Constant fasting cleanses the body of the faster from the working and substance of evil desire, while bodily hardship mortifies and deadens the unruly surges of the flesh. Extreme humility brings the prayer to the person, and it becomes for him in some way a proclamation. For just as the morning star indicates, proclaims, and shows us that in a little while the bright sun will rise and illuminate the entire world with its rays, so also does humility announce to the one prepared the message of the good news of consolation and informs him that now the prayer will enter his heart. And when the prayer comes, it illumines the soul, the heart, and the intellect with its luminous and bright rays, which spiritually come forth from the name of Christ. When the intellect is illumined, then a man is able to discern between what is beneficial and harmful to the soul. And just as a person walking at night is able to see the road and not get lost on account of the physical light, likewise the person whose intellect has been illumined by the spiritual light, Christ, discriminates between the true and unerring path which saves him and brings him to Christ, from the false and deceptive road, which instead leads him to perdition and the devil. Now, when someone has prepared himself, as we have said, 
or has prepared himself to an even greater degree through greater austerities, and has deadened his passions through asceticism, then let him collect his intellect from all outward distractions and exterior things. Inclining his head toward his chest, let him search for the center of his chest, and placing all his attention at that center like a sleepless and skilled watchman and marksman, let him begin the prayer with a little effort and contrition, without enunciating the words and without moving the tongue. Rather, he should say the prayer from the depths of his heart, as it is written, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Furthermore, let him restrain his breath a little as, as he is saying the prayer. During that time, the intellect should not depart at all from the place where the prayer is being said. And when the place where the prayer is being said begins to get warm and heat up, let him begin to say it with greater fervor. As it is said, they shall go from strength to strength. After repeating the prayer in this fashion many times, the chest will begin to ache inside at the spot where the prayer is being said, and the prayer will begin to boil up within the heart, that is to say, within the depths of the person, and divine and spiritual conceptual images will begin to well up as if from an ever-flowing spring. From this sign it becomes obvious that Christ has come to dwell in the heart. As Christ himself says in his divine and sacred gospel, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18.20 That is, where these three, the heart, the intellect, and the attention, are gathered together, and meditate upon my name with reverence, there also am I among them. The Savior also says, My Father and I will come to him and make our home with him. For this reason the prayer is able to be said from here on with ease, because just as iron that has been well heated by fire is easy to work with, and just as a man who wishes to light a furnace cannot fire it up all at once, but must slowly warm it up until it catches fire, and only then can logs be added to the furnace for it to burn, so also is it with the heart of man. For when his heart is set ablaze by the fire of the Holy Spirit, he then says the prayer with great fervor, warmth, and ease. When such fervent and compunctionate prayer has ceased, a person comes to himself and understands himself very well. That is, he considers the thoughts and memories he had prior to his experiencing the contrition of heart produced by prayer and realizes they were all snares, thorns, goads, and contrivances of the devil. He realizes all this very well by the following. As soon as a person begins to compress his heart with the forceful prayer, the impure and arrogant thoughts, which at first caused the person to justify himself and think himself to be so successful and so great, immediately leave and are dispersed like smoke. Then that which was spoken is fulfilled in him, I saw the ungodly greatly exalted and lifting himself up like the cedars of Lebanon. And I passed by, and behold, he was not. And I sought for him, but his place was not found. And when the false and imaginary self-justification completely leaves and vanishes from the heart, the person then sees himself naked, not only of every virtue, but he sees himself as a sinner and a wretch like the publican. This is also shown from the parable of Christ about the publican and the Pharisee. 
For inasmuch as a person's heart is not made contrite by the prayer, the more he justifies himself and believes himself to be righteous and holy, just as the Pharisee thought himself to be. But when his heart is crushed by the sighs produced by the prayer, his heart is humbled and he sees himself as the publican. Furthermore, a person who has an uncircumcised and self-justified heart does not feel any compunction or genuine reverence for God and divine things upon entering a church, and no heavenly eros comes to him. He stands there in body alone, like a fruitless branch that should be cut off and thrown into the fire, as it is said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The prayer of such a person arises from a heart completely bereft of warmth, and it is spoken in word alone and with a cold intellect. For this reason, such a prayer becomes his condemnation, as it happened with the Pharisee. The person, however, who has a crushed and humbled heart on account of the force of the prayer, as soon as he enters a church, he is immediately arrested and surrounded by a true and vibrant reverence for God and divine things. The divine reverence envelops him so much that he himself recognizes its energy. On account of his joy, it seems to him, and he is convinced of it, that he is no longer standing in an earthly church, but that he has entered the upper Jerusalem, and that he is in that glory where the supremely praised and glorified king is hymned by myriads upon myriads of divine angels. Then, on account of his joy and reverence, hot tears stream from his eyes like rivers, and they cleanse him from every sin, just as it is said, You shall wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. After experiencing this divine reverence, yet another grace comes to visit and envelop him. That is, after the tears, another divine consolation comes, which is not physically perceived, but is spiritually and clearly experienced. The person sees it with his spiritual eyes and understands that it descends from above, from heaven, as light dew upon his head, like the dew of the prophet Gideon. From his head it pours down over his entire body and anoints him, that is, it sanctifies him. This is why the scripture says, Blessed is God who pours out his grace upon his priests as myrrh upon the head, which runs down to the hem of his garment. From this his entire body becomes very light and full of every spiritual comfort and consolation. Then he receives a sort of assurance from this grace that he has become a friend of God, And he says together with the prophet, You shall make me to hear joy and gladness. My bones that were humbled shall greatly rejoice. That is to say, I thank you, Lord, for making me to understand by this sign of your grace that you have completely forgiven all of my sins and have comforted me, your lowly servant. My sin had brought me so low that I was continually at the edge of the abyss and my bones trembled at the fear of hell. Still more words of the Holy Scripture come to the person's mouth at that hour, words that reveal that God received his repentance and his prayer, as it says, a crushed spirit, a crushed and humbled heart God will not despise. He not only enjoys these thoughts, but even more divine and heavenly conceptions proceed from his heart. Since the illumination of noetic prayer destroyed and dispersed the dark cloud of sin, 
He then meditates upon the fittingness of the sacred saying. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he who believes in me out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. For the heart of man boils on account of the divine conceptual images, and he converses in parables, as it is said, I shall open my mouth in parables. I shall speak of hidden things from of old. In that hour his heart is filled with fire because it has become full of the fire about which Christ spoke. I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it were already kindled. In that hour the heavenly man, being ignited by the energy of the Holy Spirit, decides within himself to absolutely and unswervingly keep all the commandments of Christ. As the prophet King David says, I swore and confirmed that I would keep the judgments of your righteousness. Such living and fervent energy of divine eros is given to him in accordance with the measure of his struggle during prayer. If someone prays in this manner for half an hour, then the energy of the prayer of the heart also remains for about half an hour a day, or at the most for an entire day, but no longer. This is because just as when a blacksmith removes iron from the furnace, the iron resembles and burns like the fire itself. But after being removed from the fire for a while, it begins to lose its heat and return to its natural coldness and appearance. So also the man who says the prayer with force and contrition is set ablaze by the energy of the Holy Spirit and the living water of divine conceptual images wells up from his heart. But if he stops saying the prayer, then the living water of divine conceptual images also stops flowing. This happens by God's dispensation, so that man may not neglect the prayer, thinking he no longer needs to pray in the manner we have spoken about, and so that he may not fall back into his original sinful passions, or even into greater or worse ones. Wherefore the Lord says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. For this reason, then, man must always pray, and his prayer must be unceasing, just as the Apostle Paul exhorts us, pray without ceasing so that you may not fall into temptation. One should pray constantly, but not always in the way described above, with contrition of heart and force, for this is almost impossible. But one should indeed pray constantly, even if in different ways at different times. If, for example, someone is praying forcefully and with contrition of heart, and his chest begins to ache inside so much that he can't take it anymore, let him then pray with less force, and in a still, moderate, and restful manner until the inner wounded place of the chest has healed and recovered. Once healed and recovered, let a person resume the struggle of his contrite prayer of the heart as before with force. Let the intellect always be attentive and constantly guard the heart against the assaults of the devil. And when the devil launches an attack, let the intellect become aroused and let it powerfully crush the heart with the prayer until the heart aches. Then the satanic attack will immediately be gone and disappear like a cloud blown away by the wind. 
It is impossible for man to drive out and eradicate the devil's assaults from the heart except by the contrite prayer of the heart. If man neglects this prayer, he is in danger of spiritual death, as we have said. This is made plain by what the Holy Church of Christ chants. If the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the sinner appear? Just as our relentless and merciful enemy, the devil, fights against us in a multitude of ways even until the very hour of our death, so also let us fight him with the name of Christ until our final breath. Flog your enemies with the name of Jesus, for there is no stronger weapon in heaven and on earth. St. John Climacus. To continue. Learn, O reader, from a vision of one of the fathers, how this manner of prayer drives away the passions and demons from our heart and destroys them. While a certain brother was praying in his cell with contrition and pain of heart, sighing each time he said the prayer, he was caught up in ecstasy and beheld an innumerable multitude of demons. Of the demons, some looked like dogs, others looked like wild donkeys, others like goats, others like foxes, and still others looked like beasts of other types. This means that the passions of men are many and varied. The demons covered a large amount of space on account of their number, because each order of demons contained a numerous amount. When the brother saw them, he was not disturbed in the least. Rather, taking courage and being full of faith in the Master Christ, with the prayer boiling inside of him, and his heart being like a flame of fire, it seemed to him that he rushed at the demons like a roaring lion in order to fight them, not with physical weapons, but with invisible and invincible weapons, with the name of the Lord. Coming before them, he began to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me from the depths of his heart. So much did he force his heart with the name of Christ that it felt like his heart would be torn and broken away from its place. As he said the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. One time in this fashion, it seemed to him as if he grabbed a demon and hurled it far away. Saying the prayer again powerfully, he flung another demon. Repeating this, he drove the majority of them away with the name of Christ. That is, he was freed from most of the passions by the grace of Christ. Some of the demons, however, being the stubborn and contentious creatures they are, did not move from their place, but look, looking at the brother with rage and violence in their eyes, they said, There is no way that we are leaving here, because this place is an old dwelling of ours, meaning some passions that have been around for a long time are removed with difficulty. Hearing these words, the brother became greatly upset, and from his great sorrow he discovered another way to practice noetic prayer a method very lofty and rare and difficult to find. He said that he felt like forcing his heart in an extreme manner with the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And in some way, his heart wanted to become completely prayer and one with the prayer. After this supernatural contrition of heart, from his depths, he let out a deep groan, just as the prophet David says, I roar because of the groaning of my heart. It seemed as if he was near death on account of the immense force and his extreme distress. When he had finished the heavy and deep sighing, the demons 
that had been arrogant and furious fled from him as if they were being chased away by a flaming sword. As it seems to me, the meaning of this is found in the saying of Holy Scripture, And by your sighing from the depths you bore fruit a hundredfold in labors. The deeper the sigh he gave out from within, from pain of heart, the more he drove away the tyrannical demons, and the more he drove them away, the more he produced fruit a hundredfold. After the brother had cleansed that place of all the demons, he raised his head, and behold, he saw at a distance, about a stone's throw away or so, all the demons that had been driven away, looking back to find an opportune moment to return. We interpret this as meaning that when the passions are plucked from the heart by the supernatural force of the prayer of the heart, the memory of the passions remains in the mind. But if the fear of God and the prayer do not remain with the person, the passions are resurrected and come back to life. Then the brother, wanting to drive them even from there, sat on a stool, bowed his head almost to his knees. He began to pray like the God-seer, Moses, when he had heard God say to him, Moses, Moses, why do you cry to me? While he was praying noetically in this fashion, Suddenly there came forth from the brother's mouth a fire, reaching as far as the demons and scorching them. There also came forth from the brother's mouth flaming balls, like what are commonly known as bullets, as if from a rifle. They came with such fury at the demons that many of them were completely wiped out. It was truly something at which to wonder, for those flaming bullets came out of the brother's mouth in proportion to how forcefully he said the prayer of the heart. Whenever he said the prayer powerfully, something like a great cannonballs proceeded out of his mouth, and just one of them was enough to take out many demons, even the stronger ones. But when he said the prayer with less force, small cannonballs came out, but still powerful, which struck the smaller demons. Having witnessed these things, the brother came to himself, and behold, he clearly beheld the prayer boiling in his heart, like water in a pot boiling and bubbling over a fire. Likewise, when another brother was praying noetically, he had a similar vision. In his image-producing faculty, he saw many demons, like the sand of the sea, in the form of soldiers who were rushing at him with great fury in order to blot him out from the face of the earth. He then realized that he was frightened by their violent and disturbing charge, so he quickly ran into the church, seeking help from Christ and the Panagia. As soon as he entered the church, he saw Christ and the Panagia and the icons as if they were alive, both of them sitting like a glorious king and queen on thrones of glory. Gazing at Christ, the brother saw that he was fair and beautiful, as it is written, You are more beautiful than the sons of men. In addition to this inexpressible and wondrous beauty upon his cheerful and pure divine face, he was also clothed in a glory and brilliance purer and brighter than the sun. As it says, you are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment. The brother was no longer able to gaze at Christ, just as someone cannot look at the sun a second time on account of the blurriness of his eyes. He could only bow down before him and kiss his immaculate right hand with fear and joy, as it is said, the soul rejoices and the hand trembles. 
The brother then went to the Panagia and venerated her. As he kissed her virginal and pure hand, he dared to look upon her all-holy face. The light and glory of the Panagia resembled the light and glory of Christ, as a flash of lightning resembles the light of the sun. That is to say, the glory of the Panagia was slightly less, so that the brother was able to look at her all-pure and precious face again, just as someone is able to look at lightning a second time without his eyes becoming blurry. Our Lord Jesus Christ was sitting as an infant and resting in her holy embrace, as if on a cherubic throne, and the Panagia looked at the brother with a compassionate and sweet gaze. My sweetest Jesus was so sweet and beautiful in appearance and fair in every way that he greatly adorned and glorified the Panagia by his royal position in her arms. They complemented each other so well, the pure with the pure, the blameless with the blameless, the king with the queen, the lord with the lady, the supremely praised with the supremely praised, the glorious with the glorious, the precious with the precious, the virgin with the virgin, Jesus with Mary. They complemented one another just as the scent of a rose complements its beauty. Jesus looked at the brother with great sweetness and exceeding joy. And just as someone who holds a rose in his hand and smells its fragrance cannot but rejoice at its beauty and partake of its scent, so it was with the brother. Looking at Christ and the Panagia and being looked at by them, it was impossible for him not to participate in their grace and enjoy their encouragement. Receiving courage from the Panagia's peaceful gaze, the brother said, My Panagia, my sweetest lady, mother of my Jesus, how can I escape the demons that pursue me? The lady Theotokos, the sudden deliverance of all those who come to her, said, With the name of my son and with my own name completely conquer and destroy the rebellious demons. As the brother bowed down to venerate her, it seemed as if he was taken out of the church. And on his saying from his heart, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And Theotokos and Virgin rejoice, O Mary, full of grace. The weak demons immediately departed from him. Likewise, another brother, who was also a practitioner of the noetic prayer of the heart, saw the following vision. It seemed to him that he found himself down in Tatarus, the place of all the demons. There the brother saw a mighty castle. In it was thick and palpable darkness, about which the Savior said, There is the outer darkness. Not a single ray of light is there, because it is in the depths of Hades, where the Lord Almighty has condemned the demons to live unto the ages of ages. The prophetic word speaks about that place. They shall go into the lower parts of the earth. The gates of the castle were mighty, strong, and they guarded certain black and hideous demons. Inside the castle were innumerable winged demons. Some flew out of the castle like birds. Others went in like bees into the hive. The brother was standing next to a road, but he was hunched over and his forehead touching his knees. His body had become like a bridge and his chest had become hollowed out like a hole. Being in this position, the brother began to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, from the depths of his heart with pain and force. Saying the prayer in this manner, 
With each repetition of the prayer of the heart, something like a blazing flame proceeded from his mouth that reached each demon and scorched its feet, its wings, its hands, its hair. Each scorched demon remained in its place motionless like a stump or like some immobile singed flea. When the brother repeated another prayer, he burned another demon with the flame of that prayer that reached. For the demons went in and out with great commotion and speed like the wind. Praying like this for a long time, the brother scorched many demons who became like great, a great heap in front of the gates of Hades. The demons inside Hades heard the destruction and the fiery sword of the noetic prayer that was burning them, but they did not know where it was coming from. For the name of God confused them as smoke confuses flies. Then the demons sent a message to their leader, the devil, who is called Satan. When he learned of their plight, he became very agitated, but he was scared to come out of his gates, fearing he might suffer the same fate. He slightly bent his impure and filthy head down, just enough to stick it out a bit in order to see from where the sword was striking. When he stooped down like this, the flame of the prayer of the heart struck him immediately in his dirty face and burned him. He then immediately withdrew into the castle and closed the gates. When the brother came to himself and pondered over what had happened, he rejoiced over the destruction of the demons, glorifying and thanking our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave such grace and power to those who love him with all their soul and call upon him from the depths of their heart. To him is due glory and power unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 2 That we must find a true practitioner of noetic prayer, from whom we can learn its methods and signs, and that whoever has the prayer within himself and constantly meditates upon it from the depths of the heart, with much reverence and care, understands from certain spiritual signs that his soul invisibly communes with Jesus. Also, concerning the fruit of noetic prayer. Bless, Father. For man to be liberated from the passions and uproot them from his heart, it is necessary for him to acquire noetic prayer within his heart. For if noetic prayer is not established in the priest from where the passions arise, they will not be eradicated. If the passions are not cut off from a man, then neither will the demons leave him. For the demons have a habit of gathering together where the passions are like flies gather where there is a fetid wound and a stench. And just as crows and scavengers gather where they see a corpse or smell the rot of a dead animal and devour it, so also the demons make their nest wherever they see some carnal and passionate man and spiritually devour the carnal body with its obscene desires. For this reason the prophet David said, The wicked drew near against me to eat up my flesh. Psalm 26.2 In order for someone to be liberated from the passions, however, it is necessary for him to acquire noetic prayer in his heart, as we stated above. Furthermore, in order for someone to acquire noetic prayer in his heart, he must supplicate God for this many times with humility, afflicting the body with fasting, prostrations, and other bodily and outward hardships, so that God will have compassion on him and reveal to him an unerring guide who is a mystical practitioner of noetic prayer who will instruct him accurately about the prayer. 
If, however, such a guide cannot be found, let him supplicate God for another act of dispensation, that is, for God himself to instruct him. Or if a practitioner of the prayer is found who teaches about it, but the person cannot grasp the instruction perfectly, then let him supplicate God to guide him with another sign, how to use the prayer and how to acquire it. One time, a certain brother heard someone speaking about noetic prayer. He was pierced to the heart and desired to acquire it himself. But since he could not acquire it or understand it, because noetic prayer is difficult to grasp and acquire, the brother gave himself to prayer and ceaselessly asked God to teach him how to use it and say it without being deceived. For it is impossible for those who follow their own thinking concerning the prayer without any divine instruction not to be mastered by some deception of the devil except only if someone is extremely humble and avoids the machinations of Satan by divine illumination. For this reason, the brother supplicated to God with great humility about this prayer. From the moment he heard about the prayer, he tried greatly to acquire it, but he still did not receive any sure assistance. Without me, says the Savior, you can do nothing. Seeing such desire, God sent the brother his angel while he slept in the form of a monk that he knew, whom the brother knew to be a perfect practitioner of the prayer. The angel explained the noetic prayer of the heart in this way, bearing his chest and saying from the depths of his heart, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. The angel showed the brother with exactness and precision all the signs of the noetic prayer of the heart. That is to say, when the angel spoke the prayer, the brother saw the force the angel used. He saw that from such internal force the angel sweat and spit blood and greatly troubled his heart, and that he was greatly attentive to the prayer. He also saw that the angel's face was glorious, bright, and full of God's grace because of the joy that his heart experienced from the prayer, as it says, when one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. But he also saw his face to be grieved and sorrowful on account of his ceaseless sighing, as it says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Again he saw the angel's angry and troubled face to be calmed because of the power and energy of the prayer. Another time the angel looked like he would fall to the ground on account of the extreme force with which he practiced the prayer and from great exhaustion and weakness. Yet another time the angel's heart looked like a mirror ready to shatter and about to be torn away from its place because of the great pull felt from the prayer. Finally, his body even seemed as if it were dead. The angel then said to the brother, Say the prayer in the way that you saw me saying it, and your soul will find rest. The brother saw this two and three and many times, and doing as he was instructed, his mind was set at ease. Another brother who was praying noetically, had a similar vision. He saw before him two angels who were carrying an open book called the Philokalia. Pointing with their fingers, the angels indicated to the brother the place in the Philokalia concerning noetic prayer, where it says, It is profitable for the monk to say one prayer slowly and clearly with each breath. As soon as he read this sentence, he immediately came to himself. Although this method of noetic prayer is lofty and precious, it also requires much preparation on the part of the person ready to practice it. Just as Abba Isaac says in one place, 
of his homilies. The wise Lord has deigned that this bread be found with sweat by those who seek it. And this is beneficial, so that we do not partake of it before the proper time, being indigestible and unto our death. That is, the all-wise God wants those who sweat and greatly struggle out of their love for noetic prayer to receive the gift of noetic prayer and noetic contemplation, just as one of the fathers said that he employed so much force to finally acquire the prayer within himself that he spit much blood. The fact that we must struggle to acquire noetic prayer comes from God's providential will for our good, so that we are careful not to employ it haphazardly and indiscriminately. For if we attempt it indiscriminately and without the proper preparation, we will die a spiritual death, or even a physical one, just as many have suffered in the past and even to this day. We are liable to suffer indigestion and burst, because solid food is for the perfect, not for suckling babes, according to the divine Apostle Paul. We are apt to suffer this, because the person who practices noetic prayer with the proper preparation invisibly communes with Jesus Christ each time he says the prayer from his depths, with extreme reverence and great attentiveness. He understands this from the compunction he experiences at that moment. For when he repeatedly says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, from the depths of the heart, with fervent faith, immeasurable humility, great reverence, a pure heart, living hope, and the like, compunction immediately wells up from his heart as from a spring, a sweet spring, on account of his meditating on the name of the Lord Jesus. The more one is made compunctionate from the divine name of Christ, the more the soul is watered and irrigated by the divine streams of Christ, the more fervently does the one who prays and is made compunctionate love to meditate upon Christ's name in his heart. When one reaches this, this state of noetic prayer, not only are the body's passions quieted, but so are the heart's obscene thoughts. Then a person leads a peaceful life, as if without flesh, just like the person who worthily communes in the Immaculate Mysteries lives a peaceful life the day he receives communion. He only dwells on and thinks about Christ, not wanting to hear about the world or the things of the world, because he's consumed by the eros and the love of the spotless lamb whom his soul has tasted and the Lamb is Christ. Those, however, who audaciously employ this method of noetic prayer without any preparation or guidance from an experienced spiritual father resemble those who dare to receive the immaculate mysteries of the Lord unworthily and without having gone to confession. Such unpreparedness, arrogance, and presumptions displease and anger our Lord Jesus Christ, and he then becomes indigestible for these people, and they burst. For just as Holy Communion sanctifies, enlightens, and refreshes those who commune worthily, while it condemns, scorches, darkens, and kills those who commune unworthily, so also noetic prayer brings both spiritual and bodily peace to those who fast, practice self-control, and are humble, strengthening them in the work of the Lord, while to those who are gluttonous and prideful it confuses the intellect, darkens the soul, blinds the heart, and gives them over to an imprudent intellect. And since in this way they become mindless, arrogant in their intellect, blind of heart, and darkened in their soul, they think that it is truly evil 
They think what is truly evil is good, and what is truly bitter is sweet. It follows then that they will no longer listen to or take advice from anyone, because Satan, who found a place in them on account of their arrogance, teaches them his own things and convinces them, their deceived minds, that only they have found the truth and the true and salvific path, while everyone else seems to them to be deceived. And this happens justly to them on account of their pride. Instead of gathering ripe fruit and sweet grapes from their prayer, they gather empty fruit and sour grapes because of their ignorance and haughtiness. Those, however, who practice noetic prayer with obedience, asceticism, humility, fasting, and under the guidance of holy fathers and godly-minded spiritual fathers, bear salvific fruit from noetic prayer, fruit that is lawful, ripe, good, spiritual, sweet, and blessed. This is the kind of fruit that is born from noetic prayer, and it is clearly recognized as such from the following example. A demonstration concerning this. Man is composed of body and soul. The body is physical and material, as it is written, and God formed man taking dirt from the earth. While the soul is immaterial and spiritual, as it says, and God breathed in his face the breath of life, and man became a living soul. For this reason, then, since the body comes from the earth, it loves earthly things, while the soul, which comes from the heavenly God, loves heavenly and immaterial things. However, because the soul dwells within a material and physical body, it is obstructed by the activity of the carnal appetites and cannot occupy itself with heavenly things according to its natural desire and dignity. This especially happens to the soul if man does something evil before God, thereby driving away and banishing from himself his eros for God, his love for heavenly things, and his hope for future divine enjoyment. When eros for God has departed, together with the love of heavenly things and the hope of paradise, then the lust of the world, carnal pleasure, and diabolical deception come to rule a man. In other words, he begins to live in prodigality and with spiritual indifference, having buried his conscience and darkened and blinded the eyes of his heart. Being in such a state, so spiritually far removed from heavenly matters, in order for a man to depart from the evil things which conquered him, and in order for the soul to remember the heavenly things it resembles, and in order for the mind of man to ascend from the physical to the spiritual, from the material to the immaterial, from the visible to the invisible, from the corruptible to the incorruptible, from the earthly to the heavenly, his heart must be made contrite through the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. His heart must be mixed with and united to the name of the Lord, just like flour is united with water and becomes bread from the energy of the fire that is by grace. For when someone says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, from the depths of his heart, the heart becomes full of heavenly conceptions and spiritual concerns. And when the heart is filled with such conceptions by the coming of the Holy Spirit, divine energy pro proceeds from the heart into all the person's members and senses. Then, because a person has become completely united with the grace of the prayer, whenever he sees any physical object with his bodily eyes, his mind is immediately raised from physical vision to spiritual and immaterial vision, 
without feeling any pleasure and without his heart being overcome by the beauty and enjoyment of the things physically seen. For example, if a practitioner of noetic prayer sees a handsome and a beautiful person or some other beautiful and wonderful creature of God, his soul takes this opportunity to imagine and contemplate the beauty of the heavenly and immaterial creations of God. Such a person says to himself, or better yet, the soul says to the person, If, O man, God made these physical creatures, which are here today and gone tomorrow, so beautiful and wonderful, and which delight those who look upon them and enjoy them, how much more beautiful are the heavenly and eternal good things of paradise, which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, which things God has prepared for his servants from the foundation of the world. From there he is lifted up to an even higher spiritual vision, and his mind thinks upon God himself, who is the blessed and ultimate desire. And his soul says to him, If those things which are creatures of God are so precious, wonderful, and inexpressible, how much brighter and more wonderful is God, the creator and maker of such things? Likewise, whenever a practitioner of noetic prayer looks upon the stars of heaven and the moon, lightning and the shining sun, his mind is immediately enraptured in the beauty of paradise and the inexpressible brightness of God the maker and fashioner. The soul again says to the person, O lowly and small man, if these phenomena have such beauty and brightness, how much more does God, the creator of the sun, the fashioner of heaven, the maker of the stars, shine and radiate? Concerning this divine brightness, one of the fathers has said the following, a divine vision. A certain monk asked God to show him the glory and brightness of the saints. He was deemed worthy to see that which he desired in the following manner. An angel came to him and said, Whoever asks, receives, and whoever seeks, finds, and whoever knocks, it is opened unto him. Then the right spiritual eye of his soul opened and saw the divine glory and inexpressible joy enjoyed in heaven by all the saints. The monk said that he saw all the saints in such glory and blessedness that each saint shone as brightly as the sun, and all of them were chanting Alleluia in a most sweet voice. If the sun, which is a singular bright object, shines on the entire world here below and illuminates it, think about how much brighter, radiant, luminescent, and glorious it is in heaven, where there are thousands and ten thousands of saints, each one of them shining and radiating like the sun. The same monk said that all the saints receive their brightness from God's brightness, for only a single ray of God's radiance is as bright as the entire sun. Now consider by yourself, O reader, as much as your limited and small mind can grasp, what the light of the Godhead must be like, and what the inexpressible and indescribable glory of the invisible God is, who is our Lord and incomprehensible creator and fashioner. Likewise, when a practitioner of noetic prayer smells a rose or some other fragrant thing, or when he observes some flower of the field, his mind is immediately brought like lightning to the inexpressible scent exuded by the fragrant flowers of paradise. When he thinks about and meditates on them, his face and beard become drenched with tears. And the more he sighs from the depths of his heart, the more he ascends 
and distances himself from earthly things. He sighs not only because he longs to enjoy the heavenly good things of paradise, but also because he remembers what sort of torment those who are deprived of such things will experience, since it is a fact that a person will either be with God in heaven or with the devil in the nether regions. The same monk said that after he saw the wondrous glory of the saints, he also saw the terrible punishment of those in hell. He said that when the heavenly vision of glory, of divine glory, had ceased, as he closed the right eye of his soul, immediately his left spiritual eye opened, with which he saw hell like a great sea, and its depth was like the distance between heaven and earth. The sea of hell was most dark and dense, and the damned were immersed in it, like beans boiling in a pot. Hell boiled like water, at times raising one of the damned above the surface, and at other times sucking one down. Sometimes a hand was visible, sometimes a head, and at other times a leg. One of them shouted, Woe is me! Woe is me! in a pitiful voice. Another cursed and blasphemed the person who was the cause of his damnation. There was such animosity and hatred between them that if they could get a hold of each other, they would have torn one another apart with their teeth like fighting dogs. The fornicator was furious at the woman with whom he fornicated because she was the cause of his damnation. And the fornicatress was enraged and cursed at him because he was the cause of her damnation. Parents there were stirred with extreme crazed hate toward their children because wanting so much to make their children rich and comfortable during their earthly life, the parents were damned. And the children were furious with their parents because they let them do whatever they wished and did not teach them the fear of the Lord. In brief, in hell there was great abnormality, disorder, and unbearable stench. Thinking about such things, the good struggler sighs from his depths, and the more he sighs, the higher he is raised from the earthly to the heavenly. For this reason, then, he not only avoids the trap set by the devil, but he also becomes more fervent in spiritual and heavenly matters. Then one is called dispassionate, and he is in truth, because no diabolical passion has a place in him. But the person who does not practice the work of noetic prayer with a contrite heart is not like this. When he sees a beautiful face or some other luxurious and beautiful thing of this earth, his heart immediately experiences pleasure. His mind is immediately enslaved by it, like a fish caught by a hook. And he hurriedly runs to enjoy it, like a dog rushes to the meat market, as it said, and he desired to fill his stomach with the husks that the swine ate. May we be saved from such things by the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory and power under the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 3. How someone can achieve the extreme and perfect method of noetic prayer, and how someone can uproot and drive away from himself the demons of cowardice that greatly frighten him at night when he wants to pray, or when he wants to go by himself at midnight to some cave or some deserted place in order to pray quietly. Bless, Father. O true practitioner of noetic prayer, if you wish to reach the true and lofty heights of noetic prayer, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. Many times at night, 
you have gone by yourself to inaccessible places, places that are wild, fearful, and dark, which you knew to be nests and dwelling places of the demons. However, before you go to such places, you must properly prepare yourself. Your conscience should be quiet and at peace, so that some hidden sin does not disturb you. You ought to have gone to confession recently and partaken of the Lord's body and blood. In brief, you should be prepared in every way and armed with the weapons of the Holy Spirit. As you begin to go on your way by yourself at night, frequently mark yourself with the sign of the precious and all-powerful cross, thinking that you are going to a great war, as in truth you are. A war so great that you will not see the light of the sun and that you will certainly die that very night fighting the wild and merciless demons of cowardice. You will either conquer them with the invisible power of the name of the Lord and drive them away from their home and thus return victorious, or you will die in that spiritual war instead of returning victorious. Wherefore, beloved, having prepared yourself in the manner stated above, proceed to the spiritual war, bearing these things in mind. As you go, the demons will know that you are coming to fight against them with the name of the Lord, and therefore they will come to meet you invisibly with their usual wickedness. At first, in order to scare you away, they will frighten you so much that you will break out in a cold sweat and begin to tremble. However, if you regard their attacks as nothing, those evil creatures will transform their violence and scarce tactics into flattery and they will try in some way to convince you to turn back. They will offer crafty suggestions and advice to you, saying, O man of God, we see that you are naive, and for this reason you don't know what is good for you. So you are going to that place at night without even worrying about your life, and with no concern that you might be condemned on account of your unpreparedness. If you were to die this night, could it be that you don't even know who we are, and you are coming to fight us? Listen to us then, O man, and turn back quickly before we become angry, and you really feel our great power. Practice stillness in your cell and struggle there in order to please God, doing this and that virtue. Knowing also this, that if you were to die here and now fighting us, then the beasts would eat you, so that you would have no funeral and no funeral hymns would be sung for you. These are the kinds of things they will suggest to you, among others, after attempting to instill cowardice and fear in you, as if they were helping you make better progress and encouraging you to conduct yourself in a safer manner. You, however, beloved servant of the Lord, do not listen to their advice or their supposed concern for you, for it is written, Let not the oil of the sinner anoint my head. For this reason, make the sign of the cross frequently and say without ceasing, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me and continue on your way against them, as if you were deaf and mute, keeping your mouth closed. For if you heed their first assault and turn back to leave, know that you will be in great danger. As soon as you turn to leave, the demons will appear in your mind, as pursuing you like a great horde of thieves with drawn swords. Or they will seem to be roaring at you, like savage and wild beasts, ready to devour you whole and completely alive. Therefore, you will be doubly in danger, both bodily and spiritually. You will be in bodily danger because fleeing in such haste on account of your fear or on account of the demons pursuing you or because of the darkness of night or because of your disturbed 
and distracted mind. You might trip and fall and break something. You will be in spiritual danger because on account of your fleeing from them, the demons will gain power over you. For you were not able to oppose them. And for this reason, they will become stronger against you. And you will go insane, becoming afraid of your own shadow. For this reason, soldier of Christ, since you began such a spiritual and invisible war, be vigilant and on your guard as much as possible, so that the crafty demons do not trip you up with any wicked contrivance. Continuing on your way against them, when such attacks meet you, establish your heart right away with the remembrance of God, wholeheartedly believing that God will be invisibly present in the invisible war and will see your struggle. By remembering God, you will immediately be filled with comfort and your heart will rejoice. For it says, I remembered God and was glad. Then establish your terrified body with stillness and bending down a bit toward the ground, compel your heart to say the prayer from the depths of your heart five or ten times. Afterwards, stand up and straightway continue on at peace to that place from which you know the demon's flaming arrows are coming like in defatigable and relentless waves. I mean this by their attacks of fear. Continuing on your way against them, again frequently marking yourself with the sign of the precious and life-giving cross. Be very careful not to open your mouth and scream on account of your fear, like some infant crying for help, but keeping your mouth closed and silently and repeatedly saying with great attention, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. With each breath, Go with courage and fearlessness against your enemies. Seeing you coming at them in this manner, they will again trouble your mind with tons of attacks of all sorts and with a variety of thoughts. They will attack you so greatly that you will feel the war going on inside of you, as if it were physical. For these demons of fear will come at you like wild oxen and fearsome bulls, striking you from all sides with their horns and trampling you down with their hoofs. You, however, my beloved, make your heart firm at that moment with the fear of God, saying to yourself, Now my life will end, for either the demons will kill me, or I will die on account of the forcefulness of the prayer. If the demons defeat me and kill me, God will take care of my soul. But if I die on account of the forcefulness of the prayer, God will place my soul in peace, in that place where the light of his face reigns, because he will consider such a death as a martyrdom. After you have established yourself in this way, beloved, begin to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me from the depths of your heart. Saying this prayer from the depths of your heart, you will descend from the depths of the prayer of the heart to an even deeper depth. The more you see the threats of the demons near you, the more you should push yourself to say the prayer. Forcing your heart in this way, the more you will approach the depths of the prayer of the heart where you will find the most extreme and perfect method of noetic prayer. In truth, when one of the fathers was, was asked about from where he learned noetic prayer, he said he learned it from the demons. And when another father was asked about this same subject, he said that he learned it from beardless youths. These words might seem strange, but they are not. The first, by forcing his heart with the prayer in order to drive away approaching demons, advanced in the prayer so much that he discovered the perfect method of the prayer. So the demons were the cause of this discovery, and he rightly said that he learned the prayer from the demons. The other, seeing beardless youths, 
feared that his heart might become impure from some evil thought and a wicked consent of the heart. And so he forced his heart in the prayer so much that he too found the perfect method of the noetic prayer of the heart. For this reason, then, both of them answered correctly. But let us now return to the main subject of our discourse. Having found the perfect method of the noetic prayer of the heart, beloved, force your heart again to such an extent that the prayer becomes etched on the heart, as if on a bronze or stony plaque. Continue in this fashion until all the energy of the demons of cowardice who war so greatly against you are driven away. Then you shall clearly see the power of the prayer, for not only will their wild intimidations disappear together with the various fantasies and their imaginary forms, but the light and rays of your Lord Jesus Christ will shine in your soul. Then you will be completely full of joy, comforted, glad, and fearless, as if you were surrounded by your dearest friends and trusted guards and protectors. This is in truth how things are. Divine angels will invisibly come to you in order to comfort you, protect you, and crown you because of the victorious trophy you took up and raised against your enemies. And you too shall chant with immeasurable joy with the prophet David and say, The Lord is my light and my Savior, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defender of my life, whom shall I dread? When the wicked drew near against me to eat up my flesh, those who afflict me and are my enemies, they weakened and fell. Though an army should array itself against me, my heart shall not be afraid. Though war should rise up against me, in this shall I hope. Psalm 26. In other words, those who surrounded your body and wanted to devour it, that is, kill it, and who afflicted you were repelled and weakened, and they failed to achieve their goal on account of the light of noetic prayer, just as the darkness of night is driven away by the light of day. From the hour you conquer your enemies with the powerful name of the Lord, you will begin to love that place which you so dreaded and feared at first. And from that time forward, whenever you think about that place or see it, your heart will dance with joy, and your soul will desire to go there often in order to pray to God. One of the fathers spoke about this subject in the following way. A certain brother constantly struggled in noetic prayer in order to find the perfect and extreme way of practicing it, but he was unsuccessful. This is because the extreme method of noetic prayer is impossible to be found without great struggle and temptation. For this reason, the brother attempted various kinds of struggles many times, most often at midnight when the rest of the brothers were sleeping. Sometimes he would go off by himself at night to a place far removed from people. At that place he would incline his heart toward his chest and pray noetically from the depths of his heart, alone with God alone. Repeating this many times by himself at night and in desert places, the demons grew angry and wanted to frighten him so that he would no longer pray in this wise, since they did not like what he was doing. They scared him abruptly with such fright that the brother was on the verge of death on account of the sudden fear and extreme terror. As time passed, his fear increased and grew in intensity because the demons of cowardice appeared in the mind and fantasy of the brother as if they were a great number charging at him, fully armed, ready to blot him off the face of the earth. In such a state of need, having no human help, he gathered his intellect even more forcefully into his heart in noetic prayer. Inclining his head toward his chest, he began to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. So powerfully, so forcefully, so intensely, 
and so attentively that he had never in all his life pushed his heart so hard with the prayer. When the spiritual wild and fearful waves of the demons of cowardice struck his mind with fear, his body with trembling and his intellect with fright, an incredible fantastical noise, he forced his heart in a supranatural way with the prayer, saying it with extreme watchfulness and attention. What a wonder it would have been for someone to witness such a spiritual battle and physical struggle, for that brother pushed himself in the work of the prayer of the heart to the point of death. By losing his own strength completely, he gained power from on high. The grace of God visited him, which completely dispelled and destroyed the demons and their various illusions, while at the same time it wonderfully comforted him and doubly gladdened him. For first of all, by the force of the prayer of the heart, he discovered the extreme and perfect method of noetic prayer. And secondly, he received great joy, consolation, and fearlessness, as if an assembly of angels surrounded him. This, in truth, is what really happened. For it says, The angel of the Lord shall encamp around those who fear him, and he will deliver him them. To our God belong glory, power, praise, and worship unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 4 that whoever wishes to be deemed worthy of the gift of noetic prayer must ask God for it with a fervent heart, living a noble, pure, blameless, and toilsome life. And he should continue his supplication to God even if he does not receive it quickly, until he does receive it from the Father of lights. For God oftentimes does not immediately give what one asks for in order for the supplicant's enduring patience to be manifested, and thus he will become even more fervent than before. Bless Father. The Lord said, Narrow and difficult is the way which leads to the kingdom of heaven. This narrow and difficult road is none other than the toilsome and ascetic godly life that one lives voluntarily in this world for the sake of the heavenly kingdom. Such a life gives birth to the mortification of the passions. The mortification of the passions give birth to the banishment of thoughts about the world and engenders enmity toward the devil. When someone mortifies his passions by the ascetic life, a divine ray shines in his heart and banishes all thoughts about the world and arouses him to hate the devil and fight against him. The banishments of thoughts about the world and the enmity and animosity toward the devil give birth to hope and confidence in God. Wherefore, from then on a man seeks help from God to conquer the devil. Indeed, he seeks his incessant help because just as the devil never ceases to war against man, even to the very hour of his death, so also does man seek from God that strength and help that will be able enable him always to resist all the attacks of the devil and to be kept unharmed from his relentless, stealthy, fiery, and terrible arrows. God bestows his incessant help upon man in accordance with his plea. For the gospel says, Ask, and it will be given unto you. The incessant help that man seeks from God so that he can always defeat the sleepless devil is none other than the sleepless and relentless repetition of the noetic prayer of the heart. When the Almighty Lord bestows this prayer upon man, it is sown in his pure heart, just as a falling seed is sown in good and fertile soil. This seed sweetens the intellect, warms the heart, and comforts the soul by divine grace. From then on the soul begins to bear fruit from noetic prayer, thirtyfold, then sixtyfold, and finally a hundredfold. 
Noetic prayer is not given to man in all its perfection right away, just as the grace of the Holy Spirit was not given all at once to the holy apostles. Rather, it was given to them a little at first, as when Christ told them prior to his passion and crucifixion, Behold, I give you authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. The second time grace was bestowed on them in a greater measure, when Christ breathed on them after the resurrection, and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And the third time they received the grace of the Holy Spirit completely, when the Spirit himself actually descended from heaven and came upon the heads of the holy apostles in the form of fiery tongues on the day of Pentecost. In this same way, God grants the grace of noetic prayer to man. First, man is given a little dose of noetic prayer in order to be exercised and prepared to receive a greater dose. And then by being given a greater amount and dose, he is exercised and prepared to receive the perfect gift of noetic prayer. For when man attains to the degrees of fulfilling the gospel of Jesus Christ and is able to render to God the worthy fruit of the divine gift, as it says, who yields his fruit in due season, then God gives him the full dose and perfect gift of noetic prayer. But this perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights, being so lofty and precious, also requires a noble and honorable life, since like attracts like. Let us verify and clarify this by taking a look at a saint as an example. St. Maximus Casocalivus had a desire to learn noetic prayer, so he incessantly asked the Panagia to grant him this gift. And so God granted him that which he desired, as it is written, May the Lord grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. The Lady Theotokos appeared to him and said, Ascend, Maximus, to the peak of Athos in order to receive the gift of noetic prayer. The saint, therefore, climbed to the peak of Manathos and received that which he desired. He ascended, but just how did he ascend? He went up the mountain hungry, thirsty, tired, physically worn out, and barefoot. He ascended with fervent faith, extreme humility, great reverence, a pure heart and mind, living faith and a warm heart. He reached the top and wet the floor of the chapel with many warm tears. He ascended, but he did not receive that which he desired right away. So he went back down to the church of the Panagia, saddened, but not hopeless, and he climbed back up the mountain with even greater faith and reverence. He ascended with greater humility, with greater supplication, and even more fervor. He had greater hunger and thirst of both body and soul, and he shed a greater amount of even warmer tears. He had decided that if he was not deemed worthy to receive that which he so desired, he would never come down from the peak of Athos, neither to eat, nor to drink, nor to sleep at all, or give any rest to his eyes. As it says, Holy and ascetic Father, you gave no sleep to your eyes, nor any rest to your eyelids, until your soul and body were liberated from the passions. For Christ came with the Father and dwelt in you. These were only the external and physical struggles of the ascetic saint. Concerning the spiritual struggles against the invisible demons, however, who could relate them? For when the demons realized that the saint was about to receive the gift of noetic prayer, they gathered nearly all the orders of the demons in order to disturb him and frighten the saint, 
hoping that he would flee on account of his fear and achieve nothing. They appeared to him as a great multitude charging at him while screaming and making a great ruckus. And many other frightening types of things appeared in the mind of the holy ascetic, trying to scare him off. He, however, remained unshaken, like an immovable pillar, until he received that which he desired. The lady Theotokos descended upon the peak of Athos, carrying in her holy embrace the sweet infant Jesus, and she was surrounded by an innumerable multitude of angels, while the peak of Athos appeared to the ascetic father wider than the heavens. It appeared that way because she who is more spacious than the heavens descended upon it with her son and her God, who cannot be contained by the heavens. When the saint beheld with his very eyes the Lady Theotokos, he immediately bowed to the ground and made three prostrations, saying with each one, Theotokos and Virgin, rejoice, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, for you have given birth to the Savior of our souls. Then the mother of Emmanuel gave him holy bread with her immaculate hand, which the saintly ascetic immediately consumed with reverence. The lady Theotokos disappeared suddenly, while he, as soon as he ate the holy bread, observed the noetic prayer boiling up within his heart. From that moment on, whether awake or asleep, the prayer boiled within his heart and sweetened his soul. It warmed his heart and enlightened his spiritual eyes. Because he became enlightened, and although it was a cloudy and dark night, he was able to see so clearly with his illumined eyes as if the sun were shining at midday. And he often flew in the air like an eagle. These things happened to St. Maximus Kafsokalifis. But let us resume our discourse. The story mentioned above reveals that the gift of noetic prayer is given to the person who ascends the peak of Athos, that is to say, to the person who lives a noble, blameless, and pure life and who toils with his body without rest, but who is at peace and rests in his soul and lives a life that exalts his intellect to heaven, just as the peak of Athos reaches into the clouds. Not only do the pure angels and the patroness of purity, their queen and the mother of Christ, love this noble and heavenly life, but so also does the heavenly and incomprehensible Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason he plants in the heart of the struggler the plant of noetic prayer, which will grow and spread like the cedars of Lebanon when watered by the ever-flowing streams of tears. The prayer, with its refreshing air of divine thoughts, will cool all who are burned by sin, and it will satisfy with its bright and luscious fruit those who hunger on account of the divine work. You shall eat, it says, the fruits of your labor. You are blessed, and it shall be well with you. In other words, because of the pain, labor, agony, and other struggles you underwent, night and day, fighting your passions until they were uprooted from your heart, so that the plant of the noetic prayer, of noetic meditation, of noetic and spiritual contemplation, could be planted in your heart because of all these things, I say, fruit that is heavenly, incorruptible, noetic, eternal, spiritual, and sweeter than honey is being prepared in your soul fruit that will be greater in number than the sands of the sea. For who, whoever eats of this fruit is blessed and happy, for he will never be hungry unto the ages. He will live in Christ, and Christ will live in him. To him be the glory and the power forever. Amen.
Discourse 5, Concerning Extreme and Protracted Force of the Prayer of the Heart, from which is born sharp pain within man, which in turn gives birth to ever-flowing tears, and from these come the delight and consolation of the Holy Spirit to the soul. Also concerning how a person spits blood until he uproots Satan and all his armies from his heart. Bless, Father. O monk, you who deal in the priceless and heavenly trade of salvation with your divine and shining tears. When you are deprived of such salvific and holy tears, and your mind is blinded and clouded over by the thick fog of insensitivity and indifference which pours over your soul and traps your intellect in the dark shadow of death, when you suffer these things, do not look for any other treatment for your soul or any other means of driving out from your intellect the thick fog of indifference and freeing your enslaved intellect from the chains of your spiritual blindness, but search as much as you can for the tears that you lost. For only tears will enlighten your mind, illuminate your soul, arouse your heart, make you more fervent in the divine work, and submit your body to the will of your soul. Tears are produced and begotten by many and varied virtues, but at the same time, and in a wondrous manner, they are also produced and gush forth from the excessive force of the prayer of the heart. For when the prayer of the heart is said with force, it does not hesitate to give tears to the body and the soul in order to be cleansed by them and thus become whiter than snow. You shall wash me, it says, and I will be made whiter than snow. But you might reply to me and say, Many times I forced my heart with the prayer, but saw not a single tear. Yes, I believe that you forced your heart with the prayer. But how much did you force it? For one kind of force differs from another, just as there are different kinds of virtues, different kinds of skills, different kinds of animals, and different kinds of people. If you do not receive tears when you force your heart with the prayer, know that you have not attained pain of heart. You have not yet reached the point of wounding your heart so much that the place where the prayer is being said aches with a sharp pain, as if that place of the chest were being stabbed with a sharp knife. And for this reason you saw no tear. For just as there is a difference between the person who prays from the depths of his heart and the person who does not pray from the depths of his heart, so also there is a difference between the person who prays with pain of heart, saying the prayer from the center of the pain, and the person who prays simply from his heart, without pain of heart, and without wounding the heart, and without the inner knife of the chest. Let the reader understand what he reads, and let him who is able to receive these things receive them, for not everyone comprehends these words. My witness that I do not lie is the eye of God that sees the hidden things and searches the reins and the heart. Pain of heart exists where there is the extreme inner force of the prayer, which, like a knife, cuts the inner chest of the struggler into pieces. This is what swiftly gives birth to compunction. At times, tears pour forth as from a faucet and not only wet the man's face, but also his clothes and the ground. At other times, the tears only moisten the eyes, and at other times, the mind and the heart are inwardly refreshed as the earth's surface is refreshed in springtime by the cool dew that comes down at night. But when the tears cease, if the pain inside you remains strong and the wound is still open, without the tension of the pains being relieved, without the wounds being healed, and without the hearts immediately recovering, you will again be able to acquire tears when you want to. 
This is because the well from which they sprout and pour out is still open and not sealed. It still gushes and has not gone dry. Other times you can renew your tears using the same laborious prayer. For by saying the prayer again with force, with pain, and with attentiveness, you will come to understand that together with the prayer, tears arise out of the same place from where the prayer arises. For as soon as you force your heart with the prayer, your inner heart and eyes are filled with compunction. At other times, when the pain in your heart is fresh, you revive compunction through contemplation with your intellect. For since your intellect is still pure, bright, and noble, it is stretched towards the beautiful things of heaven, the incorruptible creations, the spiritual orders of angels, the glorification of God, the worship of the Creator, the wonder of His creations, the amazement of His majesty, and the incomprehensibility of His Godhead. Vividly meditating on these things, the pure and clear intellect is inexpressibly sweetened. Thus compunction is renewed in your heart and your eyes shed even more tears than before. And falling down, you who labor for your salvation with tears, you will not get up again until you are sated with weeping and until the holy angel of spiritual consolation and joy raises you up. After the shedding of tears, the insensitivity your soul has suffered departs. The hopelessness you felt for your salvation is banished. Irreverence is driven away. Indifference disappears. The lack of faith in your heart is dissolved, and your mind becomes as clear as the sky after it has rained. God granted you these tears as a small consolation, as a pledge of the heavenly kingdom, because you did not offer him a sacrifice of whole burnt offerings, which he does not desire, as it says, you will not be pleased with whole burnt offerings. But you offered him the sacrifice of your heart, the sacrifice of yourself, a sacrifice of your spirit, a sacrifice to God as a crushed spirit. The intense pain that has seized you and that you feel inside and the blood you spit on account of the force of the prayer of the heart are considered by God to be an acceptable sacrifice. But why do you feel pain in the center of your chest and not anywhere else? And why did the prayer interiorly cut your chest into pieces at that spot like a sharp knife? And why do you spit blood, at times cold and black and at other times warm and red? These things happen to you, beloved, because it was in that place of your chest that the blessed prayer mightily wrestled and did battle with the devil and his servants for the redemption and salvation of your soul. It was in those places that the double-edged sword of the name of Christ found Satan with his armies and cut them all into pieces. It not only cut them into pieces, but also scorched them, because the name of God is not only a double-edged sword against the devil that is against sin, but it is also a consuming fire. At first, Satan reigned there together with seven rulers, because there are seven deadly sins. But as soon as the spiritual sword of the name of Christ entered there and the force of the prayer of the heart advanced into that place, that deceitful and cowardly, tyrannical king became frightened. Both the devil and his armies were wary of being slaughtered and scorched by the fearful and unbearable name of God. It is for this reason that he fled to the inner parts of your chest and pulled a veil in front of himself in order not to be seen hiding there. The veil behind which the devil hides is found in the inner regions of the chest. It should be noted that this veil is both spiritual and physical, 
just as the tree of knowledge from which Adam ate is understood to be both spiritual and physical. And just as man is both physical and spiritual, and paradise likewise is understood to be both physical and spiritual, so also is the veil both spiritual and physical. It is something spiritual because it is the full power of Satan, and it imperceptibly rules the actions of your soul. But it is also something physical because with the aid of the inner prayer of the heart and attention, sometimes you find the place of the devil, the nest of Satan, the dwelling of Beelzebub, the throne of Lucifer, and the city of the demons. The devil does not want man to realize this fact, so that he will not seek out the prayer, and thus drive out Satan from that place, according to Gregory of Sinai and other watchful fathers. If the veil, that screen of Satan, is not something physical, how is it possible for you to feel that your inner prayer has found it? Let me put it in a simpler way. When you examine your depths by the power, wisdom, and judgment of noetic prayer, you will discover both your inner and outer self, and you will discover that it is mixed up with the passions and always inclines towards the will of the devil. This is because you do not check these things with the fear of God and the remembrance of hell. The more you draw near to God by doing his holy commandments, the more you recognize just how far you are from God, and the more your heart is purified by the prayer and your mind enlightened by ever-flowing tears, the more you see yourself as a sinner and prodigal. But why did you not see yourself in this way prior to your heart being purified and your mind enlightened? At first, you did not see yourself this way because you did not completely understand what the angels or God himself or paradise really are. Now, however, since your heart has in some way encountered these things in accordance with its level of purity, and your mind has in some way seen them in accordance with its level of enlightenment, you see yourself as worthless and as a prodigal, and you are convinced of how much purity the angels possess, and how incomprehensible, inexpressibly beautiful, and pure the Lord is. For this reason, that blessed Father, that heavenly rather than earthly man, that bodiless rather than bodily man, Simeon Metophrastes, says, I have committed fornication, adultery, pride, arrogance, insult, blasphemy, talkativeness, uncontrollable laughter, drunkenness, gluttony, overeating, hate, envy, greed, love of money, covetousness, self-love, love of glory, theft, injustice, profiteering, jealousy, slander, lawlessness. I have sullied, corrupted, and enslaved every sense and member of my body, becoming completely a workshop of the devil. For who does not commit all these things in some fashion and in some varying degrees? Certainly all of us do, because we bear and wear a body and live in the world, and we are led astray by the devil. This is why we say that the veil is the devil's vessel of evil. It is his treasury. Satan has gathered there all the seeds of evil. From there gushes forth fornication, prodigality, and sodomy. From there flows forth greed, covetousness, profiteering, theft, and injustice. From there proceeds love of pleasure, pride, conceit, and people-pleasing. From there springs hate, enmity, 
envy, and judging. From there wells up abuse, boasting, lust, and blasphemy. In brief, every evil proceeds from there, as from a filthy and putrid spring. This is made plain by what the Lord said in his sacred gospel. From the heart of man proceed fornications, murders, blasphemies, and these are what defile a man. That is, when someone does not take care to cleanse his inner heart and inner self, then his heart becomes the dwelling place and vessel of Satan, from which proceeds every evil that defiles a man and damns his soul. Do you see, beloved, how every evil comes from the heart when it has become the nest and dwelling place of Satan? That is where Satan stores all his evil seeds of wickedness and all the destructive contrivances of his trickery and evil, upon which he lies as upon some soft mattress. But when the prayer reaches that place, the home of Satan, and really shakes it up, Satan too is immediately shaken up and vexed, together with his evil angels, just as wasps are disturbed when you bother their nest. But I ask you, O monk, who by the grace of God have arrived at the prayer of your heart and made progress in it, put all of your might into the prayer of your heart in order to tear asunder the veil of Satan. For that veil is the devil's signature, the record of sin, Lucifer's written confession, where the devil has inscribed every sin. If you tear that spiritual and physical veil of the devil and of yourself by the force of the prayer of the heart, you will immediately erase all the sins that are written on it and bring to not all the effort of the devil that he's put into writing your evil deeds upon it. You can tear it using the forceful prayer, as we have said. When the forceful prayer reaches that place, you will immediately recognize that the spiritual wolf is there waiting to snatch and rip apart the spiritual lamb of the Lord, your soul, at the hour of your death, and devour all your good works. At the time when your heart feels that the ancient serpent nests there in order to poison your soul, an eagerness invisibly and wondrously appears that drives you to tear that veil of the devil with all the power of the prayer of the heart. When you recognize the activity of Satan, you'll be moved by divine zeal and strongly determined, you will say, either I will die this moment because of the extreme force of the prayer or the devil and his wiles will be banished and driven from my heart. This is how you destroy, obliterate, and tear down the devil's veil and tear it to pieces. When the invisible, <clears throat> invincible, and powerful prayer reaches the inner recesses, it drives the devil and his demons away from there. At last, it wondrously burns up that entire place together with the seeds and causes of sins and passions and then follows God's consolation. For this reason, the hymnographer says, With your immaterial fire, consume my sins and count me worthy to be filled with delight in you. This is why one spits blood from there, because that is where he did violence to himself with the prayer, in order to defeat the devil and drive him from his heart. Tell me, where can you find a braver struggle, and where does there exist more wondrous courage? All these things take place where the enemy's throne is, the boast of the tyrants. Satan sat there on an exalted throne, boasting about the intricate method of his deceptions. But when the blessed and mighty prayer of the Lord's name reached there, it overturned Satan's throne and silenced his boastings. Tell me now, 
O victorious soldier of the heavenly and immortal King, when you realize that the prayer has reached your inner recesses and when you realize that you have advanced in the prayer almost to perfection, what kind of relief do you feel in your soul after such a physical battle? For then, the wild and fierce beast of fornication no longer disturbs you, neither your mind nor your flesh, and you are no longer even aware that such a passion exists among men. The grace of the Lord that dwells in you shelters you from it and protects you so that the destructive enemy may not soil the pure vessel of yourself with its filthy lust. Then you see your body as a body dead to the dishonorable passions, but renewed and resurrected by the grace of the Lord. The inner force of the prayer of the heart oftentimes causes great exhaustion and weakness throughout your body, putting you in danger of falling to the ground like one paralyzed. Moreover, when your prayer reaches those levels of perfection, anger completely disappears from within you. And instead of anger, the sweetest peace of Christ reigns within you. Hate and enmity toward your neighbor have no place in your heart any longer because compassion and love for your brother reign there instead. You now would have yourself suffer instead of your brother. At that point, you do not understand what it is to judge someone because God opened the spiritual eyes of your heart to see the sicknesses of your own soul, that is, your own dreadful defects and the debts that you owe to God. This divine gift protects you against condemning your brothers. The small piece of wood in your eye now seems larger than the log in your brother's eye. For your brother's log and plank is either no longer seen by the evil eye of your soul, since the evil eye has been blinded, or if it is seen, you consider it as nothing. Again, we say that when you reach this degree of perfection in the prayer, pride has no place in you, not even for a moment, for it is immediately dissolved by the prayer, like frost from the warmth of the sun. Jesus, who is meek and humble, now dwells in you, and he imprints, engraves, and stamps your heart with his own seal of meekness and humility. You can no longer be prideful after seeing and realizing your own sickness, which it seems to you, if people could see your natural defects and unworthiness, they would immediately shame you and stone you, so you would disappear from the human race, so as not to pollute and damage the rest of humanity with your wickedness. All the saints had this divine gift. For this reason, one called himself and considered himself to be a fornicator and a prodigal, without this being the case in reality. Another called himself a barbarian and a dog. And another called himself and considered himself to be the foremost and chief of sinners upon the earth. How is it even possible for you to become prideful when you desire nothing else in the world except to find a crack in a rock or some, some opening in the earth and there to incline your head and weep for the rest of your life? Blasphemy has no place in you any longer, or even near you, because the demons of blasphemy, who blaspheme God by means of men, are banished from you and from your surroundings. Instead of them, divine angels surround you, who glorify the power and name of Christ, and you glorify with them the goodness of Jesus, your Creator. Talkativeness is driven from you to such a degree that you do not even wish to speak about necessary things. This is due to your reverence for Christ, with whom you mystically speak with sweetness face to face. 
the noise of laughter seems to you as something most irreverent and completely foreign and unbecoming to your soul. For your soul mystically harvests the reverence and modesty of the name of the Lord. You hate and avoid the desire for overeating and drinking wine so much that you do not even like being filled with simple water and bread. But you consume so little even of these, just enough for you to survive and serve your Christ in pureness and soberness, living as without a body. The prayer itself measures the amount of consumption of this simple food. For the prayer not only invisibly and unexpectedly inhibits you from being satiated, since it drove away the demon of overeating and insatiety, but even your stomach can only take in a small amount, since it has been filled with the grace of God. The prayer instructs you about the amount of food and drink you will consume in the following way. When you sit at your meager and simple table to eat your daily bread for the fortification of your weak and sick heart, bread strengthens man's heart, it says, and also give us this day our daily bread. And you begin eating with great reverence. The love of God invisibly surrounds you. And you really feel its energy because eating your bread or some other simple food you have prepared, the taste in your mouth becomes sweet from the grace of God, as if you were eating sugar, as one of the fathers said. At other times, your bread or the simple food you prepared seems like, or better yet, really becomes like the manna the Hebrews ate of the old in the wilderness. That is, sometimes it seems like you are eating milk or meat broth or honey or savory fish while in reality your food is boiled vegetables without any seasoning or greens without any oil. Eating and savoring such wondrous food, your mind also becomes sweet, meditating upon the inexpressible sweetness the saints enjoy in heaven as they eat the heavenly bread and drink the incomprehensible nectar of the glory of the Lord. That is to say, the saints contemplate the wondrous, ineffable, and incomprehensible glory of the Lord that is beyond all mind and thought, and they are inexpressibly and wondrously filled and satisfied with all good things. For this reason, the prophet David said, I shall be satisfied when your glory is revealed. Simultaneously with the sweetness that your tongue and mind experience, the prayer leaps within you on its own and keeps your stomach from fulfilling itself, as if it were saying to you, Enough, you have eaten. Man, being a rational creature, does not live only from bread, but he lives by the grace of God, as it says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you feel the movements of the prayer within, you greatly rejoice, for you recall that that divine gift and the providence of the Most High God toward you, and from your ineffable joy you shed so many tears that they not only wet your face, but also drip into your food. Likewise, when you are drinking simple water, the Holy Spirit visits you. As you are drinking, suddenly the cistern of continuous tears opens from your eyes, and from this sign you understand that you have drunk enough to sustain you. Why should you eat or drink any more? Consuming more seems that it would destroy your soul, and for that reason you immediately cease from eating or drinking any more and you rise from the table with double joy. Firstly, you consumed enough food to strengthen your languid and exhausted heart. Secondly, the Lord remembered you and satisfied your heart and mind with the innocent and unadulterated 
wine of compunction and divine gladness. Since the discourse has led us to speak about this spiritual joy, it has strayed a little from its main subject, where I was speaking about pain of heart, since both of these are fruit of the same prayer. The same prayer gives birth to both consolation of the soul and pain of heart. We were saying that when you recite the prayer from the depths of your heart, your heart aches within you and its pain gives rise to deep sighing. Who sighs without pain? And who does not grimace when he is in pain? The pain I am speaking about is twofold, for you not only physically ache inside at the place where the forceful prayer was being said, but your soul also spiritually aches when you inflict your heart with the prayer. The physical pain of your heart produces sighing, while the spiritual pain of your soul causes your face to grimace. The sullen and pained look on your face maintains and sustains the pain of your heart. For when you remember your sins and keenly observe the sickness of your nature, you continuously afflict your heart with the prayer, and then it is impossible for you not to be overcome by soul-saving pain of heart. This pain increases in proportion to the force of the prayer of the heart. For when you force your heart with the prayer, especially for a long time, then you perceive a great and sustained pain within you, and you vividly understand that death awaits man. The pain indicates nothing else except the remembrance of death. You feel death from this pain, but how do you feel it? You feel it as not as something which is far off or uncertain, but as something near and certain. The pain that has seized you is related to your breathing, for with every breath of air you take, you experience sharp pain within. The forceful prayer of the heart cut up the inner parts of your chest so much that it caused a severe and spiritual wound. When the air that you have breathed in passes through those parts and approaches the wound of your heart or your chest, you experience severe pain. Sometimes when your pain increases and grows, you experience the pain even two or three times greater during a single breath. What else could you hope for from death? What else do you expect from the departure from this world? What else do you expect from your grave? Truly, I say to you, when you have such pain, your death is before your very eyes. <clears throat> Having death before you, at the same time you have your God before you, your fashioner and creator. For this reason, the prophet David says, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. This expectation of death that is in front of your eyes is not like the other ordinary expectation of death. Because this type of expectation of death that arises from the pain of the prayer is mixed with divine and ineffable sweetness. As it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ascetic. Concerning the death of a sinner, however, it says, the death of a sinner is evil. Such is the sweetness of the expectation of death for the righteous, and you experience it in the following manner. Forcing your heart with the prayer, pain comes. The pain causes you to remember the pains and sufferings of Christ. When you co-suffer with Christ, you also hope to be glorified together with him. But from where do you know that your pain joins you to the pains of Christ? And from where do you know that if you die with this pain, you will be glorified with Christ? You know these things from what I am about to say. Prior to your heart's aching, as a result of the pain of the prayer and your sighing, 
You do not feel the grace and sweetness of Christianity, nor do you have true awareness of your salvation. Rather, you are a Christian in name only, never having really tasted or felt the goodness and sweetness of Christ. The name of Christ, which means anointed, is so good and precious that the entire world is not worthy of it. And it is so sweet and comforting to the person who has tasted of its goodness that all the sweetness of this age cannot compare to it. The preciousness and sweetness of the name of Christ is understood and known only by those who have the pain of the prayer within them, for by this work they have tasted the grace and sweetness of the name of Christ. <clears throat> Man is composed of body and soul. The body is nourished by and grows from the bread of the earth. The soul is nourished and strengthened by the bread of life, which is Christ. This is why it says, May your holy body be for me the bread of life everlasting, O compassionate Lord. So the person who eats earthly, earthly bread without the pain of the prayer of the heart and without bitter and deep sighing does not feel the goodness, power, and energy of the name of Christ. For by eating the bread of the earth without extreme pain, the heart becomes fattened without feeling God. In other words, he becomes indifferent toward the salvation of his soul. But the person whose heart, soul, and chest ache from the force of the prayer, from sighing and from the invisible and visible temptations he experiences and endures out of love for Christ, when he hears the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, or when he meditates upon it with inner pain, or when he calls upon it with living faith and fervent reverence, such a person feels the power of the name of Christ, which activates his divine energy within him. The divine name of Christ seems to the mind as well as to the throat and mouth as sweet as honey and sugar. For this reason, the prophet David says, How sweet to my taste are your teachings, more than honey and the honeycomb in my mouth. The divine name seems alive to the senses of the person. His ears are pleased and gladdened upon hearing it. His bodily and spiritual eyes rejoice when they see it written somewhere. The divine angels invisibly write the divine name of Christ, like some royal name, in various places for the preservation and sustainment of the world. When the person who has the divine name of Christ etched within him on account of the force of the prayer of the heart hears it, he is filled with such reverence that it penetrates into his soul. After this divine reverence, a sweet joy enters his mind. For he hears the name as if it were some intimate, beloved friend's name. On account of this joy, tears run from his eyes. Because of the prayer, his heart leaps within him, making merry and dancing. The soul rejoices in the joy of its Lord. What else could all these things mean and express except the intimacy of the soul with Christ and that the name of Christ works this way in the person whose heart aches from the force of prayer? Since he has become intimate with Christ, he no longer fears the pain of the heart, nor does it intimidate him, because he has been informed and assured of the place where he will go when his soul leaves his body. The words, my Christ, my Christ, are never absent from his mouth, mind, heart, and soul. He says, my Christ, my Christ, more often than he breathes. The words, my Christ, proceed and anticipate wherever he looks and whatever he looks at. Whatever he hears, my Christ is heard sooner. 
wherever he goes and walks, my Christ goes before him. When he sleeps, my Christ sleeps with him. When he eats, my Christ eats with him. When he labors, my Christ is the preferred work. It will not take me long to demonstrate that the words, my Christ, my Christ, are rooted in such a person. For just as it is impossible for the senses of man to sense with his mind something that is absent, so also it is impossible for the mind that is united to the words, my Christ, my Christ, not to sense Christ himself. Therefore, if Christ does not dwell in his heart, how can he be so filled with the name of Christ and sweetness? This fullness and sweetness of the name of Christ is an offspring of the prayer of the heart that is said interiorly and with pain. The pain of the heart is as sweet as it is severe. The Holy Forty Martyrs said, The winter is severe, but paradise is sweet. The pain is severe to the body, but the paradise to the soul. For when the heart aches from the pain of the prayer, the soul rejoices and rests. And when the pain is relaxed, the body rests, but the soul is saddened, because the mystical table of divine gladness and inexpressible delight has been taken away. But when the pain returns, the body no longer rests. The pain manifests itself within the heart with the force of the prayer. The soul immediately begins to skip and rejoice, even before the pain comes because of the sure hope of spiritual delight. And after it has come, the soul gives out a woeful but silent cry on account of its joy, mixed with a certain sweetness of heart and mind. Then it says to its Christ Jesus with tears, Receive me, O Lord, into your kingdom. Receive me, my Jesus, there where you are, you who are my love and my sweet light. Yes, my sweetest Jesus, receive me at this very moment. My Lord, receive me, for from the moment that I tasted in part and ineffably your indescribable delight and goodness, my Christ and my God, I cannot bear to be apart from you any longer. I cannot bear your absence. I burn and am aflame for the inexhaustible fire of your sweet love. When I remember you, I burn with thirst for you. When I think of you, I am crushed because I am deprived of you, and I languish on account of being separated from you. These and other things, like things, are said by the soul to its Christ, while burning with extreme love for him. And when the body too has sufficiently wept with the soul, the soul is assured that Christ has listened to it and has written it into the book of eternal life, where all the righteous are inscribed, as the scripture says, and all men shall be written in your book. But Jesus Christ, according to his judgments, that he alone knows, leaves the soul in the world for its benefit, in order that it may double, triple, and greatly multiply its fruit. Its pain decreases a little because of his consolation, but the Lord does not lessen the pain of the heart because he always wants us to be in pain for his love, the love which exists for the salvation of our soul. He lessens the pain by increasing the amount of warm tears. This pain is a great gift from God, given to those who struggle and love him. Without this pain, one can neither see God spiritually in this world, that is, in ecstasy, in a dream or divine vision, nor be assured or convinced that he will be with God in the other world. This pain requires a long time to find, and it is acquired through many struggles and with great force of the prayer of the heart. If one does not force his heart with the prayer, 
it is impossible to find this pain. It is acquired, as we said, through many struggles and great force. But if one is careless concerning this pain, even a little, it will depart from him so quickly that he will be shocked at just how quickly this lofty gift he so sought after left him on account of a little carelessness. The person, however, who finds it even one time, then loses it, finds it again with ease, because he knows the path to take in order to find it again. Indeed, he does not allow himself to be without this pain for long, because without it his heart will fall into pleasures and depart from the way of the Lord. This pain is born from a crushed and humbled heart, but it in turn gives birth to ever-flowing and bright tears. It is food for the soul and mind, and a consolation for the intellect. This pain is the joy of the angels and the sorrow of the demons. Whoever retains this pain within at all times removes his soul from this world for a short while and goes to the other world where he has his portion with the divine angels. This pain destroys the passions, disperses the demons, pacifies the intellect, sweetens the soul, consoles the mind, and warms the heart toward heavenly things. This pain is a heavenly instructor that teaches man divine mysteries and dispenses heavenly conceptions. It is impossible for the person who has this inner pain not to have heavenly thoughts. When this pain appears within a person, his intellect is immediately caught up to heavenly things, leaving earthly things behind like refuse. <clears throat> the intellect is elevated to heavenly things when inner pain given by Christ is present, because flowing tears cleansed it, and pure prayer, which appeared mystically in the heart, purified it. When someone's intellect is elevated to the holy of holies, the heavenly of heavenlies, he desires to find and see him of whose ineffable sweetness his soul and heart have partially tasted. Walking immaterially among the immaterial and heavenly things, as one immaterial and like unto immaterial things, the person finds him for who, whose love his heart labored and chest pained. Finding the desired one and beholding him, the one whom the prophet Isaiah saw sitting on a glorious throne, he straightway falls down before him and worships with great reverence and humility. This pain not only deems him worthy of this honor, but also grants him to fall into the embrace of sweet Jesus, the Almighty Lord, as an infant falls into its mother's arms. There he sweetly kisses him, who is sweetest and beyond all sweetness, his master and Christ, while shedding tears from his eyes like a river. He prays fervently, beseeching his Christ never to depart from him. He begs and pleads to forever be with his Christ and the grace of his Godhead. At that moment he says to him that which Peter said to Christ when he was transfigured, and the apostles saw his glory. It is good for us to be here. May it be that our sweetest Jesus Christ also grant to us this soul-saving pain of heart and deem us worthy to always spiritually see him here, while there in the age to come, after the eyeglasses of the soul have been removed, to see him face to face and glorify him with the angels unto the endless ages of ages. Amen. May it be so. Discourse 6. For the person who prays noetically from the depths of his heart until it aches, that pain brings about in him the feeling and taste of the goodness and sweetness of the Lord, 
and this goodness and sweetness appears, if I may put it this way, to the inner man simultaneously with ceaseless compunction, which is roused by the words of God, the sayings of Holy Scripture, and every spiritual discourse. Bless Father. O humble monk, ceaselessly repeat the sacred meditation of noetic prayer from the depths of your heart until your heart becomes completely prayer, as iron becomes like fire when it is red hot. Persist in the prayer of the heart until a wound forms within you at the spot where you repeat the prayer. The wound you willingly receive from your forceful prayer, as God is my witness, will become a spiritual fount of divine compunction from which compunction will always flow without any effort. When you reach this spiritual state by the grace of Christ, you will mystically taste the goodness of the Lord. Taste, says the prophet, and see that the Lord is good. In other words, when you mystically, but as if also sensibly, taste the grace of your Lord, you are convinced and clearly understand that the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whose name you meditate, is supremely sweet and beyond all sweetness. O humble one, think about this. From this small amount of grace that you mystically tasted, you understood and were truly convinced that our Lord Jesus Christ is so sweet to your soul, heart, mind, and entire inner person that it is impossible for you to recount his sweetness, even a little, in any way. When the soul leaves the body and goes to its Lord and God to enjoy the good things there, which things no earthly eye has seen, no carnal ear has heard, and no unclean heart has conceived. Then the soul plainly enjoys all those things that are inexpressible for man, seeing its inexpressible and inconceivable Creator and Lord face to face. What kind of joy and gladness will that soul experience? Amen, amen, I say to you, beloved. If someone thought about this very carefully and with great circumspection, his mouth would be silenced like that of a fish, and he would have nothing to say. But let us return to the subject of our discourse. So, thrice-blessed laborer of the gospel of Jesus, when you spiritually experience the mystical taste of the Lord's goodness, when your intellect is watered with the noetic milk of spiritual vision, when your words are pleasing to your Lord, may my words be pleasing to him, and I shall be glad in the Lord, said the prophet. When your heart enjoys the divine and inexpressible mercy of gladness from the Holy Spirit's comfort, when all these things and more happen to you, which things a scribe's pen could not record and portray as they really are, then your intellect becomes inattentive to the prayer, just as a close friend of a king has no great need to carry weapons upon entering the palace and keeping company with his friend, the king. This friend enjoys the delights of the royal table in great peace. For at that time your soul is attentive to the noetic, noetically present spiritual table which divine grace has presented to it, the divine grace that visited the soul and royally greeted it with great favor. Then your soul is solely and completely occupied with God and God's grace, and it rests in the spiritual pleasantness that it inexpressively enjoys at that moment. At that time, O spiritually entertained friend of God, by the grace of God you have reached a great and exalted degree of noetic and spiritual vision, contemplating the noetic honey and honeycomb that your intellect tastes. 
Then you behold your living Creator and Lord and are flooded with compunction and spiritual rest. Considering and contemplating within yourself how the grace of God activates the immaterial and divine energy in your soul and how your heart is comforted by it, you are filled with compunction and rest. Considering the cheerfulness on the face of your heart within you on account of the spiritual joy that was lavishly poured over it by the grace of God, you shed abundant tears and rest. Considering the perceptible cheerfulness on your face, which you have on account of the inner divine grace that was richly poured into your heart, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering the goodness and kindness of your Lord, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord and God is extremely merciful and loving towards man, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord and God is almighty and all-powerful, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the kingdom of your Lord is a kingdom unto all the ages, and that his dominion is from generation to generation, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the name of your Lord is holy and sweet to his servants, but fierce and bitter to the demons, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord is great and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, to us, that is, who know his divine might, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord is hymned by the angels, glorified by the archangels, and praised by all the heavenly divine powers, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord rides upon the cherubim, flies upon the wings of the wind, and wondrously rides upon the clouds, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the Lord looks upon the earth and makes it to tremble, you wonder at his power and rest with compunction. Considering that the majesty of your Lord is higher than the heavens, you are filled with compunction and rest. Considering that your Lord sits upon his holy throne and that his throne is unto the ages of ages, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that the throne of your Lord is in heaven and that his glory is above the heavens, you are filled with sweet compunction and rest. Considering that everything was made by the word of your Lord and that your Lord created everything by a command, you are filled with compunction and rest. In brief, when your soul is reconciled with God by means of the prayer crushing the heart, Compunction pours over you continuously, and God is unceasingly glorified by you for all his wonders and judgments. In all of these things, and the things I have left aside for the sake of brevity, your soul delights, your intellect is pleased, your heart dances, and your body rejoices, just as the faithful servants of a king are delighted, are pleased, rejoice, and dance on account of the great riches, royal magnificence, and bright trophies of their king. And so, according to the amount of sweetness with which you are sweetened by the divine wonders of your Christ, so much does compunction well up from your heart. This sweetness precedes compunction, just as the visitation of divine grace precedes the sweetness. A contrite heart precedes the visitation of divine grace. When you are filled with compunction, you are deemed worthy of true divine vision, which comes about when the intellect is caught up to noetic and incomprehensible things, 
as our divine father Isaac the Syrian says. To our God be the glory and the power unto the ages. Amen. Discourse 7 Concerning when divine grace visits the person praying noetically to God from his heart and what the spiritual signs of this visitation are. Bless Father. Beloved, when you have been praying noetically from your inner depths for a long time, you should know that you will receive a certain unseen divine visitation that means to sanctify your soul, console your heart, and divinely protect all the senses of your body and soul. Sometimes the grace of the Holy Trinity visits you, and you understand this because at the name of the Holy Trinity, that is, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your soul rejoices, your mind is sweetened, compunction sprouts from your heart as from a spring, and your eyes shed burning tears. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Holy Trinity. Sometimes the grace of God the Father visits you with gladness. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and your spirit is sweetened more at the name of God the Father than at the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of God the Father. Sometimes our Lord Jesus Christ visits you. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and sweetness more at the sweetest name of your Christ and all his divine mysteries than at the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes the Holy Spirit visits you and flies about you like a pure dove. You understand this because you are filled with compunction and sweetness more at the name of the Holy Spirit than at the name of the Father and the Son. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Holy Spirit. As was said, sometimes you are not filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness at the three names of the Holy Trinity, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes you are filled with greater compunction and sweetness at the name of the Father, sometimes at the name of the Son, and sometimes at the name of the Holy Spirit. Not because the Holy Trinity is not of one essence. That is blasphemy. You are not filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness because when you pray to the Holy Trinity, you do not look equally with your noetic eyes at one nature, the one essence, and the one power of the Holy Trinity, with the same amount of fervency of heart. And you do not call upon the three names of the Holy Trinity from the depths of your heart with equal reverence. For this reason, you are not filled with an equal amount of compunction and sweetness. Therefore, when you offer the Holy Trinity your supplication and worship, you must offer it with the equal amount of extreme honor to each of the three names. You must offer it with the same amount of extreme reverence and the same amount of extreme fervency of heart. For in this way you will be filled with the same amount of compunction and sweetness. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are one nature and one essence, because the Father is light, the Son is light, and the Holy Spirit is light. In other words, the Godhead is one, and the persons are three. So when you look noetically at the Father with extreme reverence, the Father enlightens you, and you are filled with compunction at the name of the Father. When you noetically look at the Son with the same amount of reverence, the Son enlightens you, and you are filled with compunction at the name of the Son. The same thing happens concerning the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be filled with the same amount of compunction at each of the three names of the Holy Trinity, you must do as we have said above. 
That is, you must reverence the Holy Trinity with the same amount of reverence, honor the Holy Trinity with the same amount of honor, and respect the Holy Trinity with the same amount of respect. For this reason, the Church cries out with a great voice, imploring the single Godhead of the Holy Trinity, saying, And grant that with one voice and one heart we may glorify and praise your most honored and majestic name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever unto ages of ages. Sometimes, when you have been noetically praying from your heart for a long time, the Lady Theotokos visits you with gladness. You understand this because you are flooded with compunction at the various divine names of the Panagia, at her divine and holy words, and at her divine miracles. Wherefore, this is called a visitation of the Panagia. Sometimes when you have been noetically praying from your inner depths to the saint whose life you have been reading and whose grace you have been contemplating, you begin to shed hot tears because his grace visits you as if you were his co-struggler and a friend of the Lord. When you have been noetically praying from the center of your inner depths, the saints upon whose names you called with a fervent heart invisibly and cheerfully visit you, then your soul is sweetened and your heart is filled with compunction on account of their grace. Sometimes, when you have been praying in, in an aforementioned manner, you receive a mystical and heavenly visitation of divine grace, and you cannot tell which saint it was. You understand that your soul received some sort of divine visitation that day, only on account of some spiritual and noetic signs that occurred in your soul that no tongue can express. And you cannot tell if it was a visitation from God, the Panagia, or some other saint. But if you think about the divine visitation with a compunctionate heart, a pure and innocent intellect, and a calm mind, and if you mystically, fervently, and humbly entreat the person who visited you, it will be revealed to you and made plain with some obvious signs who it was that mystically visited you. The revelation of the mystical and divine visitation happens like this. As you supplicate your unknown and unidentified benefactor, you begin by supplicating and glorifying God. If the visitation was from God himself, the name of God appears sweet to your mind like a drop of honey that drips. This is to be understood spiritually, ineffably into your heart with the same sweetness. The heart drips heavenly tears mystically into the soul, spiritual tears, honey-like tears, sugary tears. The eyes also drip tears onto the face, tears like unto the honeycombed tears of the heart, the sugary tears of the soul, and the sweet tears of the mind. Then the face radiates with light from the noetic ray of spiritual joy. When one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. From these signs you realize the grace of God visited you. But if something like this did not occur at the name of God, the visitation was from one of the saints. As you mystically supplicate all the saints with your mind and a warm heart, you begin with the Panagia and then pass through all the orders of the saints with your mind, supplicating and meditating upon the various ranks of saints. When your mind arrives at the rank to which the saint you visited belongs, you begin to experience some spiritual comfort, and certain obvious signs appear that inform you the friend whom you seek and who visited you is near. 
as you supplicate each saint individually whose life you have read and whose miracles you have heard about. When you say the saint's name that visited you, it becomes obvious that it was that particular saint. Because of the active energy and obvious signs of rich, spontaneous compunction and spiritual warmth you experience. On the day of the visitation, when you hear the name or the miracles of the saint who visited you, or even if his name happens to pass through your mind, sometimes your heart is filled with compunction, sometimes your eyes are filled with compunctionate tears, and sometimes you are filled with spiritual zeal to emulate the deeds and virtues of the saint. But when that day has passed, the energy of spontaneous compunction departs from you, as does the spiritual warmth you felt. And this happens in the following way. A certain person has a dear friend, and his friend invites him over so that they might enjoy each other's spiritual company. So he goes to his friend in order that they may be glad together. As he is going, he passes by the marketplace that is buzzing with people. There he sees other friends whom he greets with a happy face. However, he is not so overcome with joy that they prevent him from running on to see the friend who invited him over. When he reaches his friend's place, his heart rejoices at the sound of his voice. And when he greets his face to face, his heart doubly rejoices, so much that his eyes fill with tears at the sight of his friend, and he enjoys their conversation and company. When the time comes for them to part company, he becomes sad, but he is comforted on account of the pleasant time they had with one another. At a later date, another one of his friends invites him over, and he experiences the same enjoyment at this invitation. The same sorts of things happen when it comes to the spiritual life. When a saint invites you into his spiritual joy, the saint's visitation and spiritual comfort occurs that day. When that day passes, so does the spiritual comfort. The same thing happens when another saint invites you through his divine visitation into his spiritual joy. The spiritual visitation occurs when somebody, someone's body and soul are distressed. The soul is invisibly distressed by invisible enemies. The body is distressed on account of asceticism or by cruel and evil people. Wherefore, whichever saint is called upon visits the person in a paradoxical way on account of the intimacy shared between the person and the saint because of the common sufferings and temptations endured for the love of the Lord. Indeed, the grace of the Lord visits him with a cheerful look so that he may not wane in his struggle. At other times, divine grace visits him when he is in need, without his even asking for it, since divine providence knows when it should visit him. Other times, a person calls on God, but he receives no visitation. God does this for the sake of the person, because God knows what is best for us far more than we do. But when you, O humble one, call on God and you receive no visitation, do not fret over this, but condemn and criticize yourself adding that you are not worthy of receiving such a divine visitation. Then, at that moment, divine visitation is not far from you, even if you do not feel it. Divine visitation occurs especially on days when there is a feast of the Lord or the Mother of God, or when the memory of a certain saint is celebrated. The visitation happens to some people mystically and to some manifestly, according to each person's love and zeal for divine things. When you, O oh man, especially love and reverence a certain saint, that saint will always remember you and invisibly visit you without your 
even recognizing his visitation. But he visits you to a greater degree and in a more obvious manner on his feast day when you are exhibiting a more fervent zeal. Likewise, when you have great faith in and fervent reverence for the Lady Theotokos, she will always have care and concern for you. In the day of your distress, she will visit you in an obvious manner, and when it is one of her feast days, she will visit you in an even more obvious way. And when you have the fear of God in your heart, he will always protect you with an encampment of his divine angels. As it says, the angel of the Lord shall encamp around those who fear him and he will deliver them. In the day of your distress, he manifestly visits you with his divine grace. He visits you to an even greater degree and in a more obvious manner during his holy and venerable feasts on account of his infinite goodness and because you uninterruptedly glorify him. By his visitation, your soul is invisibly called to his mystical table, his mystical rest, and his spiritual joy. On the holy and divine day when you receive a visitation, your soul rejoices, mystically dances, and noetically rejoices together with the noetic spirits. Through the divine visitation, your soul noetically enjoys a portion of the good things that the noetic spirits enjoy in the noetic and divine dwelling places not made with hands of the upper Jerusalem. Together with the soul, your body in the lower Jerusalem of the church spiritually rejoices with your orthodox brethren, just as it says, this is the day that the Lord made, let us greatly rejoice and be glad therein. To our God be the glory, power, praise, and majesty unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 8. Concerning the person who noetically prays from his inner depths and always abstains from pleasurable foods, when he is fasting his mouth is sometimes sweetened by the prayer, as if there were something sugary in his mouth, or as if he were eating sweet honey, as the prophet says, how sweet to my taste are your teachings, more than honey in my mouth. Bless, Father. O humble monk, there are three things you must always take care to possess. Fasting, self-control, and noetic prayer, if you wish to ever taste of that wondrous sweetness that will inexpressibly sweeten the tip of your tongue. For if you do not employ fasting, self-control, and noetic prayer with all of your will and desire, Never hope to experience that wondrous sweetness on your tongue. The wondrous sweetness your tongue experiences is a great consolation from God in order to make you more fervent and zealous in your spiritual work. There are few who enjoy this wondrous and divine sweetness of tongue, and even those who do not experience it all the time, but only sometimes, when the Lord deigns to comfort them. When, however, they actually experience it, they understand what a good thing it is for someone to fast constantly, to practice self-control always, and to pray ceaselessly to Christ with all his heart. Without these things, one will not be able to receive this sweetness into his mouth. This sweetness is indescribable because it is spiritual, and everything spiritual and mystical is indescribable. But in order for someone to understand just a little how it affects the tongue, we say the following. The divine and wondrous sweetness, which indescribably sweetens the tongue, resembles the sweetness of sugar, but is also very distinct from sugar. For if you put a little sugar in your mouth, it becomes sweet, but after the sugar has dissolved and you have swallowed it, the sweetness is no longer there unless you eat some more sugar. 
the noetic and spiritual sugar, however, that the grace of the Lord invisibly places in your mouth and that wondrously coats your tongue is not like this. This sweetness remains on the tongue, and there is no need to taste something sweet repeatedly in order to retain it. The sweetness of God is inexhaustible if you are deemed worthy of it through noetic prayer and pure fasting. When your tongue is sweetened, you experience the sweetness on the tip of your tongue as if a small grain of sugar were placed there. When you feel your tongue becoming sweet, in order to experience this spiritual and divine sweetness even more, you keep your mouth closed. For in this way you will feel that this divine and indescribable sweetness inexhaustibly sprouts from the tip of your tongue as water sprouts from a pipe. If you happen to speak with someone, it will immediately vanish from your tongue. But if you carefully keep your mouth securely closed, your tongue will again surprisingly become sweet. There is a plant whose flower contains natural honey, like honeysuckle. When you pluck the flower from its stem and suck on it, its sweetness is like honey on your tongue. Similar to this is the delight your tongue experiences when it is sweetened by the grace of God. The difference is that the sweetness you receive from sucking the flower goes away while the sweetness of God does not, as long as your mouth remains pure by keeping it from food and drink. For as soon as you partake of some material food, the sweetness of God in your mouth will no longer be vividly experienced for that day. More often than not, the day that you partake of some physical food, the spiritual sweetness disappears completely. The sweetness of the tongue wondrously and uninterruptedly gushes within your mouth when you keep your mouth closed, and with every breath you feel its activity. Sometimes you feel it on your lips, for they too are sweetened from the inside of the mouth, as if they were sprinkled with powdered sugar or had honey applied to them. When you are experiencing this sweetness, O humble one, Keep yourself from tasting anything earthly unless it is absolutely necessary. For if you do, you will become inconsolably sad. Let your stomach hunger. Do not give it a thing. For when it is hungry, your mouth is satisfied with the perceptible and imperceptible sweetness of God. But if you give your stomach some physical food, your tongue will be deprived of that wondrous sweetness. When your tongue is sweetened by divine sweetness, do not spit, but swallow your saliva. As you swallow it, and even before, you experience sweetness in your mouth. But if you spit, you will not experience the wondrous sweetness for a little. It was possibly for this reason that a holy, a certain holy ascetic never spit in his entire life. Above all, as we have already said, keep your mouth securely closed if there is no great need for you to speak, so that you do not regret it later. If you have this wondrous and noble sweetness within you, and you need to read aloud something from the Holy Scripture, read it with reverence. As you read, also be attentive to the spiritual sweetness on your tongue, whether it is preserved or not. If it remains, be attentive unto both the wondrous sweetness and the reading. For in this way, you will experience yet another spiritual delight, not on your tongue, but in your mind. Your mind will also be sweetened by the grace of God. After God's consolation has doubled, it will also triple. Immediately, God's consolation will affect your eyes as well. They will gush pure and joyful tears of God's love, which are very sweet to your soul. After you have received God's consolation threefold, then you will receive a fourth consolation from God. 
for as you are receiving the third consolation, you will simultaneously and noetically see your inner self being invisibly anointed by the grace of the Holy Spirit with the divine mercy of gladness. From this you will become completely tranquil, completely cheerful, and completely joyful. What we are saying is that none of the senses of your soul remains without comfort from the consolation and grace of the Holy Spirit. These things will happen to you if if the ineffable and wondrous sweetness abides on your tongue. But if this sweet, noble sweetness does not remain on your tongue as you are reading, do not despair and seek to eat something, or look to talk, or allow your mind to wander, but keep yourself from all of these. If you do this in a short while, you will once again experience the sweetness in your mouth. That is, the wondrous and divine sweetness will again wondrously sweeten your tongue. Does divine sweetness sprout from your tongue's essence, or does it come from the grace of God when it imperceptibly strikes the tongue and sweetens it? It is difficult to be exactly sure about this. O humble one, even though it seems to you that it comes from your tongue itself, the truth of the matter is that it does not come from the essence of your tongue, but from divine grace that imperceptibly touches your tongue and inexpressibly passes through it. That is why it seems to you that the sweetness sprouts from your tongue itself. There is no need for you to examine this in detail, beloved, because if you do, you will not discover anything more than what was just said. Sometimes, when the divine sweetness wells up within you and inexpressible sweetens your tongue, it seems that the sweetness decreases and that it might completely disappear, but then, surprisingly, your tongue is sweetened again. When you have been deemed worthy of all these things, O humble monk, You are filled with joy and gladness, for then you have no need to eat or drink liqueurs and other sweets in order for your mouth to be sweetened, since the consolation of God sweetens it. The sweetness of liqueurs and other treats is fleeting and does not last, while the sweetness from the consolation of God abides in your mouth for as long as you abstain from the fruits of the earth. When God fed the Hebrews of old with manna, As long as they abstained from the fruits of the earth, they were given the heavenly manna. It ineffably sweetened them. But when they partook of the fruits of the earth, the manna immediately disappeared from them. So if you, a humble one, who have been deemed worthy by the grace of Christ to taste sensibly the delicate and perceptible sweetness, and to have in your mouth the food of angels, the heavenly manna, that wondrous sweetness, if you desire to taste the fruits of the earth, the mystical delight will immediately disappear from you. It is better for you to fast always, practice self-control always, and pray always so that you may always delight in that wondrous sweetness instead of filling your stomach with material foods and thus be deprived of the heavenly and sweet manna. I once observed a hero monk as he was preparing for the divine liturgy. As he was performing the service of the holy proscomity, He suddenly became tearful and could not keep himself from weeping. But suddenly, when he finished the proscomity, he became full of mourning and compunction, and he wept. When he wanted to say, For yours is the kingdom of the Father, and other pronouncements during the service, he constrained himself so as not to have so much compunction, and he tried to project his voice even louder so his compunction would not be noticeable. He was also filled with compunction when he read the prayers. As he was reading the divine gospel, 
So much compunction filled him that his eyes were drowning in tears, and it was plain that he was weeping, for he could not restrain his compunction and tears. There was no one present at that liturgy who was not filled with compunction, unless there was someone as unfeeling in his soul and heart of heart as I am. The priest continued to be filled with compunction, sometimes more, sometimes less, throughout the rest of the divine liturgy, and experienced boundless joy in his soul. When he communed in the immaculate body and precious blood of the Lord, he drenched the holy patent, the sacred veils, and the antimension with his tears. When the divine liturgy was finished, I asked him to be completely honest and tell me why he was filled with so much compunction and why he shed so many tears, especially in front of people, while I cannot even shed a single tear in secret because of my wretched soul. And he, being a lover of truth, both good and guileless, told me the whole truth, saying, quote, My brother, when the service of Orthos was being read, I was constantly and noetically meditating on the name of the Lord in my heart. Toward the middle of the service, I began to taste a lofty sweetness on my tongue that gradually became sweeter and sweeter. At the same time, I noticed a spiritual comfort within me. As time passed and I repeated even more, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. The wondrous sweetness steadily increased on my tongue, and God's consolation grew stronger within me. Then suddenly my heart began to be filled with compunction. After I said the entrance prayers in order to liturgize, the sweetness in my mouth grew, and I felt the consolation of God even livelier within me. I was more easily filled with compunction and to a greater extent. As I was preparing the divine gifts during the proscomitee, I perceived great sweetness in my mouth, and at the same time my heart deeply experienced the consolation of God. Then I could no longer restrain my tears. When I was reading the sacred gospel, I experienced that lofty and wondrous sweetness in my mouth to a greater degree. My mind was greatly sweetened at the same time by the words of the divine and sacred gospel, so that my intellect clearly understood the power, meaning, and spirit of every single word. I was no longer able to hide and restrain my compunction, so I wept like a small child on account of the compunction that filled me and poured out of my heart. I was completely filled with compunction from that moment until the end of the liturgy, sometimes more, sometimes less, from the lofty sweetness that my tongue felt and from the delight that my mind took in the comprehension of the divine words. Hearing these things, I, who am heart of heart, criticized myself from the heart because I never experienced that sweetness on my tongue nor in my soul that consolation. A prayer. Lord, Lord, the sweetness and delight of all your servants who meditate from their heart upon your holy and divine name with reverence, I ask you, grant also unto me to love your name with all my heart and to meditate upon it with great reverence, so that when your grace deigns it, my own tongue will taste the divine and lofty sweetness. For then, Lord, I am sure that together with that wondrous sweetness, the holy light of your divine knowledge will shine within my heart, and the eye of my mind will be illumined with the true and perfect understanding of your divine words. When you, Lord, my Creator and my God, cause these things to happen to me, your words will straightway become sweet to my throat and sweeter than honey in my mouth. 
Yes, my sweet Jesus, I ask and entreat your sovereignty. Sprinkle me, the embittered one, with just a drop of divine sweetness from the great and incomprehensible abyss of your divine and spiritual sweetness. My soul desires your spiritual, divine, and wondrous sweetness more than gold and topaz or any precious stone. And I, your servant, am spiritually sweetened more than honey and honeycomb when I think about it. For you, my Lord, my sweet Lord Jesus, are the indescribable sweetness of all Christians, and to you we offer up glory unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 9. Concerning the extreme exhaustion of the external and internal state of man, which is due to the extreme force of the prayer of the heart and constant fasting, and brings about the sweetness and consolation of the Holy Spirit in the soul and in the heart. Bless, Father. My heart is exhausted, my dear brethren. My insides are weak. My hand is exhausted, and so is my entire lowly and wretched body. And I, the least of all, cannot write in detail about the great benefit, the profound strength, and the unimaginable grace the soul receives from the extreme exhaustion of the heart, which is caused by the intensity of the heart's forceful prayer. Whoever wishes to achieve this extreme exhaustion of the internal and external state of the body, or rather whoever wishes to reach the degree and state of the Holy Fathers, in order for his soul and heart to taste somewhat God's grace in proportion to his exhaustion, two things are necessary, fasting and the prayer of the heart. These two things are for the soul like divine plants that drip honey and sugar, which constantly and wondrously drip every divine sweetness into the soul. I say every divine sweetness because the soul and the heart of whoever practices these two things secretly partakes of every spiritual consolation in his soul and in his heart. In other words, the person who practices fasting and the prayer of the heart feels within him the heavenly and incomprehensible richness and spiritual and secret joy found hidden within the holy and divinely inspired scriptures. He experiences these things not as in a dream or in a mirror. Those who do not practice fasting and noetic prayer only fantasize in their minds that they experience such things. But he feels them in reality in both his soul and heart. He feels them in the following way. When a person who is fasting forces his heart in noetic prayer so much that he experiences pain of heart in his depths, he is then overcome by extreme exhaustion both within and without. The extreme exhaustion powerfully cuts and enervates every external and internal carnal pleasure found hidden within a person's body. Then the person tastes the heavenly and spiritual pleasure within him, as it says, the kingdom of the heavens is within you. The spiritual and heavenly pleasure that is a person mystically tastes within is understood to a greater degree in the following way. As someone says the prayer, of which we have spoken frequently, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, he unquestionably acquires within himself a true and sincere reverence for God and for his divine and wondrous words. Together with that pure and sincere reverence, the grace of the Holy Spirit marks the person inside, which is a joy and consolation to the soul and heart of man. For when the grace of the Holy Spirit approaches a pure heart, not only is the soul comforted, but the heart is also wondrously sweetened in an incomprehensible 
and mystical manner. Just as the tip of the tongue is sweetened when a person prays noetically from the heart for many hours with great reverence and extreme attention to the prayer. Again, we say that the sweetness of heart experienced from the grace of the Holy Spirit is mystical and spiritual, but it resembles the sweetness one experiences sensibly when eating honey or sugar. The soul feels the sweetness of the grace of the Holy Spirit in the following way. When the grace of the Holy Spirit draws near to the soul, the entirety of Holy Scripture appears to the soul like a shady and leafy tree dripping sugar, whose roots are watered and irrigated by the infinite sweetness of Christ. Its branches drip their incomprehensible sweetness into the soul. The heart also feels this sweetness of the Holy Spirit's grace in the following way. When someone feels the grace of the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart, then he also feels a certain divine joy and spiritual comfort at his core, that is, in his bowels. When the heart is comforted, then it is warmed by immaterial and heavenly warmth from the grace of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Christ spoke about when he said, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. After that heavenly warmth has warmed your heart, the great fire of Christ's love ignites in the heart and his desire and eros possess it. Then when the heart simply thinks about its Lord Jesus or Christ's family and friends, that is the saints, it softens and melts from the tears shed for Christ and the saints. And just as a person cannot completely stop water from sprouting from a spring, for when he plugs up one place, it begins to sprout from another. And if he plugs up that place, it sprouts from yet another place. So also it is with the heart. For when the heart is sweetened by God's sweetness, the heart spontaneously weeps within, wondering at the sweetness of grace. At that time, however, if someone else stops the heart's tears by doing the works of the prince of this age, then at the moment that the prince of evil is doing his works, the heart's tears are cut off for a while on account of the sudden wickedness of that hater of good. But if the heart once again becomes watchful and attentive to the grace of God visiting it, it begins to weep as it did before. The heart weeps because when it cries for its creator, it feels the spiritual sweetness of grace together with its tears. This is the fruit of mourning that all the saints possessed in their life, being a pledge of the anticipated inexpressible gladness of the future age. From that moment on, no man or demon can separate the heart from its divine vision and spiritual meditation. And I dare say that not even the angels themselves can separate the heart from its heavenly and noetic meditation hidden in the delight of spiritual joy. This is what the blessed Paul is talking about when he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate the heart from the spiritual meditation it has in the grace of God. From the moment that it mystically tasted the mystical joy of divine grace, it understood the original deception and perdition it possessed prior to finding and tasting God's grace. If a poor, unfortunate, wretched, dejected, and despairing man became friends with a king for some reason, was dressed in bright and expensive clothes, and lived in a majestic and relaxed life in the palace with the king, I ask you, would he abandon that royal life and return to the vomit of his previous unfortunate life? Certainly not. And if this applies to the carnal and external man, how much more to the spiritual and inner man?
The heart that tastes God's grace every day and every moment knows the thorny and spiky roads and the nails it used to walk on. But now it no longer pays attention to those things the crafty demon presents to it in the shape and form of leisure. For the heart surely knows that on the road of the enemy there awaits only the soul's destruction, bitterness of heart, and an examination of the conscience. But the heart knows that in the grace of God there exists consolation, joy, and sweetness of soul and heart. For this reason the divine prophet David supplicated God, saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The prophet David knew from the Holy Spirit that if the heart of man is cleansed, he will noetically see God himself within his heart. As Christ said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is why David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And again, being a prophet, he knew that if the Holy Spirit dwelt in a person's heart, he would feel an inexpressible joy in his heart, and the center of his body would become warm, that is, he would experience in his depths an indescribable spiritual and divine warmth, mixed with much spiritual and divine sweetness. For this reason, he said, and renew a right spirit in the depths of me. A prayer. My sweet Christ, I beseech you to renew your good and comforting spirit within me so that my embittered heart may be ineffably sweetened and so that both the face of my heart and the face of my body are illumined by the comfort of your spirit. When one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. Yes, my sweet God, I ask you, you who are the delight and the sweetness of my soul, sweeten my heart so that my mind may also be sweetened by the grace of your comfort. O Lord of glory, this is why you are called the Comforter, because you console your friends by the grace of your Holy Spirit, just as you promised, O my God and Lord who cannot lie. For you, O Lord, said to your holy disciples and apostles, It is for your benefit that I go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. For when I go, I will ask my Father to send you another comforter like me. I ask you, O Lord, please ask your Father and my Father, your God and my God, to send this comforter to me, who am nothing and the least of all, and for him to establish me in your love my almighty Lord and God, as the prophet King says, and establish me with your guiding spirit. O Lord of the mirth of my heart and Savior of every soul that boldly hopes in you, when the grace of your Holy Spirit approaches my heart and touches my soul, I immediately taste and feel a portion of those unspeakable and eternal good things you have prepared from before the foundation of the world for those who love you. When my heart experiences these things, O oh my Jesus, it is straightway pierced with your love, and immediately my soul is set ablaze with an unquenchable and heavenly eros for you, my Christ. Wherefore, O oh Lord, when you deem me worthy of your holy grace, then I will offer you the praise of my heart like a sacrificed bullock. Then, says the scriptures, bullocks shall be offered on your altar. For to you belong all glory and praise unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 10 Concerning Noetic Prayer, Prayer of the Heart, and Watchful Prayer Bless, Father. Beloved, when you wish to pray noetically from your depths, let the prayer of your heart imitate the sound of the cicada. When the cicada chirps, it does so in two ways 
At first it softly chirps five to ten times, but then its ending chirps are more pronounced, drawn out, and melodic. And so, beloved, when you pray noetically within your heart, pray in the following manner. First say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, about ten times, forcefully from your heart and clearly with your intellect from your depths, one time with each breath. Restrain your breath a little each time you say the prayer as your heart meditates from its depths on the words. Once you have said the prayer in this fashion ten times or more, until that place within you has become warm where you meditate upon the prayer, then say the prayer more powerfully with greater tension and forcefulness of heart, just as the cicada ends its song with a more pronounced and melodic voice. This prayer, which is referred to principally as noetic prayer, is also called prayer of the heart and watchful prayer. When you say the prayer with your intellect and repeat it mystically within you in stillness, using your inner voice, it is referred to as noetic prayer. When you say the prayer from the depth of your heart with great tension and inner force, then it is referred to as prayer of the heart. It is referred to as watchful prayer when, because of your prayer or because of the infinite goodness of God, the grace of the Holy Spirit visits your soul and touches your heart, or you are granted a, div a divine vision upon which your mind's eye becomes watchful and fixed. When you practice noetic prayer and reverently repeat it as you should, and the grace of the Holy Spirit visits your soul, then the name of Christ that you are meditating upon with your intellect becomes greatly consoling and sweet to your mind and soul, so much that you could never repeat it enough. When you practice prayer of the heart and the grace of God touches your heart, that is, when your heart happens upon it, causing it to conceive com compunction as the Lady Theotokos conceived the word of God by the Holy Spirit, then the name of the divine Jesus and all of Holy Scripture becomes ineffable sweetness to the heart. And every spiritual notion within the heart, if I may put it this way, becomes a sweet flowing river of divine compunction that sweetens the heart and wondrously makes it fervent and eros and love for its creator and God. Sometimes when you practice prayer of the heart with pain of an enfeebled heart and with sorrow of a humbled soul, then your soul clearly feels the consolation and visitation of the Lord. This is what the prophet says. The Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. The Lord invisibly draws near you when you crush your heart with the prayer, as we said, in order to show you some mystical revelation. He shows you some vision in order to make you more fervent in the spiritual work of your heart. And so, beloved, when by the grace of Christ your soul beholds some vision and is filled with compunction because of your prayer, then you understand that Watchful prayer is nothing other than divine grace. It is the noetic and divine vision your mind beholds. Your intellect is firmly fixed upon, and your soul watches. And that the divine grace of the Holy Spirit visited your soul, gently touched your heart, and ineffably sweetened your mind, only you can understand and comprehend within yourself. Because compunction ceaselessly flows from your heart, as from an ever-flowing spring, while your mind experiences an inexpressible sweetness and your soul great consolation. At that moment, your soul possesses some spiritual boldness and mystically supplicates God, its fashioner and creator, saying, Remember me, O Lord, in your kingdom, or some other verse of Holy Scripture. 
This holy and pure supplication that takes place within the soul has such power that it penetrates the heavens and reaches the throne of the Holy Trinity, before whom it stands like sweet-smelling and fragrant incense. The prophet said about this prayer, Let my prayer arise as incense before you. The God and Trinity receives this holy supplication in an inexpressible and wondrous manner, and the supplication in turn receives the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This fruit, received reverently and modestly, is offered and sent to the soul as a priceless and heavenly gift from the God of all as a pledge of the future kingdom and adoption. The soul that receives the heavenly and divine fruit of the Holy Spirit because of its supplication, that is, from pure prayer, acquires divine love, spiritual joy, peace of heart, and great patience during the hardships and temptations of this age excellence and goodness in everything, unwavering faith, Christ's meekness, and passion-killing self-control. All of these are called fruit of the Holy Spirit. To our God be glory and power unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 11. Concerning how an impure and prideful heart that is the den of Satan and evil thoughts becomes pure, humble, a dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and a fount of good thoughts through contrite prayer. Bless, Father. Beloved, if you want noetic prayer to penetrate your heart and take root in it, fast without ceasing. Abstain from fatty and pleasurable foods. Be careful and wise like the snake, scorning all things of this age. And forgive from your heart every person who troubles you, according to the word of the Lord. Be careful not to be the cause of scandals. Never speak good words and praise about yourself, but always criticize and berate yourself, calling yourself a good-for-nothing, a fornicator, filthy, and accursed, as it is written, those who turn aside from your commandments are accursed. After doing these things and considering yourself a slave and a despicable thing of the earth, then place death itself before you, as if you were going to die that very moment. Then begin to force your heart with the name of Christ, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, very powerfully and forcefully. Do not listen to anything the evil one slyly has to say at that time, during which you have decided to crush your heart with the prayer. For the evil one, being wily and experienced in his evil ways, knows the fruit your soul will produce if you acquire ceaseless synodic prayer. That wickedly scheming, ugly, crooked, and lame-footed devil does everything in his power to hinder your prayer and to confuse you he offers you water from a thousand wells according to the proverb that crooked evil venomous thorny nailed and underhanded devil with his wretched accursed crooked evil venomous and thorny nailed hand presents you with innumerable reasons fears and thoughts in order to impede the force of your prayer but if you, beloved, you love Christ more than gold and your soul more than your body, do not listen to the devil at all. Instead, say the prayer with great force until our Lord Jesus Christ comes to dwell in your heart. When Christ has come to dwell in your heart, he himself will be able to heal every disease and infirmity of your soul and body. I will come, he said, and heal them. For when you say the prayer with force, as we stated above, you cry out and call for Christ, 
the best physician of all, to come to you and heal the incurable passions of your soul. They are called incurable because no one but Christ can heal them. But from where do you know that Christ invisibly comes to your heart and drives its demons away? I mean, how do you know that he liberates the heart from its passions, just as he drove out many demons from Mary Magdalene's heart, freeing it from all its passions? It becomes plain in the following way. As soon as your heart mystically sees its Savior Jesus approaching, all its evil and bad thoughts immediately disappear. At the appearance of meek Jesus, a cursed conceit flees and disappears, as the darkness of night flees and disappears at the appearance of dawn and the rising sun. When those evil and ruthless tyrants vanish from your heart, then the gentle and meek King, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes to reign there, and he becomes the heart's true guide and teacher. Likewise, your heart becomes a true follower and disciple of the teacher Jesus. The heart is taught by him to be gentle, modest, wise, compunctionate, compassionate, meek, and humble. As it says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Unless a man's heart is mixed with the restful and peaceful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot achieve spiritual rest and peace. Listen, beloved, it says also somewhere else, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. That is to say, every person's heart is like a treasure chest. If his heart is pure, prudent, guileless, good, and holy, his mouth will speak good and holy words, just as it says, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But if his heart is corrupt and wicked, his mouth will speak corrupt and wicked words. That is why it is said, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Therefore, whoever wants to speak spiritual and heavenly words let him first fill his heart with spiritual and heavenly concerns and thoughts, and then let him bring out from there, as if from some good treasure chest, spiritual and heavenly words. If someone's heart is full of evils, let him first remove them from his heart, as it says, put away the evils from your hearts. Then let him deposit good there, like a precious pearl. Doing this, he will imitate the person who having a field full of wild trees and thorns, first uproots the fruitless trees and thorns from the field and then sows fruitful and gentle plants. Let the person who wishes to store good treasure in his wicked heart do the same by sowing gentle and fruitful plants in his heart. What is this good treasure and what is this gentle and fruitful plant that bears fruit in due season like the prophetic tree that is planted by streams of water? It is nothing else but the name of God. Noetic prayer deposits and roots the most precious treasury of the name of the Lord in the heart of man when it finds a body mortified through asceticism and constant fasting. When the name of Christ has been deposited in the heart, then the heart puts on the clothes of Christ and is clothed in Christ's grace. Rather, the heart is painted with the name of Christ and the grace of Christ is united with the heart. Wherefore, the heart is in Christ, and Christ is in the heart. Christ swallows the heart, and the heart that is swallowed by Christ itself swallows Christ. The name of Christ is like unalloyed silver purified by five thousands of times. So the heart also becomes as pure as Christ's name.
Furthermore, the name of Christ is light, and so the heart becomes light. Christ invisibly dwells in the hearts of those who honor, glorify, and meditate upon his name. Where Christ dwells, there also dwells the Father. And wherever the Father and the Son dwell, there also rests the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Trinity is undivided and of one essence. From where, wherever the Holy Trinity dwells and rests, rivers of living water flow, that is, spiritual conceptions and torrents of holy wisdom. The heart that has become a dwelling place and home of the invisible and all-wise God gives birth to and gushes forth instructive, salvific, fruitful, wise, holy, and good words. As it is written, my heart overflowed with a good word. I tell my works to the king. At that time, the tongue cannot keep up with the divine conceptions being given birth by the heart. And so it says, my tongue is the pen of a swift writing scribe. Again, we say, beloved, when your heart is filled with evil thoughts and demonic ideas, like a body full of pus, then you must use a cupping glass to pull out, remove, and cleanse the pus and polluted blood from the heart that has been noetically wounded and beaten by the merciless and noetic thieves. The cupping glass I am speaking about is not the kind that doctors use on the exterior of people's bodies, but the kind used on the inner thoughts of the heart by the doctors of the soul, I mean the practitioners of the noetic prayer of the heart. For if your heart is filled with and weighed down by evil thoughts and soul-destroying fantasies, there is no other way to relieve the heart and heal it except by applying the prayer of the heart to your chest like a cupping glass. Just as the cupping glass is tightly affixed to a wounded body and sucks out all the polluted blood from it, so also the prayer of the heart, when it clings tightly to the inner chest, removes from it all the licentious and evil thoughts and cleanses it. Beloved, you can attempt to implement what I have been saying in the following way. Go, sit on a stool in some place, or stand if you wish, but bend over a bit and incline your head toward your chest. Then begin to say the prayer from the depths of your heart, tugging on your heart with the prayer that is in the middle part of your chest and your inner regions as much as you can. As the prayer tugs on your heart, restrain your breath as much as you can, fixing all your attention on your heart. If you do this, the exterior of your chest will be sunken in as if a cupping glass were being applied to it from within, because the noetic cupping glass of the name of Christ tugs more tightly than a physical cupping glass in order to remove the hidden pleasure of carnal desire from the chest and put another pleasure in its place, namely, the pleasure of spiritual desire. Every person will understand from what I am about to say that the evil desire of a man has the chest as its nest and throne so that it will be able to combat like some skilled and adroit fighter all aspects of the person. As someone says the prayer in the above-mentioned manner, carnal desire immediately departs from him and vanishes completely, just as frost goes away and vanishes because of the sun's heat. As soon as the pleasure of Satan has vanished, spiritual desire appears and takes its place. If Satan is not driven from there, and if his filthy throne is not taken away, which is disgusting and obscene thoughts, the pure grace of God cannot come there and establish the bright throne of its divine and spiritual conceptions. Take a castle, for example, 
which a certain king's enemies and traitors occupy. How can the king occupy his own throne and give orders from there unless his enemies and those who hate him are first driven out and destroyed? Consider also a cobweb-infested and unswept house that is a home for filthy worms and venomous scorpions. How could a splendid king dressed in bright and precious royal robes enter that house and lie down on that garbage and the worms unless it were first to be cleansed and made worthy of the king? The same holds for an impure and filthy heart. How can the splendid and purest bridegroom of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, enter such a heart unless it is first cleansed by his purifying name? To whom be the glory and the power unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 12 Concerning that the person whose heart ceaselessly repeats the prayer is revered and kept unharmed from every sin by the divine angels because God loves him just as he loved God with all his heart. Bless, Father. O monk, you who have left the world and the things of the world and have put on the grace-filled and angelic schema, if you want your soul to be graced and comforted by blessed and divine consolation, be resolved and struggle to acquire within your heart the meditation of noetic prayer. Try as much as you can to write and engrave on your heart the blessed and comforting name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By doing this, the holy angels will revere and love you. They will do this because the angels revere and honor the name of Christ, and so they will revere and honor that place where it is written. When you have written the prayer, which is the name of Christ, on your heart, not only will the angels revere and honor you as a friend of the prayer, but they will also become your lifelong, inseparable friends. They will invisibly accompany you along the roadways. They will protect you at night from nocturnal fear, and they will protect you during the day from the arrows that fly by day. They will assist you with your duties and wondrously strengthen you. They will enlighten you to speak wisely and unhindered when you are asked questions. They will stand and pray with you joyfully during prayer, entreating the Most High on your behalf. They will be your consolation and unexpected rescue during times of danger. You will not see these angels with your physical eyes, but you will feel and know their assistance. But sometimes you might plainly see them, depending on the ability of your soul and the purity of your heart. There will be joy in your soul if you acquire such blessed friends and powerful guardians. These angels are assigned by God to watch over your soul until they present it before Christ its bridegroom as a pure and spotless bride. For just as you, beloved, have cast off every carnal desire and vain concern and have completely given yourself to the study of the prayer and the remembrance of God, so also has God remembered you and claims you as one of his own having written your name in the indelible book of his divine memory. So rejoice and be glad, beloved, just as the Lord says. Rejoice because your names have been written in the heavens. Since your name has been written in the book of life in the same manner used to write his divine name in the book of your heart through ceaseless prayer, God takes special care of you as the apple of his eye, having concern for your soul and protecting it from every sin from everything moving in darkness, from mishap and a demon of noonday. This is because you also indelibly keep his love and remembrance deep within you. One of the fathers had the following to say about this. 
a certain brother was caught up in ecstasy and saw a great church. In the midst of the church was a splendid and glorious hierarch dressed completely in hierarchical vestments. The splendor and beauty of the vestments was so great that no tongue could relate the beauty and magnificence of that glorious hierarch. All around him were people in dazzling brightness, some of whom were like deacons holding indescribable censers with which they were sensing the blessed and heavenly hierarch, and some were like priests who were standing about him with extreme reverence. They were all wondrous to behold, for not only were their faces shining and venerable, but their priestly vestments were as well. Some were as white as snow and as pure as light. They were so fine and pure that if something like them were to be found here on the earth, and they were released into the air, the wind would immediately carry them up high, and they would never come down because of their great lightness and fineness. The vestments of some others was another sight to behold that no earthly tongue could express and no mind could comprehend, for there's nothing like it in the world. Others wore vestments that flashed like lightning. Some were standing to the right of the hierarch, some to his left, but they were all standing with great piety and reverence. The blessed hierarch was glorious beyond compare and greatly surpassed all the others in majesty, brightness, and grace, as the splendor of the sun surpasses all other heavenly bodies. The wondrous and incomprehensible hierarch was standing upright and looking towards the east. He was chanting somewhat quickly, with a great and clear voice, a sweet and inexpressible melody. As the monk beheld these incomprehensible things, he was in astonishment, and hearing the sweet sound and delightful melody, he was in wonder. On account of his great wonder, he forgot the words that the heavenly hierarch was chanting, not being able to recall even a single word of everything he had heard, even though he was careful to be very attentive. For he knew that the blessed vision would come to an end, and that those words would be useful to him in his, this life. Finally, having listened and forgotten, he did remember one thing the wondrous and blessed hierarch said with a great voice at the end. He said, as much as someone remembers and loves God, so much does God remember and love him. Then the brother suddenly came to himself and said at that moment he felt a fire within his heart that burned his heart like a lighted torch. As it is written, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us on the road and as he opened to us the scriptures. To him be the glory and the power unto the ages. Amen. Discourse 13. Concerning that if a struggling monk noetically prays to Christ with a contrite heart in times of sorrow and temptation, Christ reveals a divine vision to him that not only spiritually comforts him in his sorrow and gives him sure hope of future good things, but also makes him much more fervent in virtue than he was before. Bless Father. Hear a parable, O monk, about how your soul can have grace and boldness before God. If a brave and courageous man put himself in danger out of love for his king and performed a great feat of valor for the king's glory, would not that king honor him with royal and magnificent gifts? Certainly. The king would properly honor him and bestow on him fitting dignity. And if the same person later showed even greater love for the king by putting his life in danger every moment for the sake of the king and gladly were to suffer whatever tragedy 
and hardship that befell him out of love for the king. When the king saw his good disposition and courageous nature, would not the king bestow on him an even greater honor and higher dignity? Certainly. The king would honor him more so than he would be even more courageous in battle and more steadfast in his love for the king. And if that honored friend of the king proved himself worthy of the honor he received and expressed even greater love for the king by displaying more fervent zeal in dangers and battles, would not the king elevate him to an even higher rank and honor? Certainly. He would elevate him to the highest rank and honor and have him not as a mere and servile friend, but as a, his own dear brother. The king, however, did not bestow the highest honor on the person right away after that first valorous feat. He honored him according to each brave feat and elevated him from dignity to dignity, from glory to glory, from honor to honor, from grace to grace, and from rank to rank, until he elevated him to the highest rank of honor and made him his co-ruler and equal partner in his kingdom. The king did this with discernment and wisdom so that his friend would always remember no matter how high a rank he achieved, how many trials and dangers he encountered and underwent, that he would live a life worthy of his high office and always offer the rightful respect and obedience to the king. If the king had straightway elevated him to the highest honor, his friend could have become full of pride on account of the great glory and could have felt he received the honor by chance, thereby not honoring his office as he should. Then he would likely lose his glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly and all-wise King, does the same. He richly bestows divine gifts upon the person who sincerely loves him and who joyfully and gladly takes on his good yoke and his light burden. To such a person he reveals various visions and mysteries according to the purity of his heart, and he reveals his divine glory to him, sometimes more and sometimes less, in accordance with his struggle and the extent of his asceticism. His good spirit rests in the person because he keeps his divine commandments perfectly and because of the extreme humility of his heart. And so he endows him with his grace, as the scripture says, the Lord gives grace to the humble. The Lord of glory loves humility so much that when he was in the world, the bodiless one in a body, the invisible one visibly, and unseen in his divinity, he did not cover his holy flesh with the glory of his Godhead except for a moment at his dread transfiguration. But he was pleased to cover his divinity with his holy flesh, and nothing can be more humble than this. What could ever be humbler? One God, unfathomable, invisible, incomprehensible, boundless, beginningless, everlasting, and all-wise made the heavens, the stars, the angels, the archangels, the earth, the sea, the beasts, the reptiles, the birds, and every other visible and invisible creature. How could such a God accept to put on human flesh over his divinity and serve his creature as if he were his slave? I did not come, he said, to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. Therefore, Christ greatly loves the person who imitates his humility and simplicity. Christ not only loves him, but he also receives joy and gladness on account of the person's humility and simplicity. Wherefore the divine evangelist says, in that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit 
and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Christ then reveals various sights and divine visions to the person and comforts him with his grace during tribulations and temptations. Indeed, his grace comforts him even more when he sees the person giving a valiant and earnest effort, greatly struggling in his asceticism for the love of Christ. On account of his asceticism, his body is greatly afflicted, but during this time of hardship and struggle, grace suddenly comes upon him and comforts him in his tribulation by its appearance and presence. This comfort comes to him in the following way. Suppose there is a royal man who is a friend of the king and he is at war with the enemies of the king, protecting the king's castles. When he becomes distraught on account of the vicious war, if he happens to receive from the king comforting, encouraging, gracious, and promising letters, he becomes more earnest and courageous in the war because of the hope he has of receiving honor from the king if he comes out victorious. So also is it with the person who suffers trials and hardships for the sake of the kingdom of the heavens. He would become more fervent in his asceticism and receive great comfort if the Lord revealed to him a divine vision during the time of his tribulation. For as soon as the Lord opened the noetic eye of his soul, and as soon as that sincere servant of the Lord saw whatever the Heavenly Father deigned to show his servant, his heart would straightway leap inside him, ineffably rejoicing, and his flesh would be wondrously gladdened at the appearance of the divine revelation. For this reason it says, My heart and my flesh greatly rejoice in the living God. His heart and his flesh are gladdened because when he invisibly sees the invisible things, it seems that his flesh loses its natural heaviness and becomes light, as if he were some fleshless being. So he rejoices and is glad, and out of his extreme joy it seems that he is mystically and wondrously dancing, as if the world mystically and wondrously danced at the strange and incomprehensible incarnate economy of Christ. For which reason the prophet said, the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like flocks of lambs. From the moment the servant of Christ sees Christ, either as a patriarch celebrating the liturgy, or as a glorious king, or as a beloved friend, he greatly loves the way and the means by which he was deemed worthy to see the Lord of glory. The reason he saw Christ as he allowed himself to be seen was because of the prayer he made to Christ in Zion, that is, inside his heart, with a contrite spirit. The God of God shall be seen in Zion, says the prophet. From the moment Christ appears and the servant's heart sees him mystically, his heart is set on fire with love for God and compunction spontaneously comes to the heart. The seer of divine revelations sheds hot tears, being unable to restrain them, just as wax near a fire cannot but melt. His heart is softened after the appearance of the divine vision and clings wholeheartedly to all of God's commandments. If there's any virtue he wishes to implement, he easily accomplishes it by the grace of God because he has Christ who strengthens him in the good. As the blessed Paul says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Again, he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to the zeal and strength acquired by the person who sees a divine vision. There was a king who wanted to rule the world and enjoy every bodily pleasure. 
like Sardanapalus, and be glorified by all the people, like Alexander the Great. If this king saw for just a moment the least amount of God's glory, he would without hesitation leave his kingdom, the glory of the world, and the delights and pleasures of his bodily appetites. He would put on rough and old clothing and go roaming about the world, as the divine Paul says, among mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, feeding on wild plants in order to enjoy the heavenly and eternal things in the next life that have been seldom seen in this world. And this is fitting because the divine vision has the unique property not only to distance and remove the beholder of the vision from the things of the world and the delights and pleasures of the body, but also encourages and rouses him in his divine work when he begins to lean toward laziness and indifference. For example, a certain person renounces Satan and deserts the world and the things of the world with all his effort and becomes a monk. At the beginning, he serves Christ with much zeal and fervency of heart. But when the evil one's attacks and temptations and tribulations come at him, his heart might grow weak and become fearful. Then his heart's zeal might be drowned in the waters of despair, just like when the apostle Peter saw Christ walking on the sea and was at first eager to go to him. So he jumped into the sea and walked on it as if it were dry land. But when he saw the winds and the great waves going up and down, he straightway became afraid on account of his little faith. And he forgot the word that Christ had spoken to him when he said, Come. Lacking faith, therefore, he began to sink into the sea. But as soon as he said, Lord, save me, Christ stretched out his holy hand and saved him. This happens to whoever goes to Christ by means of divine labor. When someone is disturbed by temptations and tribulations, which it is necessary for him to experience in order to prove his endurance, if he loses faith by forgetting the words and consolation of God and his initial zeal and fervor for asceticism begins to drown, but then he cries out to Christ like Peter, Christ's grace reaches out to him and strangely strengthens him with its help, that is, with some divine vision, and his soul's zeal and fervor is renewed. For this reason, it says, your, your youth is renewed like the eagle's. It is said of the eagle that when it grows old, its wings fall off. They fall off on account of its age and its weakness. But strangely, by the command of God, it sprouts new wings and the old eagle is renewed. The same happens with the soul of the person who afflicts himself through asceticism and is entangled by the temptations and attacks of the ruler of this age. If this person saw some divine vision and received a visitation during his great distress, then he would not only forget the past labors and temptations, but he would add other new struggles to the former ones. As the blessed Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And someone else says elsewhere, the struggler will renew his strength. When a person bravely and joyfully undergoes temptations, tribulations, and hardships, he receives a divine visitation that makes him more earnest in coming tribulations, attacks, and temptations. Concerning tribulations and temptations, one of the fathers said the following, A certain brother was troubled and disturbed by some person, but he did not say anything and endured the temptation joyfully for the sake of the Lord. Being a man and wearing flesh, however, he slowly began to be troubled by thoughts and sorrow. 
So he sneaked away to a hidden place and prayed to God from the depths of his heart with sadness and bitterness, wetting the ground with his tears and supplicating God for endurance, patience, and forbearance. The Lord consoled him in the following way, and by this consolation made him more patient and earnest. A gentle and sweet sleep suddenly came over him where he had been praying with pain of heart. All of a sudden, it seemed like he was in the middle of a beautiful plain, so large that it seemed as wide as the heavens, and there were also people there, more in number than the stars or the sand of the sea. This is confirmed by what the beloved John the theologian and evangelist says in his Apocalypse. And behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. The innumerable people clothed in bright white that were in that beautiful plain chanted loudly in unison and with wonderful sweetness the verse, which says, As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Alleluia. The brother, surprised by the great multitude and the sweet melody, asked one of them to tell him who they were, why they were dressed in such splendor, and why they were chanting that particular verse. He answered the brother and said, When we whom you see and at whom you wonder lived in the vain world, we passed through the river of tribulations and temptations out of love for Christ. That is why our clothes have become so bright and white. Or don't you know that the, what the theologian who rested in Christ's bosom says about us? Quote, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The great tribulation we had in the world has now become for us great joy and a cause for boasting because we endured tribulation and temptation for Christ. And so we chant, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Alleluia. A Christian in the world is not clothed with Christ on account of the joys in the world. He is clothed with Christ on account of the tribulations in the world. That is why Christ said, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The Christian who has courage and hope in Christ should be brave and hope in Christ when he undergoes hardships and suffers for Christ, when he is scorned and shamed because of him, and when he is hated and ostracized because of him. For Christ says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He who does not endure such things for Christ, however, is not clothed with Christ, nor does he enter into Christ's joy. After he said these things to him, the brother came to himself and became even more eager to undergo every tribulation, battle, and temptation for the name of Christ, so that Christ might number him in the next life with those who were dressed in bright white clothes and who stand about the throne of Christ joyfully and ceaselessly glorifying him. Now, beloved, think about the great joy of those Christians who suffer here and pass their lives in asceticism and hardships. The words they will chant in heaven illustrate the immeasurable gladness they will have then, as they do even now. We do not always chant, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, alleluia, except during the joyful feasts of Christ. What I am saying is this, 
those who pass their lives here with great tribulations and temptations for the sake of Christ will be with Christ there and will see him face to face, keeping sweet company with him, as a loving son keeps company with his loving father. Christ will then be their every comfort and joy. They will not hunger there as they hungered here on account of Christ's commandments. As it says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. They will be filled not with food and drink, but with Christ's glory. As the prophet, king, and divine David says, I shall be satisfied with beholding your glory. They will not thirst there, as they willfully thirsted here in order to subdue their bodies. They will not burn there from the burning of tribulations and temptations as they burned here from tribulations and temptations as gold in the fire, thus showing their true love for Christ to be brighter than burning and purified silver. For Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, will shepherd them there in his kingdom and will guide them into the evergreen and fragrant sheepfolds of paradise, wherein the rivers of delight flow and the refreshing springs of the pleasurable waters of immortal life gush. The beloved John again says in his Apocalypse, quote, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. May it be that God also gives us in this life great tribulation in our hearts and many tears to our eyes, so that every tear may be wiped away from our eyes there in his kingdom, and so that our hearts may enjoy the true and eternal joy. May Christ our God count us worthy of this joy, to whom belongs glory and power under the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 14 concerning how the mind that is cleansed by ceaseless noetic prayer of the heart, which is the mother of tears, knows which thoughts that enter the soul are from God and which are from the demons. Also concerning mourning. Bless, Father. As soon as God's grace descends upon the soul and rests there, the pure and watchful mind knows that grace has entered and settled in the soul. The mind has its place and seat in the middle of the forehead, the highest point of the body, as if in a high watchtower, from which it sees everything from every direction. It knows right away if something is approaching the soul, and quickly informs the intellect to go with it immediately, and see whether that which is approaching the city, we mean the soul, is from God or from the demons. The meeting together and contemplation of the intellect in the mind is called discernment. And this discernment is true because the intellect, together with the mind, exactly and correctly judges and examines the various effects, the thoughts and attacks that slipped past the detection of the mind and intellect have on the soul and the body senses. The judgment made by the mind and intellect is correct and good, for it says, two are better than one. The mind and intellect leave good and beneficial thoughts alone and grant them free and unhindered entrance into the soul, but they reject and fight against evil and deceptive thoughts. When the mind is healthy, we mean when it has been purified and refined by abstaining from pleasurable food and drink, by abstaining from too much sleep and food, by the ceaseless prayer of the heart and attentiveness, 
by the constant shedding of many tears, by divinely illuminated self-control and silence, by pureness of soul and body, by brilliant humility and humbleness, by great patience in various temptations, and when it is illumined by frequent communing in the immaculate mysteries of the Lord, the mind quickly knows what is passing through it or what enters the soul by another way. For the thief, he says, does not enter the sheepfold by the door but enters by another way. And it knows if it is something divine or demonic. If it is something divine, it informs the prepared heart to accept it immediately and properly. But if it is something demonic, it informs and convinces the heart not to open any door to it, that is, not to accept it. It knows from where both types of thoughts come. For when a demonic thought passes through the mind, it causes disturbances and upsets the condition and stillness of the soul and of the body's senses, just as the wolf disturbs the stillness of the sheep when it enters their pasture and sheepfold. That is why it says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. When God's grace, I mean the comfort of the Holy Spirit, descends from above upon a person coming down from the Father of lights, it first passes by the mind's guard. It pauses there for just a moment to greet the mind, and then it straightway enters the heart faster than lightning. Just as when there is lightning, you see the flash of the lightning in the dark black clouds, where the lightning flashes with great and incomprehensible frequency, appearing like a bright and fiery rope, so also it is with God's grace. For when it greets the mind and appears to it, the mind recognizes its appearance and greeting in a very mystical way. And when God's grace moves towards the heart and approaches it, the mind immediately knows with what unexplainable speed the power and energy of divine grace passes from the mind of man to his heart. When God's grace reaches the heart, the pure heart recognizes the approaching grace and, it, and its repose in it, that is, the heart knows that God's grace has taken up residence in it. For the same energy of grace that occurred in the mind also occurs in the heart. When God's grace comes upon the heart and touches it, the heart's hardness immediately softens as wax melts before a fire, and from then on joyful tears well up within the heart. This is called joyful mourning. This mourning consoles the heart, gladdens the soul, raises the intellect to God, sweetens the mind, makes the face wonderfully cheerful, drives away despondency, cuts off the bodily passions, kills the soul's passions, engenders fear of God, and protects against every evil and sin like a fortress. As long as mighty mourning dwells in the heart of man, the demons will not dare approach, because the mourning will burn their wickedness as logs are consumed by fire. And the sin the scheming dem demons plan to set up in the heart will fail, just as wet tinder cannot be ignited no matter how much someone tries. Therefore the demons do not approach a mourning heart or draw near to it. Even if they approach the heart driven by their great evil, impudence, and envy, they will accomplish nothing. As long as mourning remains in the heart, the heart will constantly weep tears, and the ascetic's tears will exceed the water filling the font in which he was baptized. Whoever has this mourning must take great care then not to lose it, for it is lost, rather it departs on its own, when the mind is not attentive and when the heart is not praying. This is why the Lord says, watch and pray that you 
may not enter into temptation. Truly, the soul falls into great temptation when mourning is absent. For when a person is strongly tempted and attacked from every direction by the good-hating demons, he is easily defeated and mortally wounded when he is without mourning. Mourning departs, but just how it departs no one knows or understands, just as no one can understand how the days of his life pass. The person who has lost mourning knows only that it has departed, just as every person knows the days of his life have passed. But just how they have passed, no one can comprehend. When mourning has left a person, let him ask God for it again. For as long as mourning is absent, a person is deprived of great and heavenly gifts, as his soul becomes as poor as a destitute widow. When mourning returns, then a person understands that he has been without those gifts and what harm this lack has caused him. Let a person who has lost mourning on account of his carelessness ask God for it with true humility and modesty. Let him show God a sorrowful face, an afflicted heart and mind. Let him spread all of his soul's tribulation before God and all of his heart's suffering. Let him pour out his entire supplication before God, deploring his condition, as the prophet King David says, I shall pour out my supplication before him. I shall declare my affliction in his presence. Let him once again receive the grace of God, blaming himself as the sole cause for the departure of that blessed morning. Let him promise God that he will be more careful from now on. Let him show God sincere repentance. Just as mourning not only consoles the heart and soul when it is present, but also all the other powers of the soul and heart, and even the body itself receives comfort, let all of these bow down and supplicate God for mourning when it is absent. Let each do its own duty. Let the body suffer hardship through labor. Let the heart be crushed through sighs and the force of the prayer. Let the soul put on grief as a bride puts on black when she is widowed. Let the intellect and mind accompany the soul to the throne of the Godhead, and then let the soul fall down weeping with extreme reverence like a modest and sorrowful virgin before the feet of its Lord Jesus Christ, its pure and incorrupt bridegroom. Having sweetly kissed his feet, let the soul tightly grab his most pure and inexpressible beautiful outer garment and gently gaze at his sweet and incomprehensibly divine face. Then let the soul slavishly beseech him with fervent supplication, saying the following with fear and trembling mixed with love. A prayer. Remember, O Lord, that you became perfect man for the sake of man, and save me out of your love for man. Do not reject, O Master, my poor supplication for the sake of your all-holy name, but grant me your comfort. O my Creator, do not be wroth with me, the prodigal, for the sake of the throne of your divinity. O my sweet God, send me your rich mercies for the sake of your inexpressible glory. Mercifully sprinkle me, your servant, with your rich grace from your holy dwelling place, for I am greatly afflicted when I am without your grace. Do not be wroth with me, O Holy One, for saying so many words before you. For you, O Lord, know very well that I say these things out of my great bitterness, because I am embittered on account of the hardness of my heart. O Compassionate One, forgive all my faults, even from my youth. Forgive me 
whatever I have done to grieve you, my sweet God and Master, and your Holy Spirit. O you who do not remember wrongs, turn your face away from my sins and wipe away all my transgressions. My Lord, create in me a pure heart and establish a right spirit in my depths. Do not cast me away from your face, my Christ, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. For when you, Lord, my Lord, console me with your Holy Spirit, and I am sweetened by your grace, I am able to serve you with all my strength and zeal. Yes, heavenly King, my sweet Jesus, Lord of glory, glorified one in the council of the saints, I, the wretch, ask you again and again to hear me, your lowly and worthless servant, and give me once again your grace and the joy of your salvation that you justly took away on account of my innumerable sins. I beg you, Master, establish me by the grace of your all-holy spirit, so that he who constantly attacks me, your humble servant, in so many ways, may not strike me any longer, for he charges at me like a vicious and arrogant lion. For I entrust to you, O friend of man, my entire life and the hope of my salvation. For all the powers of the heavens praise you, and to you they offer up glory unto the ages of ages. Amen. When a person has said these things to God in a silent voice that is with his spirit, while bowing the face of his heart and body, and at the same time having his mind immersed in the abyss of humility, he will notice that his heart has softened and that his salvation is near. For the Lord drew near him in order to destroy and dispel by his invisible presence any hardness and opposition that prevented the soul from having a vivid divine vision of its God and that also deprived it of mourning. If hardness returns to the heart so that it does not weep, and the soul does not mourn for its bridegroom, and the mind cannot see its unseen creator because it is calloused, let him not despair and cease from his good struggle, but let him greatly reproach himself every moment, and he will shortly see God's comfort in his crushed heart, according to the saying, The Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. When the Lord invisibly approaches him, he will see God's grace working in him again. Tears will again easily flow. His heart will be at rest. His thoughts will be at peace, and his soul will be made new again as when it was first created. Your youth, the psalmist says, is renewed like the eagles. A person is assured that God accepted the repentance of his crushed heart like a pleasing fragrance from these spiritual signs. From then on, let him joyfully and humbly practice the Lord's commandments. To our God be the glory and majesty forever. Amen. Discourse 15. Concerning how one tests, by means of noetic and compunctionate prayer, every kind of vision and thought that appears to be from God, whether it is truly from God or from the demons. Bless, Father. Beloved, if someone gives you a gold or silver coin, with the king's image and writing on it, and on the surface it appears identical with the other royal golden coins, you cannot be sure that it does not contain false gold unless you test it with some inspecting device to see whether the inside is real gold or counterfeit. If you do not test it because you do not know how, but you show it to someone whom you know to be very experienced and skilled in such things in order for him to test it, he will be able to tell you if your coin is good or counterfeit. But if you show it to an inexperienced person with no skill in such matters like yourself, 
you will remain unsure about the coin's authenticity. And if the inexperienced person tells you it is good and you believe him, even though he is wrong, you will hold on to the counterfeit coin, suffering harm from his advice instead of benefit. Likewise, O humble one, you must carefully test things on a spiritual level, as you will see further down. Concerning the visions your soul sometimes sees that appear to be from God, you cannot be sure whether they come truly from God or from the demons. And for this reason there is a great war and much uncertainty in your mind as to whether the visions are from the demons or not. For the petty demons have a habit of showing visions to a weak-minded person as if they were from God in order to deceive him little by little until they cast him into the dreadful labyrinth of their incurable deception and manifold wickedness. This will happen if he accepts the visions they show him as coming from God without carefully examining them, completely and unquestioningly believing that he had them on account of his own effort. But you, beloved, whenever you see such a vision, do not give it quick entrance to your soul without suspicion, neither receive it into your heart willingly and carelessly, completely believing that it is from God until you have tested it with the ineffable, infallible, and pure inspector of noetic and compunctionate prayer, or until you share it with some spirit-bearing experienced father who you know has knowledge of such things and can solve your question and free you from uncertainty because of the things he has done, learned, and experienced. If you do not immediately accept the vision until you are sure that it is from God, know that you do not sin, because you fear that it might be an assault from the devil or some deception concerning this the blessed apostle says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. For oft times, things that seem to be from God are actually from the demons. Just as some people appear outwardly to be holy, they are actually worse than demons inwardly. And the Savior criticized the fraudulence of such people, saying, Woe to you hypocrites! The crafty demons do this, so you will give them free and unchecked entrance into your city, that is, into your soul. After entering your soul through craftiness and setting their foot there, that is, after taking over and capturing the dispositions of your soul, they can easily also capture the dispositions of your body. Then the demons suddenly take off the disguise of sheep's faces and reveal the form and ferocity of the wolf to your soul, using it to pollute your heart with impure desire. Furthermore, they try to throw you into committing physical acts of the devil, which would never have happened to you if the vision you saw were from God. When you see visions, conduct the spiritual test in the following way. If you find yourself spiritually at rest the day you saw a vision and not troubled at all by your passions, and your mind is also still and undisturbed by the contrary waves that usually upset it, or your heart, too, is in a peaceful state that day, and spontaneously fills with compunction, with no effort at every spiritual word. Indeed, it fills with compunction at the sight of the vision. If I say these things occur, and you find yourself in such a state, know that the vision was from God, and you should have no doubt about this. If, however, none of these things happen within you after seeing a vision that seemed to be from God, and for this reason you question it and wonder if it was from the demons, then, beloved, perform the following test. Gather all the attention of your intellect into the depths of your heart and noetically pray there from the depths, 
saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Say nothing else, and do your best to not let your mind think about, inspect, and occupy itself with the vision you saw. If your mind starts to think about the vision on its own, cut it off quickly and bring it back to the prayer of your heart, so your prayer can be presented pure before God. Praying thus with humility and extreme reverence towards God, if the vision was from God and you will feel within your heart a spiritual skip with spiritual tears when without even wanting it, the vision you saw enters your memory. Simultaneously with this sweet, unspeakable, spiritual and divine skipping of your heart and simultaneously with those spiritually sweet tears, you will feel that your every spiritual and bodily disposition is calmed, quieted, soothed, peaceful and at rest. And together with this calm disposition, the great flame of the love of your Lord is ignited that day. Burning from that flame, when suddenly you feel your insides greatly burning from the love of your Lord, you let out a deep cry to your God, howling at him like dogs sometimes howl after losing their master. Then, with a sad, whimpering, and compunctionate voice, you say to God while weeping, Where are you, my God, my God? And will you not bring me to where you are even an hour sooner, you who are my sweet love? Do you not feel sorry for me, my God, my God, that my insides are burning like a flame ignited by the unquenchable desire of your love that ignited within me like a sparking furnace? Never, my God, never will that burning flame within my heart be quenched, though I am apart from you, being in this world's valley of tears. What refreshment, O Lord, does the thirsty traveler receive from just thinking about water? He receives no refreshment, O Lord, but it makes him thirstier. Just as my soul, O Lord, that greatly thirsts after you, does not receive refreshment by thinking about you or from your visions, but it is consumed by even greater thirst when you, my sweet Jesus, do not take me to where you are, you who are the refreshing spring that satisfies my thirsty soul. O Lord, what happens to an exiled son who loves his father, mother, brothers, and country when he receives a letter from his beloved parents and family. Could it be, O Lord, that he does not drench the letter with his tears as he is reading it? Could it be that his insides do not burn as he sees the sweet names of his parents and brothers written on the letter? Could it be that he does not sigh from his depths as he thinks about his family? Could it be that he does not wail from his heart as he thinks about his friends and his country? If this, O Lord, happens to a carnal person, how much more does it happen to a spiritual person when you, our heavenly God and Father, visit our poor and wretched existence with the grace of your sweet divine sights, visions, and revelations, as if they were letters from you? For when, O Lord, the grace of those divine visions is imprinted in an unexplainable manner on the heart of one of your faithful servants. Your divine grace immediately makes the heart burn from the yearning, compassion, and eros of your love, and it makes his eyes warm from the tears of your desire when he lifts up the eyes of his soul towards you, his sweet God and heavenly Father. Lord, Lord, look down from heaven, from the holy house of your inexpressible glory, and look upon the face of my humble heart, which having been wounded by the sweet arrow of the spiritual and divine eros of your dear love, 
has melted like wax from great compunction from the moment it saw your divine vision. My heart was given your divine vision like a letter from heaven, and when my mind opened it and read it to my soul, my humble soul straightway clung to you. For my soul thirsted after you, as your meek and sacred prophet David thirsted for you. Your prophet, O Lord, the divine David's soul thirsted for you so much because of the divine manifestations, visions, sights, and revelations that you disclosed to him in certain times and seasons and particular circumstances, that his thirst for you could never, as long as he lived, be quenched before he came to you and before he drank the refreshing water of your sweet inebriation and enjoyment. And so, crying like a small lion from the depths of his soul, he sought to see you face to face, his living master and God, and said, As the deer longs for the springs of waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the mighty and living God. When shall I come and appear before the face of God? I suffer the same thing now, O Lord, and my poor soul melts because of its thirst for you. It seems to me that this thirst will slowly consume my insides and will not leave me until that blessed time comes for my departure from this world and until I come to you, my sweet Master and God. May it be, O Lord, if you love me, and I am convinced that you do, that this might happen for me even one hour sooner so that my soul's thirst for you might be satisfied. Amin, may it be, may it be. From such sighs, signs, and other similar ones you understand, beloved, and are convinced that your vision was from God. If things like this do not happen to you, beloved, even though you frequently prayed to God from the depths of your heart about the matter and placed your supplication and humility before the goodness of the Lord, Know that your vision was from the demons, because nothing like what we said above is found in demonic visions. In fact, exactly the opposite happens when your vision is from the demons. Listen to how this is. God is completely good, completely loving, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, pure, and pure love. As God is such, he also wishes for you to imitate his attributes. Namely, God wants you also to become good, loving, merciful, compassionate, long-suffering, patient, pure, and have pure love for your neighbor. But the devil is completely wicked and evil, and since he is such, he wants you to imitate his wickedness and evil. After you see the vision, beloved, if you notice that your soul suddenly rejoices in God's attributes and your heart is filled with compunction and extreme calm for God's attributes, know that your vision is from God. Since it is from God, your spirit is gladdened by God's attributes, and you are filled with a longing from heaven to imitate as much as you can your heavenly God and Father's attributes. All you want to do are those things that please and gladden your heavenly God and Father. But if after you see the vision, your soul does not rejoice in God's attributes, and your heart is not filled with compunction from them, and you experience no spiritual desire to imitate your heavenly God and Father's attributes, Know that your vision is from the demons. When your vision is a deception, if you very carefully examine the depths of your spiritual and bodily dispositions, you will find that they secretly, inconspicuously, and covertly incline towards the devil's attributes and will, wherein lies all the counsel of the demons of deception. 
in order to pull you towards them slowly but surely without you even noticing. And just as when someone puts water under your straw, as the proverb says, you do not realize the water is, is there getting the straw wet, so will it be with you, O humble one, if you are not extremely careful. Beloved, you should also carefully test every type of seemingly good thought with your compunctionate prayer to see whether it is really from God or from the devil. If the thought is from God, the more you, you burnish it with the pain of the heart, and the, the more it will shine within you like a pearl. And the more you set the thought on fire with your lengthy and compunctionate prayer, which you offer to Christ from the depths so that he may take it from you, the more the thought glows because of your prayer and shines within your heart, just as the more a goldsmith purifies and polishes pure gold, the more it shines. If, however, your thought is from the demons, as soon as it is set on fire by the contrite prayer of your heart, you will see it completely disappear. If it does not immediately disappear, it will gradually lose strength, eventually go away. When the holy and ascetic fathers were attacked by a seemingly good thought, they tested it with the sacred prayer. If the thought was from God, the prayer made it stronger. But if the thought was from the demons, the prayer immediately destroyed it. Or finally, if the thought was a, from a ruling demon and did not immediately disappear, nevertheless, the sacred prayer of the heart gradually exterminated it from the heart. Therefore, beloved, when you ceaselessly pray the compunctionate prayer of the heart from your inner depths, then you will not only have nothing to fear from the demons that tear at you with sin thousands of times, but you will also have nothing to fear when those same demons attack your soul with deception, that is, with seeming virtue, tens of thousands of times, wanting to ensnare you through this method more easily. When you constantly pray noetically in your secret heart, then you have the name of Christ within you, and it will not allow any demonic wickedness to touch your heart or approach your soul. That is why the prophet says, A thousand shall fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, yet it shall not come near you. To our God be the glory, power, praise, and majesty, now and forever unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 16. Concerning that a crushed heart scourges the demons more than every harsh punishment and burns up all their machinations like firewood. Bless, Father. 1. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer so that Satan's power will be completely stamped out of your heart. 2. Groan with bitter sighs from your depths with each prayer of your heart so that you will escape from the bronchial labyrinth and traps of the devil. 3. Cry to God from the center of your heart, so that your cry will reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. 4. Cry to your Christ with the silent cry of your heart, so that he will judge the demons that wrong you and fight the devils that attack you with the lightning of his Godhead. 5. Just as the devil, your bitter enemy, constantly fights and tempts you, so also should you constantly sigh to your Christ, so that he will quickly come to your aid. 6. Always fight back strongly against the deceiver, Satan, with the crushing of your heart, so that in turn his crafty head will be crushed. 7. Just as a man is fearful of grabbing a burning hot and sparking piece of iron, 
so also does the devil fear a crushed heart, for a crushed heart powerfully obliterates his wickedness. 8. When a fantasy from the devil appears to a relaxed heart that is not crushed, the heart receives it at once and the image of the fantasy becomes deeply imprinted. But a fantasy has no place in a crushed heart. 9. Wherever there is a crushed heart, every satanic ploy is dispelled and every demonic activity is scorched. 10. A crushed heart brings down the arrogance of Lucifer and lifts up the one with the crushed heart to heaven. 11. Beloved, crush the arrogance of Lucifer by the constant crushing of your heart, so that the Lord Almighty will crown your soul. 12. As soon as you crush your heart, the wickedness of the demons will disappear and the ray of God's righteousness will shine in your soul. 13. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will see your soul rush fearlessly at the devil like an angel of the Lord, once it has been clothed with the power of the Most High. 14. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that sin will be stamped out of your heart. 15. Not only does a demon, which is a servant of Satan, flee from the presence of a crushed heart, but also Satan himself, the chief of demons, flees faster than lightning from the presence of a heart that has been crushed by the prayer. 16. Just as a man will not enter a blazing furnace, so also the devil will not enter a heart set ablaze by forceful prayer. 17. Just as you cannot count the number of times a bee's wings flap when it is flying, so also you cannot count or comprehend the fleeting steps of Satan as he flees from the presence of a heart crushed by the prayer. 18. Just as a sentry recoils before an illustrious and brave soldier, so do demons recoil before a person who constantly crushes his heart with the prayer. 19. When a demon is ready to approach someone in order to capture his mind through deception, it first prepares itself for a gateway, a getaway, so that it will be able to escape the blistering lightning of a heart that has been crushed by the prayer. 20. As soon as a demon sees a person begin to crush his heart with the prayer, it does not dilly-dally. Neither does it scrutinize the crushed heart, but it is immediately shattered as it flees from the person's presence. 21. Just as an orator who is surrounded by flames does not discourse about fire, but is concerned with how he will save himself from the blaze, so also a demon, when it sees a heart ablaze from the prayer, is not concerned with the condition of the heart, but is concerned with how to escape. 22. A rabbit that is hunted by a dog has some hope that it will survive on account of its swiftness. Yet, when a bloodhound hunts it, though the rabbit runs as fast as it can, it becomes the bloodhound's prey. In like manner, a demon that is fought against by just any virtue has hope that it might escape the scourge. But when the flaming sword of contrite prayer hunts it, it knows that the lightning bolt of the prayer will quickly reach it and scatter the bones of its treachery by the mouth of Hades. 23. Sparrows do not fear an eagle's attack as much as demons fear the attack of a heart crushed by the prayer. 24. Limestone that is added to a fire is not consumed as fast as a crushed heart consumes and burns every demonic ploy. 25. Did the devil see a heart wounded from the crushing of the prayer? 
he was immediately reminded of Christ's wounds, which he bore for the sake of man, and so the devil was frightened and recoiled. 26. Beloved, crush the devil with the crushing of your heart, so that you will enter victorious into the joy of your Lord. 27. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan who deceives you will be smashed into smithereens. 28. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will put to fight, flight the one who lies in wait, scheming how to ensnare you in the net of sensuality. 29. Do not fear the crushing of your heart, so that the demons will fear you. For the demons do not fear a virtuous man as much as they fear him when he crushes his heart with the prayer. 30. Just as a snake fears the nails of a cat more than any other threat, so also Satan fears the crushing of the heart more than any other virtue. 31. The nails of a cat are lethal to a snake, while the nails of the devil are seven times more lethal to man's soul, but the crushing of the heart is seventy-seven times more lethal to the devil. 32. As soon as Satan heard mournful sighs rising up from the depths of the heart, he turned quickly to flee, for he knew that a heart crushed by the prayer was nearby, and therefore also Christ. 33. Whenever there is a crushed heart, the Lord is nearby, and so the prophet said, The Lord is near those who are brokenhearted. 34. As soon as a wolf heard the sounds of dogs, it immediately fled because it knew a shepherd and guardian of the sheep was nearby. 35. Mice heard the sound of a cat, so they immediately became still in their holes and nests and briefly stopped their stealthy thievery. 36. Did Lucifer's phalanxes hear sorrowful sighs of a heart? They immediately retracted their schemes and became still. 37. Did the demons hear someone sighing from the center of his heart? They disappeared from there because they feared the Lord's retribution. 38. When a thief hears the firing of rifles nearby, he does not look to steal any more, but how he will escape by fleeing and hiding. 39. When Satan hears someone roaring because of the groaning of his heart, as the prophet says, while shedding tears and seeking his creator, he does not look to steal anything else from that soul, that is, attack it with some passion, but he looks to see if he can somehow save himself. 40. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan's throne and arrogance will be crushed. 41. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that Satan will fear you and tremble when he sees you as a perfect and fully armed soldier of Christ. 42. Crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will humiliate prideful and arrogant Satan and stomp on him. 43. Did the devil hear a raucous voice because of the crushing of the heart? His power immediately dissolved because of his fear, and the flame of his treachery was extinguished because of his grief. 44. Did Satan see a stream of tears on the face of a person with a crushed heart? He was immediately scalded in that heart. 45. Did you spit blood because of the extreme force of the prayer of your heart? You cast caustic limestone in the midst of Hades. 46. Did you sigh from your depths? You pierced Lucifer's eye with an arrow. 
47. Did you remember Jesus your fashioner and weep on account of your joy? Scalding rain fell on Lucifer's head. 48. Did you call on your master Christ from the heart? You paralyzed Satan. 49. Did your eyes see an icon of Christ in the Panagia, and did your soul rejoice? Innumerable thoughts bombard Satan and swirl around Lucifer. 50. Did you call on the sweet name of Christ and the pure mother of God from your depths? You plunged your invisible enemy into nether regions. 51. Did your heart ache from the prayer? A stomachache gripped Satan. 52. Did your strength ebb because of the forceful prayer? Lucifer's strength dwindled. 53. Did you patiently persist in the prayer of the heart? Your soul beheld the Lord's glory as divine glory. 54. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? Your soul was fed by divine eros, and your heart mystically felt the inexpressible sweetness of Christ, your creator. 55. Did you crush your heart with the prayer and fall asleep? You saw a divine and consoling vision while you slept. 56. Did you crush your heart with the prayer until it ached? A stream of tears suddenly flowed from your eyes. 57. Did your heart ache from the force of the prayer? Your heart felt divine protection and grace. 58. Was your heart pained and cut by the forceful prayer? You quickly saw a divine vision with your spiritual eyes. 59. Were you fearful for your life because of the aching of your crushed heart? A hidden mystery of God was revealed to you. 60. Did you experience the grief and bitter pain of your crushed heart? Your soul truly tasted the sweetness of the Lord's almighty kingdom. 61. Did you lose your heart because of the force of the prayer? You saved your soul and gained paradise. 62. Did you give blood from your heart? Your soul received the Holy Spirit. 63. Did you sweat from your anguish as you prayed from your heart? You imitated the sweat of Christ, which became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as he prayed. 64. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? You raised the horn of your soul and crushed the horns of Lucifer. 65. Did a dry cough seize your chest because of the force of the prayer? Satan became severely ill, anguished by your anguish. 66. Was your voice cut off because of the immeasurable force of the prayer of your heart? Your soul sang a heavenly, incomprehensible, and sweet song. 67. Did your voice lose its tone because of the crushing of your heart? You heard an unbelievable angelic song sweetly sung to Jesus your fashioner. 68. Did you pray to Christ from the depths of your heart? Satan plugged his ears, unable to stand listening to you. 69. Did you sigh from your depths? Satan lost his mind because of his fear. 70. Did you send God a cry against the devil from your heart? You prepared a dreadful thunderbolt against Satan the deceiver. 71. Did your heart lose its contrition? The flesh marched against your soul. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? The soul marched against the flesh. 72. Did you crush your heart with the prayer? 
your soul became roused against the devil and hardened against sin. 73. When Lucifer beheld a crushed heart, he quickly recoiled because his strength was paralyzed by it. 74. Was your heart crushed by the prayer? The Lord's Spirit rejoiced in your soul, and Lucifer's battalion was vexed. 75. As soon as you crushed your heart with the prayer, zeal for virtue immediately ignited within it, and from that a longing for the Lord. 76. O humble one, crush your heart with the prayer, so that the Spirit of the Lord will renew your insides, and renew a right spirit in the depths of me, says the prophet. 77. Beloved, crush and humble your proud heart with the prayer, so that your soul will be loved by Jesus your fashioner, who is truly meek and humble of heart. 78. O monk, crush your heart with the prayer, so that you will mock the devil, the president of wickedness, reckoning his arrows as those of a little child. 79. He who crushes his heart with the prayer sees Satan as an ant and does not fear him. But he who does not crush his heart sees Satan as a lion and always fears him. 80. Did you violently crush your heart with the prayer? Both your body and soul quickly experienced rest. For the star of dispassion and purity always shines where there is a profoundly crushed heart. 81. Beloved, crush your heart with the prayer so that your soul will converse with God's angels, which is truly something blessed and desirable and very difficult to come by and attain. 82. O humble one, crush your heart with the prayer so that your body will be pure and your mind watchful. Purity and watchfulness are like two wings so that your soul may fly freely toward heavenly things. 83. O least of monks, constantly crush your heart with the prayer, so that the eyes of your mind will be illumined, with which you will behold the invisible things of paradise, just as you see physical things with your bodily eyes. 84. O monk, gather your intellect into your inner depths, where the throne of your heart is, and when you have fixed it there like a vigilant watchman, Repeat the prayer from your depths until your intellect is inexpressibly sweetened by the grace of the prayer. Then you will see it immaterially fly to the heavens towards God, where its true rest lies. Discourse 17 Concerning how the soul's vesture is kept pure, unstained and worthy of the heavenly kingdom, through the noetic prayer of the heart. Bless, Father. Man's intellect, that is his noose, is the adornment of the soul, and the mind is its splendor. So when we protect the purity of our intellect against filthy thoughts with the prayer of the heart and the purity of our mind against filthy imaginings, then our soul, beautifully adorned and modestly decorated, enters the bridal chamber of the Lord of glory. The soul does not enter with uncertainty and shame, for its adornment and splendor radiate like the sun but it enters with courage and boldness as a friend and acquaintance of the heavenly bridegroom. And when it has entered, it will forever rejoice with the saints. But when our intellect is filthy, murderous, uncompassionate, obscene, thieving, dishonorable, and wretched, and our mind is also contaminated and polluted by filthy and evil thoughts, then our soul's vesture is unworthy of the royal wedding 
and our soul enters the Lord's bridal chamber with fear and trepidation. For it knows full well that it must give account for every idle word. How will it not be examined on account of its even worse and more evil deeds? But perhaps it will escape this reckoning. No. For it says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Oh, what disgrace and shame awaits the person who did not keep his intellect pure and his heart and mind unstained while in this life, but succumbed to their desires for sin and stained them with sinful works. When he is examined by the supremely glorified king in the presence of all those with him, he will experience such shame and embarrassment that he will remain tongue-tied, unable to defend himself, as it says, he was speechless. But perhaps his condemnation and punishment was just to experience horrid shame and embarrassment? Absolutely not. The worst is yet to come, as it says. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth. So that we will not hear the same judgment pronounced when our soul leaves our body and stands polluted before the pure king, let us strive, before the sun sets on us, that is, before we die, to cleanse the vesture of our soul and whiten it like snow with tears of repentance, with sighs, by crushing our heart, and above all with the remembrance of God. For the remembrance of God, sighing from the heart, and the crushing of the heart produce salvific tears. Tears produced by a crushed heart, and the remembrance of God illumine the mind, cleanse the intellect, the noose, which is the soul's adornment, and make it completely bright, pure, and spotless. The tears seem to be something earthly in appearance, but they are not for they are heavenly, according to the Spirit. These tears mystically wash the spiritual vesture of the soul, making it as pure and white as light. When someone weeps for God, his intellect is enlightened, and his mind is illumined by the light of repentance. And then his soul's vesture becomes bright, just as it was before obscene consent and the works of lawlessness stained it. That man's intellect is enlightened and his mind illumined by tears shed out of love for God or by tears of repentance is demonstrated in the following manner. When man's intellect and mind are purified by tears, then man not only sees the nobility of his soul and the intimacy it has with the angels and all the other immaterial creatures of God, but he also sees as much as this is possible for man, the unseeable most high God himself, in proportion to the purity of his mind and the degree that his intellect has been illumined by the great streams of ceaseless tears. A certain wise man hinted at this when he said, The noose sees God. That is, the more the intellect is cleansed by ceaseless tears from the love of God, the more one sees the glory of God. If someone does not have the love of God in his heart, it is impossible for him to see God's glory. For when the love of God is absent from the heart, then a person does not even know what it means to shed tears out of the love for God. When someone does not weep for God, how can his intellect and mind be cleared of the fog of sin? 
By sin, I mean everything that obstructs the intellect from shedding tears out of the love for God. Therefore, when tears do not cleanse the intellect, it cannot see the glory of God. Neither can the heart taste the grace and comfort of the Holy Spirit. What I am saying only can be understood by those servants of God who have tasted this spiritual grace and comfort in their soul. And when a person's soul does not really and truly taste the grace and joy of God, neither can his heart be pierced by the love and tenderness of God, and consequently neither can his heart be freed from its desire and longing for earthly things. Whatever man's heart enjoys, that it desires, and it is the slave of whomever it serves. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Whoever is a slave to sin has his mind far away from the vision of God, and his heart is deprived of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, a comfort that consoles virtuous people. This comfort of the Holy Spirit is the pledge of the heavenly King. Christ invites us with this pledge, as if with a letter of invitation to the good things, which no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, that he has prepared before the foundation of the world for his friends. Consider a man invited to the joy of a marriage with an invitation. When he looks at the invitation, he thinks about the rejoicing that will take place at the marriage and anticipates the time when he is to go and rejoice and exult in the joy of the marriage. For this reason, it says, The Lord said this parable, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage feast for his son, that is, the heavenly God and Father sent his only begotten son to us, in order to invite us to his eternal kingdom. Your kingdom, it says, O Christ our God, is a kingdom of all the ages, and your dominion is from generation to generation. Christ has therefore invited us to his kingdom. But how did he invite us? With a mere word or some other way? Far be it that he has invited us in word alone. If a person of this present age invites someone to the joy of his son's marriage by sending an invitation notice, and a gift. How much more will Christ, who descended from heaven, for he says, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven. The Son of the heavenly and the most high King call us into his kingdom with a precious gift and invitation notice. That is to say, with a heavenly, immaterial, spiritual, divine, and inexpressible sign, for if he invited us by word alone, without any divine or spiritual sign, how could one be sure that the things he promised us would be given to us in his heavenly kingdom, as he has described them? Do you want to know what this sign is? Listen. And after listening, ask Christ to give it to you. For Christ himself says, ask and it will be given to you. Then your heart will partially understand things that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and intellect has not conceived. The heavenly sign that is shown only to us the faithful, just as the heavenly star indicated that the heavenly king had been born upon the earth for our salvation was known only to the Persian kings. The heavenly and spiritual sign shown and given to us by Christ so that we will know the future good things that Christ promised to give us in his kingdom is none other than the grace of the Holy Spirit. When this grace approaches man's heart, it sweetens it, comforts it, and informs it about the future good things to come so much that if it is as if the heart were pierced by a golden dart of divine eros and sweetly wounded by his love and tenderness. 
It makes a person indifferent toward the things of the present age and forget them, and causes him to love insatiably and desire fervently and with immense longing the things of the future age, waiting for the time when his soul will be released from this flesh and go to the things hoped for. Beloved, having heard about the sign Christ has given us, through which we can know the good and hoped-for things that he has prepared for us, listen now to how you can immediately be deemed worthy to receive Christ's spiritual and heavenly sign in your heart. Crushing your heart with the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, and saying this prayer for a long time from your depths and from the center of your heart, your heart is suddenly pierced by the love of God and his desire and eros ignites within it. For as you say the prayer in this fashion, your heart is immediately cleansed by the prayer and is made ready for its creator to dwell in it. My Father and I, says Christ, will come to him and make our home with him. Beloved, do you now understand why your heart was pierced by God's love and by his eros? Because God, its creator, came to dwell in it. Do you know that God has come to dwell in your heart by this sign alone, or is there another sign? Yes, there are many other signs that show us and convince us of this, which are called mystical signs. But only the heart itself, which has become the home and dwelling place of the invisible God, knows them. Only the heart knows them because God wondrously and inexplicably activates his divine and spiritual energy within it. However, someone has spoken about this in an exceptional and vivid manner, in the following way. When there's no particular reason for the heart to remember God, and for no particular reason the heart rejoices in this remembrance of God, and skips on account of the spiritual warmth it experiences from compunction, then the heart knows that it has become a temple and dwelling place of the invisible God. The compunction that arises and proceeds from the remembrance of God is an inexpressible joy of both the soul and heart. Such things follow the remembrance of God, especially after some divine revelation, divine appearance, and divine vision. Wherefore, when you hear about the saints dancing in the divine and holy scripture, as it says, Dance, Isaiah, the virgin has conceived in her womb. You should understand by this their exceeding joy, which they receive as they look upon the uncreated and inexpressible beauty of the Lord of glory. For when the saints see God face to face, which is truly the most blessed thing and the ultimate desire, they mystically dance in the joy of their Lord. That is, they are made exceedingly glad and joyful in the joy of their master. In an inexpressible manner, the same thing happens even now in this world when a servant of God is deemed worthy to see the frightful and unseen glory of the Lord. The heart of such a person receives such joy that it is impossible for any human tongue to express. For this reason, the Lord says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Meaning when someone tirelessly and earnestly practices all the Lord's commandments and his heart does not become prideful on account of the virtues he has achieved by the Lord's grace, but he rather grows all the more humble, then the Lord of glory shines a ray of his divine glory into the heart of his trusted and faithful servant, as when he showed a ray of his divinity to the three disciples on Mount Tabor. When the soul of his faithful servant mystically sees this ray of his divine glory and his heart inexpressibly tastes it, 
His soul exceedingly rejoices in that glory of the Lord, and his heart inexpressibly skips and dances within. This is what the words, Enter into the joy of your Lord, express, as if the Lord of glory were saying the following, O good and faithful servant of mine, since you tirelessly and earnestly practice my commandments, I deem you worthy to see my glory, and to behold clearly, as I alone know, my unbeholdable face, my incomprehensible face, my face that is more exceedingly desired than anything else. Whoever is deemed worthy to see it by my grace, his heart will rejoice, and his soul will be glad on account of the vision of my face. His gladness will be tens of thousands of times more than the gladness he would experience if he received all the good things of the world. A very compunctionate prayer. Lord, Lord, my sweet Jesus Christ, the King of glory, behold how I bend the knee of my wretched soul and pitiable body. I implore your sovereignty and fervently supplicate your incomparable goodness. Reveal even to me your wretched and humble servant, your divine face, your beautiful face, your blessed face, your pure face that is beyond all purity, which is the absolutely ultimate of all things desired, so that even I, the least of your servants, will see your face to the extent that my weak condition will allow me to see it. O Lord of glory, if I am deemed worthy to see it by your grace, my mind will be sweetened and my thoughts will be pleasant. May my meditation be pleasing to him, and I shall be glad in the Lord, said your prophet. And when, O Lord of glory, my sweet Christ, you reveal and show your glorious and gracious face to me, then I will wondrously be gladdened by your divine appearance. For beholding your glorious face, I will be mystically filled with the grace of your divine glory. As your prophet once again says, I shall be satisfied when your glory is revealed. But if, O Lord of consolation, you do not reveal the glory of your glorious face to me. How will I be spiritually gladdened, and how will I be able to love you, my God, as I should? And if I am not deemed worthy by your grace to love you, who are my God, as I should, how will it be possible for me to dwell in you, and you in me? Yes, O Lord of the powers, I beg you, show me your glory, for my soul longs and faints for your courts, the courts of my sweet Lord and God, O Lord, even if I am less worthy than a worm and the sinner of sinners, were I to be deemed worthy by your goodness to see you clearly and invis invisibly, my living Lord and God, with the eyes of my soul, as only you know, my heart and my flesh would straightway rejoice on account of that divine vision and appearance. My heart, it says, and my flesh greatly rejoice in the living God. The joy that my heart and flesh will experience when I am deemed worthy to see you will be wonderful and inexplicable. My Lord, O Lord of glory, at the moment that you deign for me to see you, it will seem that my flesh has lost its heaviness and become light, as if I have become some fleshless being. My flesh will feel such lightness from its incomparable joy and gladness on account of your appearance that it will seem that it has lost its natural heaviness. Wherefore, it will exceedingly rejoice at your divine appearance, and it will rejoice so much that it will dance in a mystical way, as the mountains mystically danced at your strange and unexplainable incarnate economy. The mountains skipped like rams, it says, the hills like flocks of lambs. This will happen on account of the sweet sight of your glorious face. 
Moreover, O Lord, if you deem me worthy of beholding you, I will receive assurance and be convinced that you love me and that I am beneath the invisible protection of your wings, my almighty Lord and God. Wherefore, from that time forward, having such assurance, I will want and be eager to serve you with all my heart and with all my mind, since my spirit will be set ablaze by the fire of your Holy Spirit. Indeed, with the recent experience of your divine manifestation before my eyes, I will make a sense in my heart and be completely determined to keep your commandments resolutely, as you have commanded us. You commanded us regarding your commandments, that we should be very diligent to keep them. Though I wear this body of clay and find myself caught up in the commotions of the valley of weeping of this age. Lord, my Lord, this is what I, the least of all, wish to achieve by your divine grace. My grace, you said, O Lord, is made perfect in weakness. For I will then be strengthened by your divine visitation, which will give me the strength to keep your commandments. And when, O Lord, I please you by keeping your commandments, then beyond all hope, the noetic eye of my soul will see invisibly as if visibly, and noetically as if sensibly, an invisible hand whiter than snow. Bless me with the sign of the cross from on high, from your unseen and frightful glory. Then, O my Christ, my almighty God and Lord, you will stretch out your visible and divine hand from your holy dwelling place and bless me with fatherly love and spiritual goodness. The blessing of your goodness will invisibly, richly, and abundantly rush into my soul from your immaculate and divine hand. The incompressible and evident blessing of the divine and venerable hand of your goodness will invisibly rush and pour over my soul with such gentleness as when the snow falls from the heights of the sky and there's no blowing wind at all. But while snow that falls gently from the sky is very cold, the blessing that comes down from your holy hand upon my soul is not cold like snow, but pure white as snow, and even whiter I will be made whiter than snow, said the scriptures. And it is consoling, sweet, graceful, and warm to my soul, since the blessing in all of these things, it will make my soul diligent, fervent, and strong in its service to you, and fervent to do your all-holy will. Therefore I will go from spiritual strength to spiritual strength, as the psalm says. They will go from strength to strength. O Lord of glory, having now received the gift of your grace, the works and virtues that seem great and beyond my ability prior to my receiving your grace no longer seem that way, but I am eager to multiply those works and virtues, having been strengthened by your blessing. And when, O Lord, I multiply them with your help, I will be surely convinced that I will receive another visitation from you, my God, no less than the first. You who are the Lord of all, the Holy One of Israel, the King of glory, will again appear before my eyes in a paradoxical manner, as only you know, when I am in need and when I am praying on holy Zion from the depths of my heart, as the prophet King says, the God of gods shall be seen in Zion. Yes, O Lord of the powers and Lord of mercy, by the prayers of all those who have pleased you throughout the ages, grant me this grace and reveal your gracious and all-holy face to me, which is the ultimate of all things desired. O Lord, you who are the most desired of every spiritual longing, it would be better for me, your servant, to see you for one hour and die than to live 
thousands upon thousands of days and never see you. O Lord of righteousness, if I were deemed worthy by your grace to see you but once, then my heart would be convinced that the divine sight of you and your holy appearance, which is beyond word and mind, would be unto me as an immutable promise of your future and divine kingdom. Contrarily, when I am not deemed worthy to see you, even once during this life, then my heart has no certain conviction that I will enjoy the glory of your kingdom in the next life. Therefore, O Lord, I pray to you, deem me worthy to see you and enjoy your divine and holy appearance. For you, O Lord, who search the hearts and reins of all people, know very well the desire of my heart, which I, the least of your servants, have for you. For according to the prophet king, I chose to be an outcast in the house of my God, rather than to dwell in the tents of sinners. Wherefore, O Lord, being righteous in everything, you have mercy on those who dwell in your courts out of love for you and love them. O Lord, this righteousness of yours was announced to us by your prophet and divine ancestor, David, when he says, The righteous Lord loves righteousness, his face beholds the upright. For you, O Lord, do not bless and glorify anyone as much as you bless and glorify the person who constantly glorifies you. For you alone are blessed and glorified unto the ages of ages. Amin, amin, may it be, may it be. Discourse 18 Concerning the spiritual signs that happen to the worthy and pure priest, from which his soul receives certain assurance that he is lawfully ordained, having first been ordained by the grace of the Holy Spirit, and that his divine liturgy is acceptable before the Holy Trinity. Bless, Father. When the worthy and pure priest enters the holy altar in order to sacrifice the Son of God to his heavenly God and Father, that is, when the priest enters the holy sanctuary in order to celebrate the divine liturgy, he is invisibly surrounded by a great multitude of the bodiless and divine angels, who assist him during the entire liturgy with extreme reverence. The holy angels assist the priest during the divine liturgy, but they by themselves cannot celebrate the divine liturgy without the priest. This is because the angels take on the role of deacons during the divine liturgy, just as deacons minister unto and assist the priest during the divine liturgy, but by themselves they cannot celebrate the divine liturgy without the priest. The priest is like unto a great official of the king, while the angels are like unto the king's soldiers and servants. The glory of an earthly king is his generals and soldiers. The glory of Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords, is the priesthood and his angels. Wherefore, we say that the priesthood is closer to Christ than the angels, just as generals are closer to an earthly king than soldiers. And just as when an earthly king bestows authority and a royal seal on someone, the rest of the king's subjects give honor to that person as if in honoring the king himself, so also it is that when the heavenly king stamped the priesthood with his own glory, the priesthood was honored and glorified above every angelic glory and every angelic honor. The priest was given honor, and he is honored by the church, that is, by good and pious Christians as Christ himself is honored by them. For during the liturgy, the priest is a type and representative of Christ. Whoever therefore honors and reverences a priest also honors and reverences Christ. And whoever spurns a priest also spurns Christ. 
When an official of an earthly king enters the palace, he enters boldly and approaches the king, reverencing and greeting him with joy. He then sits next to the king and speaks with him as a friend, mouth to mouth, ear to ear, eye to eye, love to love, just as two genuine and beloved brothers in the flesh speak to one another. At times the general speaks to the king, and the king hears him gladly, and at times the king speaks to the general, and the general listens very carefully to the king and answers him, Yes, yes, my king, let it be, let it be. As it says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the king's subjects and soldiers see the king showing such love toward his friend and the general, they begin to reverence the general even more. Indeed, when they see how the general defends and struggles to increase and enhance the king's glory under the ends of the earth, they obey, honor, and reverence him. Therefore, the divine angels reverence the priest and honor him. For the priest speaks boldly with the king of all, Jesus Christ, at whom even the angels do not dare directly look, reverencing the majesty of his glory and unable to gaze at the inexpressibly divine radiance of his face. The worthy priest, however, speaks with Christ, mouth to mouth, like an ingenious and beloved friend speaks with a genuine and sincere friend. And just as when you have boldness and close friendship with someone of greatness, you approach him and speak with him in secret, so also does a priest have boldness towards Christ because of the grace and dignity of the priesthood, and so approaches him and tells him all his secrets and mystical speech, that is, with a careful, still, and moderate voice. This is how the priest says his prayers, which indicates two things. One is the extreme majesty of that person with whom he is speaking. The other is the pure love and great boldness the priest has towards that person with whom he is speaking. When the pure priest prays the service of preparation prior to liturgizing, his heart leaps with joy within him because it knows whom it is about to receive. And when the priest puts on his priestly vestments, his heart within becomes like a sweet flowing fountain, for something very mystical begins to well up from it, something very costly, something very precious, and something very sweet, which someone could properly call the oil of gladness. At that moment, the heart, that is the inner man, of the pure and worthy priest is noetically anointed, but as if sensibly, with the oil of gladness. Therefore the priest sheds sweet and consoling tears for his beloved Christ. The more he ceaselessly sheds sweet tears for his precious Jesus, the more sweet gladness fills him, and the more and more than fills him. The tears shed by the heart when the priest speaks with Christ friend to friend and mouth to mouth are tears of complete joy, gladdening tears, consoling tears, gentle tears, and tears that completely sweeten the heart and mind. Christ pours out this grace like heavenly myrrh upon the heart that is over the noetic and unseen man and into the soul of the pure priest. In order to sweeten his heart with this grace, in order to encourage the priest and draw him closer to him so that the priest will not recoil from the fire of his divinity. As when John the Baptist recoiled and did not dare place his hand on his head to baptize him, but Christ reassured him with encouraging words. 
When the heart of a pure priest weeps during the liturgy, it weeps because his soul sees in retrospect its beloved and precious sweet Jesus. It weeps because it smelled the divine presence and ineffable fragrance of Christ. I say ineffable fragrance because sometimes when the pure priest is clothed in his priestly vestments, his nose is suddenly struck by some wonderful and ineffable fragrance, which causes his heart to weep like a small child and to melt from compunction and the profuse shedding of tears. Then that divine worshiper of Christ the Lord of glory understands from the sweet-smelling, ineffable, divine, heavenly, and spiritual fragrance that Christ, the author of the divine scent, has invisibly appeared before him. Rather, it is better to say that the heart of that blessed priest weeps because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit entered it, making it their home and dwelling place. Therefore it weeps, because Christ shows it as if in a mirror the inexpressible and flashing glory that awaits it when it is deemed worthy of his kingdom. The more the priest sees Christ vividly with the enlightened eyes of his purified soul, the more does reverence for Christ surround him. The more he is surrounded by reverence for Christ, the more does his soul feel the grace of Christ. The more noticeably Christ's grace works mystically in his soul, the more does his heart weep. Then his heart overflows with tears, and the blessed priest cries aloud, even more for his sweet Jesus. One could see then, see him wetting his priestly vestments with his tears, and he wets the holy table with the tears of his eyes, wiping them with the coverings and the veil, as if wiping his tears with Christ's very garments, moved by the love in his heart for his Christ, showing his Christ by this how much he desires wholeheartedly to be with him unto the endless ages of endless ages. The priest says to Christ from his soul, with a hidden and compunctionate cry of his heart, the following, Lord, my Lord, until when will you leave me in this world? And why don't you take me to where you are sooner, O my sweet Jesus? Then he even wets the holy, all-pure, and supremely all-holy bread with his tears, as he is bent over and very reverently crossing his face with it, ready to partake of it. He first kisses it sweetly with his mouth and then touches his forehead and each of his eyes with it, and then he partakes of it. Sometimes, as he is holding the holy chalice ready to receive the all-holy, all-pure, and living blood of Christ, he sheds so many tears that some fall into the sacred chalice on account of the torrent of sweet, warm, and consoling tears streaming from his eyes at that moment. As he is shedding those abundant and hot tears, he gently and boldly says to Christ, Remember me, O Lord, in your kingdom. O Lord, if you wish, receive my soul at this hour in peace into paradise and free me from this vain world. For now that my soul has seen you, my extremely sweet beloved, and now that I have partaken of you, my Lord and my God, I do not wish to live another hour without you, my sweet light, for you are my breath and my sweet life. During that time, the pure and blameless priest noetically becomes completely pure and gentle light. He comes to know great things, heavenly and mysterious things. Sometimes he sees himself somehow differently and is in wonder, since he sees himself as if without flesh. 
Contemplating what this could mean and how this change could happen, he again sheds rivers of tears. Sometimes he sees himself in the air, one or two feet above the ground, celebrating the divine liturgy like an angel of the Lord. But as soon as he sees this, it goes away. That is, the pure priest remains in that vision for as long as it takes to take one or two breaths, and then he quickly comes to himself again. Sometimes he feels as though he has become immaterial because his body seems very light. Other times, as he is communing, he becomes completely joyful, completely glad, and completely light in body and spirit, completely bold, completely good, completely guileless, completely innocent, completely holy, and completely cheerful. When the worthy priest worthily receives the Immaculate Mysteries of Christ, the name of Christ is stamped within him, and his heart is wounded by the sweet arrow of divine eros. And so he desires and longs to shed his blood, if the proper time would come, for the love of his Lord and God. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord, said the prophet. Did the pure priest receive the divine mysteries and drink from the cup of the saving blood of Christ? His soul immediately became inebriated with heavenly things, having been pierced with desire for Christ. From that time forward, Eros and love for Christ seize him, and he no longer wishes to know anything about the world or the things of the world. For at that time, indeed, for that entire day, he is completely occupied with Christ and thinks only about Christ. Therefore, he has absolutely no appetite for food that perishes, since his soul has been filled with the food that remains forever. His food and drink are the all-pure body and the all-pure blood of Christ. Consoling mourning and tears which he sheds for Christ are his comfort. His delight and pleasure is the remembrance of Christ and to meditate upon him. The priest, who is invisibly ordained from above by divine grace and whose liturgy is pleasing to God, feels the grace of God strike him and touch the middle of his forehead like a sweet and gentle breath when he takes his Epitrachelion blesses it with the prayer and places it over his head and onto his neck. To the body it seems like something unfelt and immaterial, but it is felt by the mind, heart, and soul since it affects its spiritual energy in them. As soon as the grace of that noetic and divine breath touches his forehead, the divine energy of the stole pours over the priest's entire body and his entire soul, and so the priest becomes elated, cheerful, full of hope, and compunctionate. From this sign, the priest feels in his mind and receives complete assurance that he is an acceptable mediator before God and that he is a worthy celebrant of the divine and immaculate mysteries of the Lord Jesus, before whom he intercedes with extreme reverence and many tears for his own sins and for the sins of every soul that believes in Christ. The priest does not always experience this sign of divine consolation, but only sometimes, when it pleases his Christ to comfort him with this good sign. When it rains, there is not always lightning in the sky, but only sometimes, sometimes more, and sometimes less. It is the same with the worthy priest and pure celebrant of the Lord. For the worthy priest is always an acceptable mediator to God and is heard by him, but God does not always give the priest his grace in an obvious manner, so that the priest always feels it. This is not to say that God 
God does not always give his grace to the worthy priest. The priest, however, who wishes to clearly experience God's grace should mortify his body through ascetic discipline, crush and wound his heart with the force of the contrite prayer, and unite his mind inseparably to the remembrance of God. When the worthy priest's soul longs to celebrate the liturgy, he liturgizes with his spirit together with the angels in a secret and unexplainable manner. Oftentimes, especially when he is preparing himself, he who is always prepared, with an even greater preparation than usual, so that his conscience will not reprove him in even the smallest thing, suddenly and unexpectedly, without even supplicating God about it, the eye of his heart opens, and with his spiritual eye he sees himself clothed in all his priestly vestments, when in reality he is not wearing them at all. Sometimes he sees the roof of his house open up, and he sees heaven open up above him, from where some immaterial beings clad in white bring him priestly vestments upon a precious, priceless, and heavenly basket. They bring him those heavenly and divinely woven vestments in order to clothe him, and thus bring him spiritual comfort and gladness. What exactly those priestly vestments are, only those who see them know, for they saw them with the eyes of their soul. But for someone to describe them with words is impossible, because things immaterial and heavenly are incomprehensible and unexplainable. The soul clearly beholds these things and truly sees them as it alone knows that it saw them, because it saw what they really are, while the mind, after the vision, only thinks about what sort of revelations they were. But it cannot perfectly understand them, because it cannot enter into their innermost parts. Therefore the scripture says, And the heart of man has not conceived of such things. At other times, when the worthy priest is wearing his priestly vestments in his ecstasy, he sees them as divine and immaterial vestments. Sometimes the priestly vestments he is wearing appear to him as a garment of lightning, sometimes as a garment of light. Therefore it says in the gospel, and his garments became white as light. When the pure priest wears his priestly vestments and senses the holy table, prior to proclaiming, Blessed is the kingdom, at the beginning of the divine liturgy, he sometimes feels the grace of the Holy Spirit in his heart in an unexplainable way. This grace of the Holy Spirit that touches his heart at the beginning of the divine liturgy remains with him in a palpable manner until the end of the liturgy, secretly affecting its spiritual and divine activity. Sometimes that same grace of the Holy Spirit remains palpably in his heart for almost the entire day, if that genuine liturgist of the Lord is very diligent in his spiritual duties. This way he will feel the grace of the Holy Spirit upon him that day operating invisibly and ineffably in his heart. That day then becomes for him a day of spiritual gladness, a day of true delight, a day of vivid consolation, and a day of inexpressible joy and happiness. The day that a person lives with God, together with the grace of God, and dines with that grace, sleeps sweetly with it, sits with it, and keeps company with it, is the day the prophet king was speaking about when he said, This is the day which the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The spiritual joy the pure liturgist of Christ feels when the grace of the Holy Spirit comforts him 
is a great and holy joy indeed, as it is a joy that cannot be taken away, not by man, not by a demon, or any other creature, be it sensible or noetic. Concerning this joy, the Savior says, No one will take your joy from you. And sometimes when the worthy and pure priest is performing the service of the proscomitee, he suddenly sheds tears and experiences a wondrous sweetness in his heart and mind. The priest who wishes to celebrate the divine liturgy blamelessly must live a blameless life, meaning he must be pure in thought, flesh, and spirit. His mind should be illumined by ceaseless tears. His intellect should be pure, free, and very noble, so that it may always be high in the heavens as much as this is possible. His heart should be a dwelling place and vessel of the Holy Spirit. His thoughts should be good and beneficial. His mental conceptions should be spiritual. The meditation of God should always be nested in his heart. The fear of the Lord should be deeply rooted in him. The love of God should live in his soul. He should hate evil things, avoid depraved things, and meditate on good things and practice them. He should be careful to read divine books. The commandments of Christ should rule him, inasmuch as he eats the all-immaculate body of Christ and drinks the all-pure blood of Christ with his mouth, he should be both pure and temperate in body and spirit. Let him consider whose liturgist he is and whom he serves. Let him celebrate his liturgy in fear and rejoice in it. Let his flesh tremble and his soul rejoice. Let his body be subject to the will of the soul and his soul subject to the will of the Lord. Let him not live in himself, but let Christ live in him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, said the divine Paul. He should live in Christ, and Christ should live in him. Let him discipline his flesh through various ordeals until his evil passions are deadened and until the ray of his purity noetically shines like lightning as the appearance and visage of the angels shines. His appearance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow says the scripture. The priest should eat only as much as he needs to live. Let him lead a pure and watchful way of life so that our opposing enemy will not be able to injure him using his own flesh against him, that is to say, by carnal pleasures, not even while he sleeps. For the priest who has mortified his own flesh and passions is always worthy to celebrate the liturgy, and he always celebrates with the manifest feeling and noetic understanding of the power of the divine liturgy. Above all, the priest should be extremely humble in everything he does and think about the things that Christ's grace accomplishes in him, always knowing that it is Christ's grace working in him and not his own effort. For it says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Out of his envy, Satan oftentimes tempts the priest in his sleep with fantasies in order to prevent him from celebrating the divine liturgy that day. For the liturgy of the pure priest greatly scourges Satan's activity, and so Satan never ceases from tempting him. In order for the priest to completely conquer Satan's temptation, let him fast his entire life and never break it. In addition to this fasting unto the cleansing of his body from natural impurity, let him also practice the ceaseless meditation of the noetic prayer of the heart in his mind and heart, just as a clock constantly ticks in order to keep its appropriate time and thus be pleasing to man. Let the prayer constantly tick in the heart of the priest in order to please Christ. 
The fast of the priest is worth more when the prayer of the heart accompanies it. For when fasting is joined to the prayer, it drives the demons away from the priest that tempt him during sleep. That is, it liberates him from the passions, rendering him passionless. This is what the Lord says. This type is driven out by fasting and prayer. For tell me, what person does not have this type of passions within him? And who, while always fasting and ceaselessly praying, will not be liberated from this type of the passions? This is obvious from the lives of the holy ascetic fathers, who were all liberated from the passions by fasting and prayer, and were pleasing to God. Fasting withers the passions, while prayer scourges the demons that inflame and excite the passions. The mind of a priest must always be bright, attentive, and watchful. His mouth should not speak before the mind. His eyes should be simple and guileless. His feet should be true and free of scandal, meaning the priest should walk modestly and humbly. His hands should be pure, and they should not sneakily grasp any member or out or place out of curiosity and not touch anything with a sensual touch. When a thought tells him to do some such thing, let him remember and think about whom his hands grasp during the divine liturgy and at whom he looks and before whom he stands. For if he thinks about these things and like things, that evil thought will immediately disappear from his heart. Rather, Satan will immediately disappear who sows such thoughts in his heart. When sheep are without their shepherds and without guard dogs, they are devoured by wolves and other savage beasts. In like manner, the rational sheep of Christ, that is, Christians, become noetic food and pray for the demons without the priesthood and without the prayers of these friends of the Lord. It is true, O blessed flock of Christ. The priesthood is a great help unto the entire race of Christians. For when the worthy and pure priest of Jesus Christ and the Most High God weeps and bends the knees of his body and soul and offers supplications to the Creator and the compassionate Christ on behalf of his chosen flock, for which Christ shed his all-holy blood upon the cross, it is impossible for the priest's humble supplication and compunctionate entreaty on behalf of Christ's flock not to be heard by Christ. Just it is impossible for an earthly king not to hear the supplication and just intercession of his great commander and close friend when he intercedes on behalf of a city worthy of being burned and destruction, that the king might spare it and not destroy it. So when his pure and worthy liturgist, who sheds his tears like pure oil before the holy table, fervently supplicates our Lord Jesus Christ, how can the Lord not hear him and not fulfill his soul-edifying and salvific request? For the scripture says, He shall do the will of those who fear him, and he shall hear their supplications and save them. When the pure and worthy priests and liturgists of the Lord knock on the heavenly gate of the upper Jerusalem with their compunctionate prayers, the heavenly angels quickly run and open the gate of life to them. The angels bring them into their own company because they recognize them by the grace of the priesthood since they are both servants and ministers of the same master and liturgists of the same mystery. The appearance of angels shines like lightning. Likewise, the appearance of worthy priests noetically shines like light. Angels are a fiery flame, and the souls of the worthy liturgists of the Lord are like a flame of fire, as it is written, 
who makes his angels, spirits, and his liturgists a flame of fire. Whatever angels possess, so also do the Lord's worthy liturgists possess in their invisible and noetic self. The angels surround the throne of the Godhead. The priests also perform divine work. The priests differ from the angels only in the fact that they wear a body of clay, which in a little while, as something foreign to them, will be left in a foreign place. By this we mean that they leave the physical body to the physical elements from which it was composed. The angels, the guardians of each Christian, supplicate God on behalf of the soul each of them was given to protect. Worthy priests supplicate God on behalf of not only one soul, but on behalf of every Christian soul. The priesthood must be accompanied by fasting and noetic prayer of the heart, as was stated above. For when a priest always fasts and ceaselessly prays noetically from his depths, he truly feels the grace of God within him when he celebrates the liturgy. What we mean is that he experiences some spiritual signs of the heavenly kingdom within himself. For sometimes the noetic eye of his heart opens and beholds as in a mirror and in an instant some of the mysteries of God that are above in heaven. The mysteries of God that are veiled, invisible, and hidden to the heart's eye of the rest of the people are no longer hidden, invisible, and veiled to the heart's eye of the priest, but are known and beheld by it. From then on his intellect is caught up to heavenly things, and all the strength of his inner person is fixed thereupon the things revealed. This is what is called watchfulness of noose, watchfulness of the intellect. For after these things, the mind does not cease from beholding and being attentive to that which the heart's eye saw interiorly. Neither does the heart cease from desiring and thirsting for him who showed it, as if in a mirror, some of the mysteries that are hidden from the bodily eyes. And since that beholder of divine mysteries and sacred celebrant of the Lord cannot find God himself, his heart's beloved, he begins to sigh from his depths with sorrow of heart. God in his extreme love and the sweet arrow of this love wounds his heart and his mind is pierced by it. Therefore he groans for God from his depths. He sighs from his heart. He calls and cries out with bitter and sweet tears for God to transfer him sooner from the grievous things of the present life to the completely delightful things of the future blessedness. Sometimes, while the communion hymn is being chanted, and the pure priest is reading the communion prayers with great reverence and care from his heart, like the prayer, I believe, O Lord, and I confess that you are truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the rest, <clears throat> he looks at the holy bread and precious blood of the Lord with his bodily eyes, while his noetic eyes he intently looks at the Lord of glory, who rests upon the dread mysteries, before whom he is standing at that moment with extreme reverence and attention, contemplating the incomparable love he had for man. So much did he have for us that the bodiless one took on a body and delivered this holy mystery to man in order to sanctify him by it and make him one with himself, that is, to deify man through the communion of his immaculate mysteries. The body of God both deifieth and nourishes me, it deifieth the spirit that is the soul, and wondrously nurses the mind. Intently contemplating these things and like things, and meditating upon them reverently, he is surrounded with so much reverence 
that no tongue could ever describe it in words. At the same time, so many tears pour from his eyes that he wipes them with his hands and casts them onto the holy table, thus sprinkling with his tears the antimension, the holy patent, the holy chalice, the sacred covers, the asterisk, the divine icons around the holy table, and nearly every other divine ornamentation on or around the holy table. When this happens to Christ's genuine friend and his worthy liturgist, the pure priest leaves aside the reading of the prayers. Rather, without wishing to, he forgets the order of the prayers on account of the torrents of his tears. And from his heart, he noetically says the following words with great reverence to Christ. My sweet Jesus, may my humble tears be to you like the myrrh of the myrrh-bearing women, with which mingled with their tears they sprinkled your tomb. O my Jesus, may my tears be like the pure myrrh with which Mary, Lazarus's sister, anointed you by wiping your holy feet with her hair. Seeing you the ultimate and pure love, she was moved by the flame of spiritual love ignited within her. O my Lord, may the tears that I offer you from my heart at this moment be pleasing to you, as the widow's two mites pleased you, whom you praised for her courageous act, giving all that she possessed in order to buy your kingdom. May my poor tears, O Lord, that pour out like rivers before you, be a bath under the remission of all my sins. May my poor tears, O Lord, that pour from a fervent heart, be acceptable to you as a sweet-smelling incense, as the prophet says. May my hot tears, O Lord, that are being shed at this moment by the humble supplicant of your compassion be a spiritual pledge of the eternal kingdom. Yes, my sweet Jesus, I dedicate my humble and very poor soul to your rich compassions that you may lead it into your joy. O oh, my sweet Jesus, I have a great complaint against you because you will not bring me to where you are sooner, you who are the eros of my heart and my joy. You know very well, O Lord, that I desire you with all my soul and that I love you from my heart with a pure and sincere love. My love for you has become an unquenchable flame in my heart, on account of which my heart always burns, but is never scorched. My Lord, my noetic eye is fixed on you, and I accept every spiritual consolation from you. Never, my sweet Jesus, my Creator and God, never will I cease from beseeching your love, knocking on the door of your compassion with the deep sighs and groans of my heart until you grow tired of me and therefore take me one hour sooner to where you are my sweet light woe is me o lord woe is me alas for this temporary life of mine has departed far from you free me this moment o lord i beg you from the chains of this present life so that i may go to that blessed and ageless life of your divine kingdom and do not delay me, whom you have loved out of your goodness. Will you not cool by your consolation that which your love has scalded, O Lord? You will soothe and cool it, O Lord. If you take me to yourself, to where you are, you who are my consolation. Now I turn my words towards you, the divine angels, and my concelebrants. And I ask you, not with an audible voice, but with the streams of my tears and with a crushed heart, to tell me, where is my great love? Where is the God of my heart? How long will he leave me and let his love burn me? I confess to you, O divine angels, the pain of my crushed heart. 
I have decided this moment not to give my eyes sleep or my eyelids and temples any rest until I obtain my God and your God as my soul has desired. Please tell me, O heavenly angels, tell me where my sweet Jesus is, for whom my heart has longed from the moment it inexpressibly tasted of his goodness. Until when will he remain hidden from me, and for how long will his compassion not feel sorry for me? Out of his love he bent the heavens, descended to earth, took on flesh from her whose soul radiates, the ever-Virgin Mary and Bride of God. How can it be, then, that he does not show himself to me? Where are you, O my Jesus, my sweet Jesus? Where are you? I have not seen you long enough, you who always see me and I see you. O Lord, my Lord, may the veil over my soul be lifted so that it may see you, no longer as if in a mirror, or in sights, or in divine visions, or in ecstasy, but clearly, face to face, falling into your holy and divine embrace, and not being able to sweetly kiss you enough, my sweet Jesus and God. Only then will my unquenchable thirst for your love be satisfied. Will you give me no answer, my sweet Jesus? I ask you, why did you come to earth? What did you seek in this troublesome world? Tell me, O Lord, you who are the true wisdom of the Father, what does that hymn of the Feast of the Ascension mean when it says, O Christ, having taken upon your shoulders our nature which had gone astray, you ascended and brought it unto God the Father? Bring me too, O Lord, out of this present life and swiftly place me in the presence of my God and in your heavenly kingdom, since I am one of your creatures, which you purchase with your precious blood. For I am your servant, O Lord, albeit unworthy. I am your servant and a son of your inheritance. I am one of your flock, O Lord, for whom you suffered much, my sweet Jesus and Master. You redeemed me from the eternal exile of bitter death, granting me eternal life by your rich mercies. O Lord, as long as you do not take me with you so I can enjoy you as I desire, my soul suffers great sorrow on account of this separation from you. For you know exactly, O Lord, you who search my reins, the desire and eros my heart has for you, so why then do you keep your kingdom far from me? May your kingdom come, O Lord, may it come quickly, even to me. My insights have burned out of love and desire for you. O Lord, what does it profit a starving person to be shown a warm and fresh loaf of bread, but not be given it to eat? Perhaps just seeing it satisfies him. How can I be filled by you? O oh God, my God, when you reveal a small amount of your grace to my soul and then hide it again. Does this not, O oh Lord, just burn me all the more? I know very well, O oh Lord, and have come to understand that you are for my soul an insatiable satiety of every spiritual good, even from the least and smallest revelation of your holy grace, which you show me, your humble servant, in intervals when you so will. O oh Lord, now that I have come to understand these things about you, why do you keep them from me and not give them to me forever, to have them eternally, after you take me to where you are? O oh, the God of my heart, the insatiable satiety of every spiritual and inexpressible satiety. O oh Lord, what does it profit a convict if the king releases him from the chains of his cell, taking him to see all the royal goods and precious items in his royal treasury, promises them 
and many other expensive things to the convict, but then locks him up again in the prison, where he enjoys no comfort or consolation whatsoever. What comfort and consolation then can my soul have? My sweet Jesus, you who are sweet nectar to my soul, when you, my Lord and my God, show my soul only the wonderful grace and divine delight of your kingdom, as if to release my soul from the bonds of my lowly body, in order to bring it into the spaciousness of your indescribable kingdom. But then hide your divine grace again from my lowly soul, as if to lock it up again in the prison of my wretched body. Everything is dependent upon your command, O Lord. Whatever you will happens immediately. For what is there that you willed, O Lord, that did not straightway happen as you commanded and deigned? You commanded heaven to be, O Lord, and it immediately came to be. Whatever you said to happen with your word, O Lord, was immediately accomplished. As soon as you spoke, it happened. So what great thing is it, O Lord, for you to speak one sweet word for me and for it to happen? Yes, Lord, may it be, may it be, for everything you willed came to be. You are God, O Lord, and anything you will comes to be. All things whatsoever our God willed he did in heaven and on earth. O Lord, if only that which I, I, your supplicant, long for with my heart were given to me by your goodness sooner. Amen. May it be. O blessed priest and liturgist of the Lord, when you worship him, whom the trembling and fearful prophet Isaiah saw seated upon a glorious throne and hymned by thousands upon thousands of holy angels, when you boldly speak with him on whose indescribable brightness the seraphim dare not gaze, covering their faces with two wings and their feet with two wings, so as not to be burned by the fire of the divinity. And with the remaining two wings, they fly with great reverence around the throne of the Godhead, chanting, singing, crying out, and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. When you grasp and touch the ungraspable, and untouchable, holding the unholdable in your hands with extreme reverence, and proclaiming, Let us be attentive, the holy things are for the holy. While torrents and rivers of tears pour from your eyes and wet your face and beard, when with tears you carry him who mightily carries you, and the entire creation, and when you look at him who looks upon the earth and makes it tremble, I ask you, for the sake of the love you have for him who is broken by you, but not divided, to remember me also, the poor, hopeless one, before him who is always eaten but never consumed. I ask you, entreat him on my behalf who am destitute, for I do not have even a speck of goodness about me, that he may look upon me with a compassionate and sweet eye at his second coming, when he will judge the entire world, for I, the humble supplicant of your holiness, believe that your supplication is always heard by God, but that you are heard all the more by your Christ when you are celebrating the divine mystagogy, shedding many tears before his divine majesty and beseeching him with the pure love on behalf of the whole world. There is no better or more appropriate time than when you are communing to be heard. For at that moment the holy bread, I mean the all-immaculate body of Christ, is still in your mouth. 
Your eyes shed tears like streams. Your hands are cleaning the holy patent as your tongue and your mind are earnestly praying, Wash away, O lover of man, the sins, iniquities, and transgressions of your servants commemorated herein. Therefore I ask you, O liturgist of the Most High, to offer also a single prayer for me unto your Christ at that time, and to shed just one stream of tears on behalf of my despairing soul, because the pure tears you shed at that time on the holy table have one strength, while my poor tears lack boldness, have another. The tears shed by a sinner for his sins are like the tears of the harlot and of the publican and the rest of sinners, who were barely and hastily saved because of their tears. But the tears shed by the righteous and worthy are blameless and blameless priest during the liturgy for the love of Christ are much more precious and acceptable to Christ. They are like the tears of our supremely praised Lady, the Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary, and the tears of St. John the Theologian that were shed at the crucifixion of Christ. But you, O Lord Jesus Christ, the eros, love, delight, and inexpressible sweetness of all those who love you with their whole soul, being importuned by their tears, cleanse us of every iniquity and sin, and make our filthy souls whiter than snow. Amen. Sometimes, when the pure priest and worthy liturgist of the Lord is wearing his priestly vestments and celebrating the liturgy, he is caught up in ecstasy and sees himself as a flame of fire. As soon as he sees this ecstatic vision of his heart, his, his heart suddenly melts from compunction, and he remains with this compunction until the end of the divine liturgy. <clears throat> the following is what a certain priest said when he was asked after the divine liturgy why he was filled with so much compunction during the great entrance, while the Cheyubic hymn was being sung, and he was processing with the holy gifts. As I crossed myself, I lifted the holy patent up to my forehead with my left hand, while saying, God ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. At that moment, something pierced my heart that caused it to skip within me with a spiritual joy. Crossing myself once again with my right hand, I then took up the holy chalice with the same hand while bowing towards it and saying, With strength, holy God. As I said the word God, my heart skipped again within me, dancing in an inexpressible manner on account of its joy, and so it was moved to spiritual compunction. As I turned to exit the sanctuary in order to make the entrance with the holy gifts, I looked ahead of me with fear and joy. Keeping a careful watch over myself and looking ahead, I suddenly saw myself as complete fire. It seemed to me that from my feet to my head, I was entirely red fire, resembling a burning charcoal glowing at night. At the same time, I suddenly beheld myself as a flame of fire. That is, I did not only look like a burning charcoal or a simple flame, but also like pure fire that was blazing. I was a flame of fire, which I saw coming out of me and raising a, about a cubit above my head. And in the midst of that flame, I saw myself holding the holy patent. I wondered at this sight, and when I saw it, I did not know that I was in ecstasy, for it seemed to me very real. Therefore, I was ast in astonishment and wonder. 
Beholding this, I suddenly came to myself and contemplated what had just happened and what I had seen. Thinking about it, I suddenly realized that this was the sacred prophet who was talking about when he said, who makes his angels spirits and his liturgists a flame of fire. That is, I then understood from the ecstatic vision that the liturgists of the Lord, the worthy priests, are noetically a flame of fire in their soul. As I thought about this, I was suddenly overcome with so much compunction that my eyes were blinded by tears and I could not proceed with the entrance. So when I finally exited from the holy sanctuary and began to say, May the Lord our God remember us all of us in his kingdom, I could not say the words on account of the great compunction that was sprouting and welling up from my heart, as if from a gushing spring. Pushing myself to say it, I finally spoke the words with great compunction. When I began to say, May the Lord our God remember our priesthood in his kingdom, I could not say it because of the extreme compunction that was wondrously coming out of my heart. Again, pushing myself to say it with my voice, I was unable to do so. And that is why I entered the holy sanctuary silently, not having said it, all the while crying out with tears to my Christ and my spirit, Remember me, Lord, in your kingdom. May we all attain to his kingdom by the grace, compassions, and love for us of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Discourse 19 on the verse, Therefore God anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Also, on who are Christ's companions? Those anointed with the oil of gladness, and from what spiritual signs does someone know with his mind that he is anointed with the oil of gladness? Bless Father. The prophet King says, Since you, O Christ, love righteousness, which is apparent from your universal love toward everyone, and since you hated lawlessness, which is apparent from the fact that you preserved the image and likeness of God in perfect purity, therefore God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions, that is, more than your saints and your followers. Now let us see how God the Father anoints with the oil of gladness and what exactly this oil of gladness is, whom he anoints more, whom he anoints less, and why he anoints them. When the heavenly God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ sent his only begotten Son into the world, he anointed him with the oil of gladness more than all of the saints, who themselves are also anointed by God with the oil of gladness because of their pureness and righteousness. So the fact that the Father anointed Christ with the oil of gladness more than all of the saints indicates the great love the Father had and has for Christ, since they are of one essence and because of Christ's extreme obedience to his Father. Therefore the Father anointed him with the oil of gladness more than his companions. For whomever he loves more, he anoints and blesses more. When our Lord Jesus Christ was bodily on the earth, his face appeared so full of grace and was so sweet to those with innocent hearts who looked upon him that whoever's soul tasted the sweetness but once of Christ's words, which his all-holy mouth spoke, and whoever was drawn by the grace of his blessed face, it would have been impossible for that grace to be erased from their minds and hearts. Grace was poured out over Christ so ineffably and in the God-befitting manner, grace was poured out on your lips, it says, 
that much grace was richly given by Christ to those who sincerely heard and followed him with their whole soul. That is why it says, more than your companions. The heavenly God anoints each of Christ's companions and followers according to the desire he shows for Christ. For we hear in many places of Holy Scripture and in the lives of the saints about the grace the saints had on them even while they were alive. What then is this grace? Or better yet, what is the oil of gladness spoken of, which the souls of Christ's companions, those who followed him and those who follow him now, possess? Listen. From the words you will learn the meaning. It says oil of gladness, as if to say spiritual grace which brings about inexpressible gladness and divine joy to whoever is deemed worthy. When a Christian carefully keeps all of Christ's commandments, then that Christian is loved by the heavenly and almighty God and by our Lord Jesus Christ, and for this reason Christ manifests himself to that person, as it says in the Gospel. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Christ, then, as we believe and as we are convinced, is the sweetness and inexpressible delight of our souls. When Christ manifests himself to us, he communes us and makes us partakers of his inexpressible delight and of his divine sweetness. This happens in the following way. When you go to smell myrrh that is unadulterated, pure, and fragrant, you too partake of its fragrance and are gladdened by its scent. Likewise, when Christ manifests himself to us, let the reader understand that the manifestation is both sensible and noetic, bodily and spiritual. We too partake of his grace and of his gladness. And those who were anointed by Christ's grace smelled it, communed in it, and partook of it. We mean those who were anointed with the oil of gladness by Christ, they commune us and give us a portion of that inexhaustible spiritual grace which they received from Christ. It is like when your hand draws near to unadulterated myrrh and you put your hand into that myrrh and afterwards your hand is also fragrant and smells wonderfully like the myrrh and it gladdens those who smell it. However, the fragrance we smell directly from the myrrh itself is one thing, that is the grace that Christ bestows on our souls is one thing, and the fragrance we smell from the thing that was dipped in the myrrh is another, that is, the grace that Christ's saints, those who were graced by Christ and were anointed with the oil of gladness in their inner person, bestow on our souls in a, is another. And this, the fact that the saints, having been graced by Christ, in turn wondrously grace those who reverence and honor them, is one sign of the holiness of those who have walked the straight way of the Lord. By this sign of fragrance and spiritual grace, Christ glorifies them among men. When someone sees that their relics and bodies give off a sweet scent, not having been anointed with anything fragrant, and that they give your soul grace and joy, which causes you awe and wonder, what else could all this mean except to indicate the intimacy and companionship the saints have with Christ, the source of inexpressible fragrance and inexhaustible grace? Do you see now that those whose relics are fragrant are near to Christ, friends of Christ, communicants and partakers of Christ's joy and gladness? Let us now see how Christ's grace operates in the saints even while they are alive. Our Lord Jesus Christ 
is the most righteous judge, for he recompenses each person according to the virtue he has. He recompenses so justly and righteously that he does no favors, not even in the least. This is confirmed by what Christ said to the mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee, who asked from Christ that her sons might sit at his right and left hand. Christ answered her, To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Here is the meaning of what he said. O woman, there is no way for that which you ask of me to happen, for I, the most righteous judge, will place my immaculate mother at my right hand and John the Baptist at my left. They greatly exceed your sons in virtue and holiness. Yes, your son John is pure and a virgin, and for this I love him more than all my other disciples. But my mother is much more pure and holy than he is. And so I wish to place my immaculate mother at my right hand, since she is my mother and she is queen. Therefore the scripture says about her, The queen stood at your right hand in apparel interwoven with gold and adorned and embroidered with various colors. James is also good and virtuous, and his manner of life is pleasing to me. But another is much more virtuous and better than he is, concerning whom it is said that among those born of women there has risen no one greater. This is John, who baptized me, and I wish to place him at my left hand in my kingdom. Since God judges everything with great righteousness, he places those who are more virtuous nearer to him. To whomever he places closer to him, he also gives a greater and richer portion of his grace. For God anoints him more than others with the oil of gladness in order to fully convince him that his name has been written in the book of life and that he will certainly be with God after this present life. Therefore, Jesus says, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the heavens. He says, In the heavens and not in heaven, in order to demonstrate the different degrees of glory available to each person according to his virtues. And the phrase, more than his companions, means the following. In this life, God anoints one person with the oil of gladness a lot, and another person a little. Each is anointed according to his struggle, his virtue, and his humility. And thus God causes each person to understand in what heaven his name is written, that is, what degree of glory he will receive when he departs from this life. Each person knows that his soul has tasted this oil of gladness from the following sign. Before someone's soul noetically tastes the oil of divine gladness and before his heart in some way sensibly tastes it, he is clumsy in divine things, sour and bitter in spiritual things, not easily moved to virtue, and his heart is very cold. It is cold toward God and toward the saints. When someone eats food without any oil, it seems unsavory to him. But when he adds oil to the food, it seems savory, appetizing, and desirable. Likewise, the person whose soul has not been anointed by the oil of gladness is cold and not easily moved toward the word of God. There are many such people in the world who have difficulty doing the word of God, especially when it comes to fasting, which is the first commandment of God. And all the saints please God because of their fasting. 
Some have much difficulty doing the word of God and are troubled by fasting, so they do not fast, even when someone tells them to fast, as if they were being asked to carry around a bag full of sand or lead on their back. I cannot understand how they forgot these words of Christ. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is because they do not have the grace of God in their heart, and therefore doing the divine commandments of God disturbs them and seems troublesome to them. The person who from the start forced himself to do the word of God, for from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. And who would gladly lose himself for the love of God, and therefore saved his soul, and received God's grace in his soul, and the oil of gladness in his heart, which is the pledge of the heavenly kingdom, that is, his soul received the Holy Spirit, such a person is eager to do the word of God. He is zealous in God's commandments. He is tireless and earnest in spiritual things. He is this way because as soon as his soul tasted God's grace, his heart also tasted the oil of gladness, which greatly gladdened, calmed, and sweetened his inner senses, that is, the inner parts of his body and the senses of his soul. Therefore, the face of such a person's heart and body is completely glad and cheerful. This is described by the following saying, to brighten his face with oil. And elsewhere it says, when one's heart is glad, his face is cheerful. For tell me, according to your heart's judgment and your mind's discernment, what do you think about a person who practices extreme self-control, who fasts from earthly food and drink, and who shines from the spiritual joy and gladness that gushes forth from his soul? Do you not think that this happened to him on account of the grace of God and the consolation of the Holy Spirit? Certainly this is the case. For even if someone who is possessed by jealousy and the passion of envy and is prideful as the Jews were against the Lord, were to feign that he does not know where this comes from and therefore remains silent, or were to say this or that because of the passion he has against the other person, the irrational animals themselves would bear witness to the truth, according to the Lord's word, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When untamed and wild animals see the face of one of these blessed people or hear his voice, they immediately become tame and gentle as lambs because they revere his face, his appearance, and his voice. These things sufficiently address God's oil of gladness. Let us now speak a little about the oil of the devil. Just as God anoints man's head with his divine oil, you anoint my head with oil, that is, just as the grace of the Holy Spirit sweetens the mind of the pure and prudent person and strengthens it with spiritual delight in every spiritual work and holy action, so also does the devil anoint the head of the wanton and immoral person with his own impure oil. The devil's oil sweetens the mind of such a person toward carnal things, and the devil provokes him with it to do those things that are a shame even to speak of, according to the divine Paul. And the prophet king speaks of the devil's oil this way, Let not the oil of the sinner anoint my head. In order for the devil to really entrap someone and easily bend him to his own will, he will first flatter him, 
so he first anoints his head, that is, he anoints his mind with the oil of sensuality, which appears to the mind through the faculty of the imagination to be oil, that is, to be sweet. However, it is not sweet like oil in the least, but as bitter as bile and even bitterer. For, as we said, the devil first teases a person's mind through the pleasure of desire, and when the mind gladly accepts the assault of pleasure, that is, when the mind is defeated by carnal curiosity and is pleased by it, then the desire from the devil straightway proceeds into the heart. And when carnal desire takes root in a person's heart, or rather the devil's energy takes root, then the devil makes him fornicate as often as he wishes, and the person himself fornicates with his heart. This is what Christ says, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When this has happened to someone, and love of pleasure has taken root in his heart, the devil can thereafter easily make him fornicate, even with his body, when he so wishes, which is the death of the soul. Therefore the divine apostle says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. In order for someone not to reach that state, let him from the start put away from his mind and heart sensuality and evil desire, which is called the oil of the devil, that is, the forerunner of sin and the path of fornication. And let him say to God, praying from his heart with tears, let not the oil of the sinner anoint my head. That is to say, my God, cover me with your grace, and, O oh my Lord, do not allow evil desire to take root in my heart. Or better yet, my God, anoint my heart with the oil of gladness, and anoint my head with the oil of purity, so that my mind will be pleased by remembering and meditating upon you, and so that I will meditate upon your divine law day and night. For every good endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, the Father of lights. And to you we offer up glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the one Godhead found inseparably in three persons, now and forever, unto the ages of ages. Amen. Discourse 20 Concerning the amount of spiritual grace of which a person is deemed worthy and the power and strength he receives against the devil when he noetically and ceaselessly prays to Christ with a pure conscience, that is, when he says with his mind, Lord Jesus Christ, Son and Word of the living God, have mercy on me, one time at each breath, while at the same time keeping his conscience pure by abstaining from every evil and by practicing every virtue according to his ability. And when he says this prayer from the depths of his heart until it aches, that is, until that place where he is repeating the prayer aches inside him, and then takes a break from the forceful prayer of the heart, but begins to say the restful prayer until that place inside him that ached from the forceful prayer is healed, and then begins the prayer of the heart again from his depths, keeping this method of prayer for his entire life. Bless, Father. Do you wish, O monk, for this book is meant for those who have been crucified to the world, according to the saying, The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, more than it is for persons living in the world. 
Do you wish, I say, O monk, to taste the goodness of the Lord within you? That is, do you wish for the Lord's goodness and sweetness to flow within your soul, and for your soul to be sweetened by it? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the heart to taste the nectar of your Lord as long as you live? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see the beauty and divine nobility of your soul, as if in a mirror through divine revelation? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the eyes of your mind to be illumined, or rather do you wish for the eyes of your soul to be opened, through which you will see things that no eye has seen? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to hear things that no ear has heard? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know the secret, heavenly and incomprehensible things of the heavenly kingdom that Christ promised to us in his holy gospel? Do you really want to know what these things are, even if you will understand them only a little? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Christ to dwell in your soul and to show you those things that the world does not know? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to be loved by the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to experience within yourself the heavenly good things? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to become a beloved friend of your Christ? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Satan to shudder and tremble when he sees you? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, not to be caught by the hidden and lofty traps of the devil? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to render the wiles of your enemy Satan useless and futile? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, always to ensnare the one who is always trying to ensnare you by his wicked scheming. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to rejoice upon seeing the retribution against your enemy, who sometimes wounded your heart with the arrows of perverted desire? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to pierce daily the one who daily pierces you. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to hurl arrows at your implacable enemy who invisibly hurls arrows at you from the nether regions? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depth of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to violently shake and greatly disturb the power of Satan? 
Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to rush into the midst of Satan's armies and come out bearing glorious trophies unto your eternal remembrance? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for your soul to defeat and triumph over all the armies of evil spirits? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, not only to appear fearsome, terrible, and very dreadful to the devil, but to be so in truth? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the demon of fornication to be shattered as it flees from you? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to blind the demons as you pass by them, like someone who blinds his enemy with red pepper, and thus pass by them safe and unharmed? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to mock the devil's tricks and stomp on his craftiness as if they were mud on the streets? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the demons to fear you as the sparrows fear an eagle and the animals fear a lion? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, thoroughly to rout the noetic, invisible, and evil Amalek, that is to say the devil, and to destroy him utterly, then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to receive Christ in your heart and to see him in some divine ecstatic vision as much as this is possible for you? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Christ, the only begotten Son and Word of God, upon whom you ceaselessly meditate and who dwells in you, to reveal to you his heavenly Father and God, so that you will know him in a mystical way? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know that Christ is good, meek, clement, and sweet to his friends? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ, from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know what the kingdom of Christ is like? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for your intellect to be amazed and for your mind to be struck with wonder at the things they see by the grace of Christ our true God? That is, do you wish, O monk, to be amazed by and wonder at the things revealed to you by Christ? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see what kind of noetic grace Christ gives his servants? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to be in the world and yet fight it from your heart without anyone knowing that you are fighting it? Then pray noetically to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for your body to be upon the earth among men while your soul dwells in heaven with the angels of God, that is, for your soul to continually glorify him like the angels? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. 
Do you wish, O monk, to see the things down here while thinking upon the things above? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to walk among the devil's traps and not be caught by them, as a bird is not caught by the traps set for it when it flies into the air? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to confuse the minds of the demons, as smoke confuses bees? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to make a fearsome and sudden ambush on your invisible enemy? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to the Lord from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to cast every demonic activity to Hades and to make the devils squeal like pigs being slaughtered, being invisibly scourged by the power of your prayer? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to the Lord from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the Spirit of God to rest and dwell in your heart in order for God's Spirit to navigate the ship of your soul safely? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to the Lord from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to be truly a servant of Christ according to your promise and for your Christ to console you invisibly during your trials as his true friend? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to the Lord from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to understand by yourself those things that you hear in the Holy Scripture about paradise and hell through a divine revelation? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to understand that man becomes a noetic paradise if he keeps Christ's commands, but a noetic hell if he does not keep them? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see in yourself those things written in Holy Scripture and to understand in an inexplicable way those things that the teachers of the Church could not transmit to us through ink on account of their obscurity and loftiness? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to confirm whether you have received the Holy Spirit in your soul and to be shown whether your name has been written in the Book of Life? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Christ to be crucified in your heart in order to teach you how you can be crucified to the world and the world crucified to you, according to that which the divine Paul says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the Lord's grace to protect you from everything moving in darkness, and for the heavenly angels to surround you invisibly like whitest snow? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the ears of your soul to hear heavenly doxologies and to know even slightly how you will doxologize your heavenly Creator when you are deemed worthy of His kingdom? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know what the heavenly mana is, that is to say, what ineffable and sweet taste Christ is, the Lord of glory? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know how the saints shine in heaven and what their raiment is like? 
Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know what the noetic dwellings of the saints of God are and how the saints are filled by the glory of the Lord? Then pray noetically to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to become yourself a noetic paradise of the Lord? That is, do you wish to see all the good things of paradise within you in the twinkling of an eye and in an inexpressible way? In other words, do you wish, O monk, to become a temple of the living God and to know in truth how you became one? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see through a divine revelation what the soul of man is in and of itself, and to be struck with wonder at the wisdom of God, who made the soul with such wisdom? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the rivers of living water to flow out of your heart, as if from a spring, that is, divine words and spiritual conceptions? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ, from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to know that your soul drank from the living water with which Christ waters those who love him and keep his commandments unto a pledge of his divine kingdom? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the words of Holy Scripture to appear to your mouth and tongue sweeter than honey, according to the prophet King who says, how sweet to my taste are your teachings, more than honey and the honeycomb in my mouth. Then pray without interruption, noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to delight in the Lord's goodness and for your soul to taste the grace of Christ's holy commandments? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to become a chosen vessel of Christ's grace, that is, a vessel of the Holy Spirit, and to know in truth that you have become such. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to become the mother and brother of Christ, as it says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That is to say, do you wish, O monk, for Christ to dwell in your heart, not bodily but spiritually, and for Christ to have you as his mother and brother? And do you wish, O monk, to know that you have become a mother and brother of Christ? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to be a monk in truth, according to your name? Love only Christ from your heart. That is to say, pray constantly to your Christ from your heart. Do you wish, O monk, to enter into Christ's treasury, wherein are those things that no human words can explain, and to see there those things that no tongue can express. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Christ to show you the mystical things of his divine kingdom, which stupefy every intellect that tries to think about them? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for Christ, who is present everywhere, who is our true God, upon whom you ceaselessly meditate, to console you in a strange manner in your every sorrow, and for his grace to visit you joyfully and benevolently? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, 
really to know that the spiritual work of noetic prayer of the heart is the crown of all the virtues and the greatest power in your soul, and that without it no one will be deemed worthy to see invisible and spiritual things, then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for every evil thought to dissipate like smoke, and for all demonic phalanxes to be vanquished by the activity of your spiritual work? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to be attacked by the demons more than all people, but for them not to have any strength or power whatsoever against you, and to reckon their arrows as those of a small child in the face of your divine work? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to destroy Satan's machinations like a spider web, and mock Satan's servants, the demons, like servile creatures? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches and is exhausted. Do you wish, O monk, to exhaust the power of those who are always attempting to exhaust the strength of your soul, and to shame those who are trying to find a way for you to be shamed in the presence of every creature that is in heaven, on the earth, and below the earth. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for the demons to hide from you when they happen upon you until you pass by, fearing the Lord's grace that dwells in you? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, when you suddenly come into the midst of a satanic assembly of leading demons to beat them so violently with the name of the Lord that they cannot bear the pain and wail and lament, bemoaning their misfortune? Do you wish, I say, for this to happen without fail to your enemies, the demons? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, when you pass by the demons' lookout posts, that is, those places where the demons attain easy victories and where they have set up many trophies. Do you wish, I say, to set up your own trophies in shining metals? Then pray noetically, ceaselessly, and uninterruptedly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches and is exhausted. Do you wish, O monk, to cut into little pieces, that is, to be understood noetically, your invisible and unseen enemies with the double-edged, and razor-sharp sword of the name of God, then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to pierce Lucifer's heart with spiritual arrows and cast fearsome lightning bolts at the battalions of gloomy Hades? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to cast burning ashes upon the devil's houses, which are set ablaze like firewood from the Lord's anger, then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches and is exhausted. Do you wish, O monk, for the demons to fear you as some brave and famous soldier of the heavenly king? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to pull a damned soul out of the belly of Hades by your entreaty? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for tears to pour from your eyes like streams and for your insides to burn out of love for your Christ 
on account of which you roar from your heart towards your Christ. According to that which the prophet King says, I roar because of the groaning of my heart. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches and is exhausted. Do you wish, O monk, for joy-producing mourning, not to be absent from your heart, and for your eyes not to lack soul-saving tears, which make the garment of your soul whiter than snow? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, wherever you are and wherever you might live, for your thoughts to be at peace concerning your spiritual needs, and for your conscience not to disturb you concerning your outward way of life. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for God to remember you always and to protect you with an invisible encampment of his holy angels? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches and is exhausted. Do you wish, O monk, from there where you are, darkness that is, from there where your soul is far from God's consolation, suddenly to become light that is suddenly and in no time to see God's consolation within you? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for your mind to be occupied with invisible things, divine things, heavenly things, and spiritual things? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, not for your body to chant outwardly, but for your soul to chant in ecstasy, Christos Anesti, indicating that your soul has risen from the tomb of the passions by the grace of Christ who has risen from the dead, that is how your soul has become passionless with the help of the Lord? Do you wish, I say, O monk, really to experience this in yourself? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to converse with the invisible spirits, not only mystically with your mind, but sometimes to spiritually converse with them? We mean for your soul sometimes to converse with the invisible spirits just as they converse with one another. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see with your noetic eyes God's grace flash in your soul like lightning? just like you see lightning flash in the clouds with your physical eyes? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. <laughs> Do you wish, O monk, for your spirit to be comforted by the Spirit of God, and for no physical, visible, or invisible creature to be able to separate you from your Christ? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see how beautiful Christ is, who is more beautiful than the sons of men. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, to see the incomprehensible and divine beauty of the Panagia, the mother of Jesus, the Almighty God? Then pray from your heart until your heart is crushed, that is, until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for my Jesus to look at you sweetly and for the mother of my Jesus to love you, and for their grace to comfort you. Then pray to your Christ with a crushed heart, that is, pray from your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for my Christ to appear to you in an inexplicable way, and for the mother of God to reveal herself to you, she who is the mistress of angels, the queen of the archangels, the joy of all the saints, 
the beauty, the adornment, and the fragrance of paradise. Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, for your soul to be drawn to the beautiful sight of my Jesus and my all-pure Lady, the Theotokos, and ever-Virgin Mary, to her who is the child of God and the unwed bride of God? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. Do you wish, O monk, as you look at the holy icon of my Christ and the Panagia, for your eyes to shed warm tears? Then pray noetically and ceaselessly to your Christ from the depths of your heart until it aches. The author's most sweet vision concerning this book and if it was written with the grace of God. One night I woke up at midnight in order to read the service of preparation for Holy Communion using my prayer rope. Footnote, according to common practice of monks who hold to the hesychistic tradition, the Jesus prayer can replace not only the preparation for Holy Communion, but all church services, except the Divine Liturgy. The service of preparation for Holy Communion, when read on the prayer rope, consists of saying the Jesus Prayer 900 times and Most Holy Theotokos Save Us 100 times. Inasmuch as the Divine Liturgy immediately follows Orthos and the Hours, then evidently the author of this book was preparing to do the Entrance Prayers and the Proscomitee after the singing of the More Honorable. To continue. And in order to perform the Entrance Prayers before Liturgy, after the singing of the hymn More Honorable Than the Cherubim, on the preceding day in the evening, I had done a lot of physical labor, and after that I had said the prayer with extreme force until my heart ached. And so I was very exhausted, both externally and internally, so much that I could not even eat dinner, and I fell asleep not having eaten and exhausted. And so at midnight, when I woke up, my heart and body were still exhausted. That is, my chest had not yet healed from the pain it had experienced from the force of my prayer and my body had not rested adequately from its labors. For this reason, I was not able to stand up as usual for my prayers, but sat down facing east. Sitting in this way, I meditated on the prayer, not with a great amount of force, for the reasons already stated, but also not without some inner pain of the chest and not without deep sighs from the heart. Aching in this way, I frequently sighed from my depths, thinking about the many wiles of the demons, my own unworthiness, and all the debts I owe God on a daily basis that I do not repay as I should. I passed about an hour in this fashion and fell asleep as I was sitting. Then suddenly I saw some mystical things in a vision which my tongue has difficulty speaking about and which I cannot describe. After I had come to myself again, I forgot some things, which are very lofty indeed and impossible to comprehend. And other things, although my intellect can recall them and their images are imprinted on my mind, my tongue cannot describe them in the detail with which they are etched on my mind. In any case, I will speak and tell that which my limited knowledge can attain and as much as my barbaric tongue is able. In a vision, I saw our Lord Jesus Christ, our infinitely longed-for and sweetest hierarch, clad in hierarchical vestments and celebrating the liturgy exactly according to the order of the Church. Furthermore, Christ himself and his hierarchical vestments appeared to us 
as something totally incomprehensible. I, the least of all, and my elder, were celebrating together with Christ. But Christ, paradoxically, was himself both the offerer and the one being offered. For although we were clearly concelebrating with him, Christ was the offering in a wonderful manner. Some deacon was also celebrating with us, and when he commemorated the names of Christians, my Christ would be inclined towards merciful compassion. Rather, it is better to state it as the prophet King did when he said, Incline, O Lord, your ear and hear me. As my Christ inclined his ear toward where the deacon was, he said, Let them also have a place in my kingdom with me. But I did not recognize that deacon and do not know who he was. There were some present at the liturgy from my elders' brotherhood, and two of them, who I knew very well, had the faces of angels, shining from the grace of God. Shining, golden rays were radiating from them. Their weapons, that is, their schema. Their monastic garment worn over their shoulders, and the crosses they were holding appeared brighter than lightning, and I cannot describe their garments with words, even if I had the tongues of angels. But the glorious image and beauty of their garments is etched in my useless mind and dull intellect. When I saw that their garments and the grace and glory of their faces surpassed every intellect and every human mind, I was struck with wonder, and my soul reverenced them as if they were divine angels and friends of Christ, and their hoods were, if I may put it in this way, many times whiter than snow. During the liturgy, my elder was full of inexpressible joy, and his heart overflowed with such gladness that it, it made his face beam. I continuously wept out of joy, however, from the very beginning of the liturgy, because my heart was moved to compunction, and I was pierced by the immeasurable delight in my soul. Seeing my sweet Jesus in front of me, him who is beyond and better than all sweetness, I wept out of joy and wonder, for I was deemed worthy to enjoy my sweet vision and the appearance of my Jesus, my Master and my God, the vision that my soul had desired to enjoy for a long while, and my heart burned within me as I meditated on the vision with streaming tears. When I kissed his all-immaculate and all-pure chest, I felt the Holy Spirit deep within me, and renew a right spirit in the depths of me, says David who warmed both my spirit and my heart more and more in the eros of my Jesus and caused me to melt like wax at that moment on account of my great compunction. This compunction leapt within my heart like a living spring and made my eyes shed sweet and copious tears before my Jesus like two faucets pouring forth refreshingly sweet water. As I somehow took courage from these things, I, the lowly one, opened my vile mouth and said to my Christ with tears, Remember me, O Lord, in your kingdom. And I heard from the sweet sugar-dripping and mellifluous tongue of my Jesus, May it be as you have spoken. O your divine and beloved and most sweet voice, which your all-true mouth has spoken to me, O my most true Christ. Again I spoke to my master Christ with reverence. Allow me, Lord, to say a few things before you, things I have desired to tell you for a long time. And the Savior said to me, Speak with boldness, fearing nothing. So I spoke with great humility and hesitation. Tell me, Lord, 
Was the simple book that I wrote concerning noetic prayer written with your grace or not? And he said to me, Yes, it was written with my grace. And I spoke again, How can I know, Lord, that it was written with your grace? The Savior said to me, From the compunction that came to you as you were writing. Again I said, And how is this so, Lord? For sometimes, as I was writing, so much compunction came over me that rivers of tears poured from my eyes. And sometimes I experienced only a little compunction, so that my eyes were only slightly moistened by it. The Savior said to me, When you were writing and were filled with compunction and wept, then it was my Holy Spirit speaking in you. When you were writing and you were filled with a little compunction, then it was a visitation of my grace. And when that grace was taken from you, the compunction you were feeling immediately ceased. And so you were no longer able to write with a free intellect, even though you wanted to. And you wrote, if you wrote anything, you wrote it without compunctionate delight in your mind. And that is why you stopped writing. I said again, Tell me again, Lord, why did I sometimes noetically see innumerable spiritual conceptions? And seeing them, I wanted to describe them with all great desire, but I could not retain them all in my mind. So I recorded the few things I did remember. But the rest, although I saw them noetically, my intellect was unable to grasp and could not describe them in ink. And so I was very sorrowful. The Savior said to me, do you not know that when I showed you innumerable doves in a vision that were white as snow and as many as the sand of the sea, you caught only a few, only those that were flying near you, and you rejoiced in as many as you caught, but you were sad because you could not catch any more? Of those doves, the ones that you caught, I allowed you to catch, and I deigned that you write down concerning noetic prayer those things that human nature can put into practice. The rest of the doves you saw did not catch represent the spiritual conceptions that I did not want written down concerning noetic prayer, which things are proper to watchfulness and the free will of man, but not to action. I said again, and why, Lord, were there sometimes very sweet spiritual conceptions circling about my intellect as an eagle flies around some place looking to set down, but then suddenly as soon as I thought they would settle in my intellect, they disappeared, just as when an eagle is preparing to land, but then suddenly takes off into the air and flies to some other place. The Savior said to me, Do you not know that when you saw the doves, as soon as some of them approached near to you, they straightway flew up high into the air, and you did not see them again? Or did you not know that my judgments are a great abyss? I again said, Lord, when you showed me these innumerable doves, I also saw a slower, slowly flowing river that looked as if it was coming from the center of the earth, with a wondrous gentleness about it. Some doves that were flying about the river struck the surface of the water with their wings as if they were rejoicing and playing. What did that river and what the doves were doing represent, Lord? The Savior said to me, that river represents the ever-flowing compunction, which springs from those hearts that attain to my love. That which the doves were doing represents the joy with which my grace re rejoices at a crushed and compunctionate heart. I said again, tell me what this is, Lord. Sometimes I feel 
that as some spiritual conceptions are arising in my heart, a certain vivid consolation comes out at the same time, which ineffably comforts my mind, just as a pilgrim burned by the summer heat is comforted by the refreshing breeze that comes from that place, from where spring stream of water. The Savior said to me, This is that of which I spoke in my gospel. He who believes in me out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Again I said, Why is it, Lord, that sometimes when I am sleeping, I at times feel your divine name boiling up within my heart, as my heart says of its own accord, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And at times I feel the most glorified name of your all-pure mother boiling up within my heart, as my heart says of its own accord, Theotokos and Virgin, rejoice, O Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, for you have given birth to the Savior of our souls. The Savior said to me, When you notice noetic prayer active within you of its own accord while you sleep, sometimes repeating my name and sometimes repeating the name of my all-pure mother, know that at that moment either I myself am about to visit you or my pure mother is. Or it could be that at that moment Satan, the apostate, and his army is preparing to attack your heart in order to conquer it and make it into his own city and dwelling place. If I or my pure mother are about to visit you, then my grace which protects your heart becomes active in order to prepare your heart to receive my visitation and that of my pure mother's. It is like those people whom the king has assigned to oversee a certain land. When they are informed that the king or queen is going to visit their land, they inform all the people of that land about this and tell them to prepare and come out to greet the king and queen, just as this had happened many times to your heart. And if these same people of the king who oversee his land are informed about the king's enemies and see them ready to attack that land, either manifestly or in stealth, in order to capture that land and rule it themselves, then the king's men encourage and arouse all the inhabitants of that land to fight alongside of them with all their strength and resist those apostate enemies to the point of death, even if some of them are to be murdered and brutally tortured by the enemy until they utterly overcome the king's enemies, just as you have many times overcome the enemy with the help of my grace. Then I said, O Lord, from all that you have said, I am certain that those things which I have written in this humble little book of mine are from your grace. And so I ask you, please allow me to dedicate it to you as your own and do with it what you will. The Savior said to me, Do not concern yourself about this matter, but hide the book for now. And when I wish, I will send it forth from this mountain. Saying this final word, the Savior appeared no more and disappeared from before my eyes. Going over the things that had been said, I found myself once again in the vision. Suddenly I heard a sound that was as sweet as the voice of angels, and whose tone and noise was like the thundering of the voice of many men. And so, recounting all these things, I suddenly saw my elder chanting by himself, in a great voice with extreme sweetness, like an angel of the Lord, the hymn, O impassable gate of the Lord, do you rejoice? Rejoice, O rampart and shelter for them that hasten to you, tranquil haven and pure maiden, who did not know man and who bore in the flesh your Creator and your God. Rejoice, 
and cease not to pray him, making entreaty for them that worship and praise him that was born of you. Then I came to myself out of the vision, and that entire day I could not stop my heart from being full of compunction. That is, my heart automatically was filled with compunction wherever I thought about the vision that appeared to me. To our God be glory, power, praise, and worship, now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. 